I used to work for a real estate company where I'd survey locations to see whether or not they were worth flipping. Basically, I spent my days in abandoned buildings, more than anyone should. It was a good thing my teenage years were occupied by some light urban exploration. While most times I went to these locations with one of my coworkers, a burly man named Sam, but there were a handful of times when I'd be sent out on my own. This instance ended up being one such solo trip. It had snowed the previous night, and while it was shoveled or melted off the main walkways, there was still enough of it to be troublesome. Sam and I were supposed to meet at the house, but he had texted me during the drive, saying something about how his kid was sick, and he couldn't make it. If anything goes wrong, call me, he'd ended the message with. I sighed. Sure, it was understandable, but I hated going into such broken-down places on my own. Just seemed too dangerous for my taste. At least, for my adult taste. Even with the ease that I opened the door, it was apparently enough force to nearly tear it from its hinges. With a glance at the rusted hinges, I made a few notes in my book before stepping inside. I closed the door behind me in an effort to keep out as much of the cold as I could. The interior was in better shape than I imagined, with furniture tossed about rather than the structural damage I was anticipating. The first floor checked out and was better than I imagined. A few strokes of the pin and I moved on to check upstairs. With a huff, I picked up one of the fallen shelves that had blocked the stairs. Crap, I thought aloud, looking at the holes that all but littered the steps. With cautious footsteps, as though walking on a tightrope, I eased up the stairs, hoping to make it to the second floor in one piece. This floor was where the bedrooms and bathroom were located, but it didn't look anything like the first. Where the first had been just a bit out of sorts, the second looked to have suffered through a storm. The walls were torn and hole-ridden. Torn mattresses were thrown against walls or onto the floor, and the floorboards looked dangerous. Though I tried to keep my footsteps on the solid-looking floorboards, one gave way and a sharp pain jolted through my foot, which was burrowed into the wood. My boots ensured the wood hadn't scraped against my foot, but the pain wasn't leaving any time soon. Even before I pulled it out, I knew my pants were not so lucky. The fabric by the ankle had been turned to Swiss cheese, and I cursed. One hand reached toward the nearby doorframe as the other searched for anything else to gain some leverage and pull my foot out. I found a string that seemed to lead up to an attic space and decided that that would work well enough. With both hands gripping these objects, I pulled down and thrusted my leg upward. There was a sudden rush of pain, but I was able to free myself. But it was with this motion that the ladder-like staircase was pulled down, and I went crashing to the floor. It was nothing short of a miracle that I didn't fall through those floorboards and land somewhere in the living room below. I jumped to my feet and dusted myself off, all the while cursing up a storm. Finally, I looked up. To my surprise... These pull-down stairs were the most well-kept thing in the house, and they looked brand new. Curiosity overwhelmed me. I sent a quick message to James, 
telling him the place was a dump, but I was checking the attic now. Maybe because I wanted to make sure that if anything happened, Sam would realize and get me out of there. Shaking off the pain in my foot, I tested the first few steps and the rails that bordered them. Convinced they were safe enough, I made a slow ascent. The only sliver of light came from the breaks in the wood planks that covered the window. It wasn't enough to properly maneuver, so I pulled out my flashlight, and I nearly leapt back down the steps when I turned it on. The space was cluttered with images of people, all different subjects in different mediums. There were paintings over there, pictures along the wall, Polaroids hanging from the ceiling, all of very different people with one thing in common. None of them looked normal. There was a distorted aspect about each of them. Gangly limbs, jagged teeth and mouths much too wide, eyes too far apart, too animalistic. Skin shades of green or yellow that only came with sickness, bodies set at impossible bone-shattering angles, an array of indents into the skin as though hands had squeezed the flesh. Something was wrong about each picture, and the longer I stared, the harder my stomach lurched upward. I'd seen some weird things in my time, but nothing so gut-wrenching as those images. I clambered back down the steps, with no regard for safety or caution, causing the true instability of such new-looking steps to make itself known. My already injured foot broke through one of the rails, and I lost my balance before I was even halfway down. While I remember tumbling downward, I don't remember hitting those sketchy floorboards, but nobody really remembers passing out. They just remember waking up in a strange position at a time of day they don't remember venturing out into, or another space entirely. Next thing I remember is waking up to the sound of Sam calling out to me from the entrance. Turns out I'd fallen through those darned floorboards and had broken a few bones in the process. I also sustained a concussion which may have been what knocked me out in the first place. Good thing it had too, as all that pain would have been a fresh kind of hell. All because of a room filled with creepy paintings. Speaking of those paintings, there wasn't any trace of the attic I claimed to have climbed up into. By the time Sam had arrived with the police, the stairs were nowhere to be found, and unlike myself, he wasn't about to go exploring. The ratty old building was condemned, and eventually knocked down, replaced with a hotel. The same one that I found myself staying just a few days ago. It's the reason I'm writing these incidents out to begin with. It was late when I checked into the hotel, but all I could think about was getting to a bed as fast as possible. If I was focused enough to really look at the lobby, then I'd have gotten the heck out of there. Instead, I just dragged myself to the room, and all but collapsed down onto the too-stiff mattress. I was drifting off when a loud bang had me bolting upright. I sat there trying to steady my breathing and looked around the room, trying to listen to anything else. For a while, there was nothing. Then there was this rhythmic knocking. Slow knocks, as though someone was asking permission to be let in. 
It would be slightly understandable if the sound had come from the door instead of the wall behind me, like the person in the other room was knocking against the wall, knowing that's where the bed was on the other side. My heart leapt into my throat and sweat coated my skin. A curse slipped from my lips as I reached back to pound on the wall. In the deepest voice I could muster, I yelled for whoever it was in the other room to stop. The sound came to a halt and the silence returned. After a few minutes of nothing, I collapsed back down and tried to get back to sleep. No such luck. The knocking started up as soon as my head hit the pillow and continued on throughout the night. I thought about going over there and causing a scene, but I decided to let it go. It was just one night, not worth the energy. Somehow I drifted off and was awakened by the bright morning sun hitting my eyes, as my exhausted state kept me from closing the blinds. I set up, and following a groan-filled stretch, I got my things together to check out, more eager than ever to get home and into my own bed. When I got into the hall, though, I stopped, and I found myself looking over to the room beside me. I wanted to see just who was bothering me all night, or to wake them up in the middle of their sleep. I made my way over. It wasn't a room at all, or at least not for the guests. It was the office for the hotel's manager with its door propped open, and one of the managers, an older gentleman with a graying beard, sat at the desk. Startled, I knocked on the door as I eased it open, greeting the man with a confused smile. Um, I didn't know this was an office. I heard a knocking against the wall all night long and I thought there was a kid staying over here, I explained. Just wanted to let you know in case there was something wrong. The man apologized profusely for my experience and offered me a cup of coffee from his private espresso machine. Something I couldn't say no to. When I stepped inside, though, eager for the coffee that would put the sludge they usually offered to shame, I froze. My stomach lurched upward, and a pain, more memory than anything real, shot through my leg. Hanging on the wall across from the manager's desk was none other than one of those distorted paintings. This one of a woman, tall and gangly, standing beneath a tree that was entirely too small to be giving off any sort of shade for her. She was smiling, head tilted at an uncomfortable angle, but not toward the painter, instead down at a child, a totally normal-looking child. It made her appearance look all the more grotesque. The promise of coffee had left my mind, and without another word, I apologized and ran out of the room. I nearly knocked over a few carts on my way out to the car, fumbling with my keys all the while. They fell to the floor in the lobby, and when I reached down to grab them, I noticed the painting hanging on the wall behind the reception desk. I recognized it instantly. It was the first painting I'd laid eyes on in that forsaken attic. That of a family dressed in Victorian clothing sitting on a plush couch with a bouquet of flowers in the mother's hand. They all looked mostly normal, save for the mouths that were too wide and the eyes far too black and soulless to be that of a human. 
I'm surprised that I didn't get pulled over for how far over the speed limit I'd gone to cut my once two-hour car ride down to a little over an hour. The whole ride home, all I could think about were those pictures and what sort of demented mind it took to create them. What sort of person would want to save them and hang them up in their office? As decor for a hotel. I couldn't wrap my head around it. Not even as I got home and my wife surprised me with a present. I'm sure you know deep down where this is going. I had to write it down. Get it out there. I can't explain my experience or why these pictures just keep popping up in my life. But I just want it out. I wish I'd never found them in the first place. I wish I'd never climbed that ladder, never investigated the second floor, never went into that house on my own. Because I know now it's a choice that will follow me forever. A choice I will never get away from. I just hope you don't make the same mistake. White Thing in the Mountains from J. Pratt, 0531. So to set this story, which I remember as though it was yesterday, myself and my close group of friends would always race the mountains near our hometown. This particular mountain range being called the Back of the Dragon. We were out one night in my buddy's old beat-up Jeep Cherokee, trying to see who could make it to the top the fastest. We'd all felt kind of weird that night, as though something was off. We had just turned a hairpin corner about a half mile from the top of the mountain and were starting the next bend when he slammed on the brakes. As the car came skidding to a stop, we all saw this massive white creature pick itself up beside the guardrail. Just for perspective, in that spot the guardrail is almost four feet high. It barely reached the creature's hips, it turned and looked at us with these horribly yellow eyes, teeth bared on its dog-like face. It stood for a moment before jumping off the side of the mountain. Not walk, not fly, it jumped down a 300-foot bank and disappeared into the night. We continued to drive to the top and sat for a while, just trying to take in what had occurred. Not long after we heard a bellowing roar coming from the trees behind the jeep. Luckily for us, that abused little jeep managed not to stall as we made quite possibly the fastest time we've ever made back down the horrific mountain. We still get nervous on that curve to this day. None of us have been man enough to stop on that curve at night, and very rarely do we take the mountain roads anymore. The last time we did, we saw those same awful yellow eyes glaring from the trees. Watch yourself in the mountains of southwest Virginia. You're definitely not alone. The following stories are a compilation of experiences submitted by the same viewer. Mine and My Brother's Dark Encounters From Marshall Even now, I'm still not sure what the heck me and my brothers encountered. I never thought I would encounter anything paranormal, but it appears that I have. 
This story involves some encounters my two younger brothers and I have had with seemingly paranormal events. My brothers and I have been interested in the paranormal from TV shows we watched, like Ghost Adventures. I, on the other hand, was 50-50 with anything paranormal. I believed in it, but not as much as my brothers. I always thought I could rely on facts and deductive reasoning, but after my own experiences and listening to my brothers tell their own, I now know that there are things in this world that not even facts and deductive reasoning could explain. 1. My first encounter took place when I was in middle school around the age of 15. It was after school and I was in the school's basement. I had a job of cleaning the bowling alley the school had every Thursday. One of these days, I had been at the bowling alley for about ten minutes. I was beginning to wash down the top of the bar. I was starting to get thirsty, though, so I got a plastic cup from the stack that sat on the bar. I filled it up with water from the sink. As I was close to emptying my drink, I heard a loud clink from the workshop area. This startled me, of course, but seeing that this bowling alley was around 80 years old, my deductive reasoning told me that the noise was one of the machines making some sound, as they tend to do so often. I ignored it, and I tossed my plastic cup in the trash can, continuing to wipe down the bar. Five minutes later, another loud clank came from the workshop. Now I was starting to get a bit nervous. I thought maybe the manager's down here working in the workshop. When the manager is here in the workshop, you can see bright lights from behind the machines, showing that the lights are turned on. But when I looked at the machine, the lights were off in the workshop. I heard rumors from my friends that our school was haunted, but I never thought anything of it. It was probably some silly story the students made up for fun to scare each other. But at that moment, I was beginning to think otherwise. I wasn't going to be silly and say it was a ghost. I wanted to say it was the manager, because maybe I just didn't notice he had come down here when I arrived. So, to be sure, I called out to him. Hello? Anyone in there? No response came back. The more I stared at the machines, the more I began to feel like I was being watched. I called out again. Hello? Whoever's doing that, I know you're back there. I can hear you. Yet no voice replied, but another loud clank answered. I ducked under the bar, trying to calm myself down, telling myself the sounds were nothing but the machines making noise. But as nervous as I was, I was certain someone was down here with me. But who? And why were they down here after school? I stayed sitting on the floor behind the bar for what seemed like forever. Finally, I mustered up my courage to look over the bar to see if anyone was there. I did so, and I slowly inched my way up to the top of the bar. No one was in the bowling alley. It was just me. I decided to quickly wrap up my job and go home. I did not feel very safe down in the bowling alley, so I did just that, and I left for home. In the following weeks afterward, I was always nervous about going down to the bowling alley. I didn't tell anyone else because I was afraid. Afraid they'd think I was making the whole thing up, or that I was a big baby. 
I did, however, tell my little brothers about the encounter. They think it's a ghost who lurks around the school. Even after that, I still worked down in the bowling alley, and eventually, I forgot about the event. I got used to working down there. My second encounter happened not too long ago. It occurred around mid-January this year. My dad's side of the family was hosting a big birthday party at the bowling alley for all the January birthdays my dad's side had. Believe me, there are a lot of birthdays. They included my dad, two of his sisters, my cousin's daughter, and a few family members who sadly moved on. The party ended on a great note, and everyone had a good time. I made sure to save some treats for my girlfriend, who couldn't make it. My dad, mom, my brothers, and I were locking up the bowling alley and cleaning up. Before we left, my dad asked me to turn off the workshop lights. I went to the workshop and turned off the lights. Immediately, it got pitch black in the workshop. I suddenly began to feel a bad feeling in my stomach a feeling of pure terror and danger all around me. I felt like someone was watching me. I could feel that there was something bad right behind me, and if I didn't get the heck out of the workshop, I would be doomed. Adrenaline pumped through my body, and I went into high gear. I ran as fast as I could out of the workshop and burst out of the curtain as I made a break for the exit. When I made it to the exit, I made the mistake of looking behind me. Why I didn't keep running was beyond me, though, but I felt like I had to see what I was being threatened by. What I saw, it almost made me scream like a terrified schoolgirl. Behind the curtain, I escaped from... this thing. I could immediately tell this thing wasn't human, though it did look like it. It was partially behind the curtains, so I couldn't see it entirely, but I did get a good look at it. I wish I didn't look, though. It was around four or five feet tall. It had gray skin that had a reflective look to it, and its body structure resembled that of a person. I couldn't see its face, but I could make out what looked like horns on its head. I booked it out of the bowling alley, locked up, and we left. Those were my experiences. Now, these next two experiences are from my youngest brother. Let's call him Rocky. 3. This experience of his happened four years ago, when he and my mom were down in the bowling alley cleaning, since I wasn't able to clean that day. Rocky was cleaning the bowling lane's approach when he heard a sound in the workshop. He thought that the machines were making noise like they tend to do, so he brushed it off and continued cleaning the approach. Thirty seconds later, Rocky heard the sound in the workshop again. This time, Rocky heard it twice. He called Mom and told her where the noises were coming from. Mom said it was probably the machines making noise, just as I had thought. Rocky agreed with what Mom had said, so he continued sweeping the approach. Later, Rocky put the dust mop away and got the dustpan and brush to clean up all the dirt he collected. Just then, Rocky heard the noise again. Being curious, Rocky went into the workshop and turned on the lights. When he did, he didn't see anything bizarre. 
So once more he shrugged it off and went back to work, but kept the lights on in the workshop just in case. Later, Rocky was changing the score sheets on the metal scoring tables when he saw a shadowy figure move around from within the workshop from the gap between lanes two and three where the ball return was located. Rocky went back into the workshop to see what was going on. When he arrived at the black curtain, he started hearing footsteps coming towards him from behind the machines. Rocky went into the workshop, determined to know what was making the noise. When he entered, he caught a glimpse of a dark figure standing at the machine of lane six. The figure was as black as the curtain, about four feet tall, slightly shorter than Rocky. Its hands had long nails, and the hands stuck out to the side as it stood perfectly still. Other than that, Rocky could not make out any other details. He then ran out of the workshop and told my mom what he saw. Mom thought he was joking around and didn't pay much mind to his claims. The two of them finished working quickly and went back home. 4. The second encounter Rocky had was with my second brother this past January. We'll call him Trevor. Rocky and Trevor came down to the bowling alley to clean. They had the lights of the workshop turned on while they worked, because if anything happened in the workshop, they could catch it immediately. At the end of their cleaning job, Rocky and Trevor were turning off the lights in the bowling alley. When they turned off the lights in the workshop, Rocky and Trevor saw a white ball of light which the guys on Ghost Adventures would refer to as anomalies. They floated up to the ceiling, and then slowly descended back down. Then Rocky and Trevor saw the face of a male. The face looked distorted, as if my brothers were looking at this man's face on a badly rendered, low-quality YouTube video. Since the face was distorted, Rocky and Trevor couldn't make out much detail. The face looked at them and then launched up into the ceiling and vanished. Rocky and Trevor ran out of the bowling alley, locked up the place, and went home. Finally, here are three encounters my brother Trevor had. The first he had was when he was in P.E. class two years ago. Five. At the time, the school's gym floor was being sanded down so P.E. took place in the basement in the meeting hall. Trevor was in P.E. in the hall with his class. They were playing a game similar to Freeze Tag, except when you get frozen, you go into a circle until someone who hasn't been frozen comes and unfreezes you and everyone else in the circle. Trevor had just gotten tagged, and he went into the circle. Shortly after arriving in the circle, Trevor's best friend, Drew, got tagged, so he and Trevor sat there together facing a wooden door. When Trevor and Drew were unfrozen, they escaped the circle and made their escape past the wooden door. When they arrived at the door, they heard knocking and footsteps coming from the other side. At first, Trevor and Drew suspected it was the school's janitors doing some cleaning, since the place was really dirty and wasn't the first place the janitors ever cleaned in the school. Since the door had a bunch of small holes on it for ventilation, Drew and Trevor decided to take a look at what was making the racket behind the door. When they looked down through the holes, Drew and Trevor didn't see anything down there, but the lights were on. 
they suspected the janitors were a lot deeper in the basement than they originally thought. So Trevor and Drew continued on with their game like nothing ever happened. Eventually, the gym teacher said it was time to clean up and go back upstairs since the class would be over soon. There was a hula hoop left behind by the wooden door from another class, so Trevor and Drew decided to go get it. When they arrived at the door where the hula hoop was, Trevor bent down and grabbed it. Before taking off, he decided to get one last look through the holes of the door to see if the janitors were down there. When Trevor looked through the hole, he saw a dark figure standing at the bottom of the staircase. Trevor jumped back in surprise, telling Drew to take a look for himself. Drew did so, and he saw the same thing my brother Trevor saw. Creeped out, Drew picked up the hula hoop, and he and Trevor hightailed it out of the hall with the rest of the class. 6. The second encounter took place a week after the first. Trevor and Drew were having recess at the time, but they were in the boys' bathroom on the second floor of the school doing their business. Drew had just walked out of the bathroom while Trevor was still washing his hands. As he finished up, Trevor grabbed a paper towel from the paper towel dispenser, dried his hands, and tossed it into the trash bin. Above the trash bin was a mirror. So when Trevor happened to look into the mirror after disposing of his used paper towel, he saw the same black figure he and Drew saw a week prior. The figure stood in the corner of the bathroom near the radiator, with its head looking down. After five seconds staring at this figure, the figure lifted its head. Trevor was in shock as he stared into its eyes. They were the blackest black eyes he had ever seen. The eyes had tiny red pupils in the center. Aside from those eyes, Trevor couldn't make out anything else, since the rest of the figure was just all black. Trevor turned around to see the figure, but when he did, there was nothing there. No traces of what Trevor had previously seen was there. Confused, Trevor looked back into the mirror. He saw the figure again, but now it was standing right behind him. He could see the color drain from his own face, though, as he stood frozen in place in front of the mirror. Now that the figure was this close to him, Trevor could make out more details. It had a mouth full of sharp, gleaming white teeth, and it was smiling at him. He said it was the creepiest and scariest visual he'd ever seen. He ran out of the bathroom and back to recess where Drew had been waiting for him. 7. The third and final encounter took place three months after the second encounter. Neither Drew nor Trevor had seen a trace of the creepy figures since. This encounter took place at Drew's house, where Trevor was spending the night. Around one in the morning, Drew and Trevor were playing Halo 4 and Xbox One in the living room. Drew had to go upstairs to use the bathroom, and Trevor was left alone downstairs. When Drew went up the stairs, he warned Trevor about the hunchback creature he'd seen around his house lately. This seemingly came out of nowhere for Trevor. So he was creeped out by this, but at the same time felt as if Drew was trying to mess with him. About a minute later, Trevor started hearing footsteps coming from the kitchen. He had a feeling that Drew might have been telling the truth about this creature, so he decided to go check it out to see what it really was. 
Coincidentally, there was a flashlight on the dining room table that was approximately five feet away. He grabbed it, turned it on, and entered the kitchen. Lo and behold, he saw what appeared to be the shadow of some sort of hunchbacked person. It looked very similar to Quasimodo from the Hunchback of Notre Dame. It went into the room where Drew kept his dog and a bearded dragon. He followed the shadow into the room, but he no longer saw it, as if it had disappeared. All that was there was the dog sleeping and the bearded dragon that had its eyes glued in Trevor's direction. At that moment, Trevor knew that the bearded dragon was either looking at him, or something behind him. He turned around, but luckily he saw nothing there. No more than a second later, Trevor heard a pan hit the floor in the kitchen. He looked into the kitchen and saw this shadow again, looking straight at him. He slowly started to approach the shadow, but the shadow faded away and turned into another anomaly flying into the basement. At that moment, Trevor found Drew looking into the dining room, his mouth gaping open in shock. Trevor asked if he'd seen that, to which Drew replied, Heck yeah, I did. With that, the two of them went back to the living room and continued to play games to keep their minds off of this situation. Trevor said every time he goes over to Drew's house now, he and Drew are always on high alert for that shadow. Those are all the encounters my brothers and I have experienced recently. From listening to my two brothers' experiences and my own, I know that the paranormal does exist, and it changed my view of the world. There are things in this world we can't explain, and I can't find an explanation for what my brothers and I saw. One thing I can say is that I completely believe in the paranormal now. Be safe out there, everyone. You never know what supernatural danger awaits you until it finds you. Two Paranormal Experiences in Nevada From Philip S. This is a collection of weird experiences I had in Nevada. They still creep me out to this day, but talking about them more often helps me get through them. 1. My Sister's House It was spring break of 2014. I was 16 at the time and a junior in high school. I was visiting my sister and her family for the week. She lives in Tonopah with her husband and three kids. It's three hours north of Las Vegas. Tonopah is a very small town and basically in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by mountains. My sister's house was in a small suburb-like neighborhood, where each house is almost touching each other. The first couple of days went well and without incident, but one night, it was just me in the house. My sister and her husband were on a date at the bar, and the kids were with their biological father. I was still tired from jet lag, so I went to sleep. I texted my sister to see if I could have one of their pistols under the pillow just in case. Being alone way out here, it would make me feel a lot safer. She said it was fine, so I grabbed a Glock. Sure, we were surrounded by neighbors, but I felt more protected, and plus the neighbors weren't home. I put the gun under the pillow. They didn't have an extra room, so I slept on the couch. 
The way I slept is that I had my back facing the living room and my face against the cushion. There's still a little bit of light outside by then. I was exhausted, though, so I didn't care. My sister had a few reptiles, so she had their lamps on at night. So when it gets dark, there would still be some light in the living room. I woke up suddenly in the middle of the night to a chill, and I started to smell something strong. It wasn't putrid like rotting meat, but more like cologne. I turned and saw something that made my eyes widen. There was a tall, humanoid, black figure, and it was leaning down a few feet away from me, just staring at me. It had no eyes, mouth, or nose, no facial features, not even hair. It looked like someone in a black morph suit. The lamps didn't reflect any light off of it, either. I grabbed the pistol and pointed it in its direction, but by then it was already gone somehow. My heart was pounding like I had just survived the worst panic attack. It took me a while to get back to sleep. I didn't see it any more that week, but I did see these white orbs and a few shadows out of the corner of my eye. From time to time, I still smelled that weird scent. On my last day, I heard Greg talking to someone in his room. I went over and asked who he was talking to, and he said, Mr. Black. I asked who Mr. Black was, but what he answered made me question myself. He said, Mr. Black's a tall, dark man. I don't know his name, so I gave him one. I think I know exactly who he's talking about. Thankfully, they moved to a new house a few years after. Screw that place and Mr. Black. The Mizpah Hotel The Mizpah Hotel is located in Tonopah, Nevada. If you're a fan of ghost adventures, then you'll know the place, since it was featured in a few episodes. I was working as a dishwasher in the restaurant portion of the hotel in the summer of 2017. I was having troubles at home, so I temporarily moved to my sister's new house, until things cooled down. On one of the nights, it got busy, and when it closed, there were a ton of dishes left. It was only me and the front desk attendant in the building. I went to the basement and received some towels, and on my way up, I heard a ping sound. I turned around in shock and didn't move. Ping, ping, ping. It sounded exactly like a pickaxe hitting rocks. It stopped as quickly as it came. So I got out of the basement and continued my job. Half an hour later, I went to the plate rack to drop off some plates when something caught my eye at the doorway leading to the restaurant. It was a woman in a red dress. I was paralyzed for the moment, dropping the plates I was carrying, which proceeded to shatter all over the floor. Shaking like I was in the south during the winter, I could see that she was looking into my eyes. She had a face like she wanted to say something, but couldn't, or didn't know how. After a few seconds, she disappeared like a mist. I cleaned up the mess and clocked out in a hurry. I was so terrified. I didn't want to stay a second longer. Turns out she's one of the residential ghosts they named the Lady in Red. 
I ended up losing that job because I didn't finish the dishes that night. I was bummed out, as it was hard enough to find a job in a small town, but I understood. That hotel is really freaky, but an interesting place. Those are my experiences in Nevada, and to this day I'm still in disbelief with these events. I don't think I'll ever forget them. Cursed paintings, ghosts in the desert, and demons in the bowling alley. Man, what other bizarre and creepy stories do you guys have in store for me next? I can't wait to find out. So send those stories right to me at darkstories.org. And I'll just be sitting here, trying not to jump off a bridge instead of doing my taxes. Good night. If you enjoyed this episode of Darkness Prevails, be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe. And if you've got a story, as I said, send it over to darkstories.org. If you're curious to know which of the stories I read today are my favorite, I absolutely loved the cursed painting story. The descriptions of the paintings were creepy and it was unique enough to keep my attention throughout. Anyway, if you want to support the show, check the links in the description. Until next time, here are the credits to my amazing patrons who continue to support us. Remember, stay safe out there, and stay creepy, because this world is a strange one. Some say giants live in the woods. These giants live lives of caution away from human eyes. But from time to time, folks claim to have run-ins with these fur-covered behemoths. In North America, we call them Bigfoot and Sasquatch. And most of the time, they seem to want to be left alone. But some encounters portray them as angry, hungry, and pure nightmare fuel. Enjoy these stories about Bigfoot and other strange creatures seen in the woods. And remember, hold your breath when you're in the woods and you start to feel those all-too-heavy footsteps. Real quick, if you have a scary story, if you've ever seen a strange creature that terrified you, if you believe you've witnessed a haunting, a glitch in the Matrix, or something you can't explain, Send me your story at darkstories.org, because I'd love to narrate it. Now, let's begin. Bigfoot in Mexico, from Little Mexico I was born and raised in California, and this happened in Mexico. I always go to Mexico with my three other cousins, Abel, Isaac, and Dimian. Along with my aunts, uncles, and our grandpa, we go yearly every summer, from June to August. We would stay at a ranch in pretty much the middle of nowhere. When you came down the main road, you would see a house on your right, and about a couple hundred yards more and another house. Same thing with three more houses to go. Then we had our horse stables, and then there was that hill going up towards what I'd call a desert, with a bunch of dead trees and cacti. In the middle of this was a big pond with nothing but water. We had cows on that property, too. We called it El Durazno, which means the beach, 
because if you looked at it from above, it was shaped like one. Now, the day started normal. We ate, fed the horses, messed around for a bit. Then we all got the idea to go to El Drasno and stay a night, see what happens. We got ourselves a tent, some blankets, some dried-up meat like chicken and beef, a lighter and matches, a flashlight and marshmallows. Then we set off around five, because we knew it would be dark by about eight. El Drasno was about twenty minutes away. We made it there at around 5.30. Once we got there, we decided on a place to make camp and began to put things down. I'd say overall we had a pretty cozy spot. Our next task was to get wood and sticks for the fire. By this time, it was about six. So two of us stayed at camp and two of us went to go get sticks. While we were getting them, I got this feeling in my body. It was like I was being watched. Abel told me if I felt something like that, it meant something was wrong. I told him, yeah, it's like we're not alone out here. He replied, I don't know about that, but let's try not to worry about it too much. We made it back five minutes later with a bunch of sticks, an amount we thought would be enough until we fell asleep. We made our fire and decided to eat our dried-up meat, when we all began to hear a cow just making some strange noises. It didn't sound like your typical, regular moo from a cow. It was more like something was hurting it. The sound of it still gives me goosebumps when I remember. At that moment, Dimian said, in a little bit of a concerned voice, What in the world? Sounds like a cow when you give them their vaccines. Sounds painful. Isaac said we should check out what's happening. I was already pretty shaken up by this. We went out to investigate, and after a few minutes, the sounds had died down. But we did manage to find the cow. What we saw was horrifying. There lay a dead cow in the pasture, with all of its stomach ripped open. The head itself was fine, but the neck looked to be bent too much to the side and the stomach part was ugh, just disgusting. There was a rancid smell in the air, too. It was just a mess, and we were all terrified. Abel said, I think we need to leave. But Isaac said he thought it would be a smarter idea to stay a bit longer. We said okay, and stayed. None of us ate any more meat, we were all disgusted and had no appetite. A couple of hours passed by, but nothing else happened so far. We were just talking, messing around, trying to forget what we'd seen. Another two hours passed by, and it's about midnight or so. We're all ready to get into the tent. We lay down next to each other, and all of us pass out pretty quickly. About ten minutes or so later, we wake up hearing this horrible sound. It sounded like a woman's scream, but distorted. I jolted up and asked, what on God's earth was that? Hoping someone had an answer, but knowing they wouldn't. Isaac once again wanted to go check it out. He grabbed a flashlight and begins to go outside, and we follow him closely and slowly behind. We're scanning our surroundings, 
Lindemian says, in a shaky voice, Guys, I think I see something. He pointed towards a patch of dead trees. Isaac focused the flashlight in that direction. And what I saw then, it'll be engraved in my mind until I die. There was this tall, hairy thing. It looked similar to a person, but there was hair covering its entire body, and it was far too tall to be a normal man. It was maybe eight feet tall, and looked really strong, as if he could pull a tree from the ground if he wanted to. When we looked closer, we saw stains of red covering its mouth, which we assumed was blood. Its eyes were brown or hazel in color. It saw us watching it, and looked back, showing its teeth in a way that reminded me of a smile. We all booked it back to the ranch after that. We left our things, but at that point we didn't care. Once we got back to the closest house, which was Abel's, we all rushed inside. We made a lot of noise, which made my aunt and uncle wake up. At first they were mad, but then my aunt asked why it looked like we all saw a ghost. We explained. She told us we just needed to get some rest, and we could discuss it in the morning. But I don't think any of us went to sleep that night. When morning did come, we went to go eat at our grandpa's house. In Spanish, he said to us, You guys seem pretty quiet today. We told him the story, too, but he actually had a positive response. He believed us and said, You guys finally met him. And he drank a bit of his coffee. We were intrigued and wanted to know what he was talking about. So we asked him what he meant. So he told us about an encounter he had with the same kind of creature when he went to go count cows one day. He called it El Martin. He said that it only came around when it smelled blood. The following story contains violence against a pet. Bigfoot Night Stalker From Jessica G. When I was about six years old, I lived in Southern California on a ranch, miles away from any town. We were renting from some of my mom's sister's friends, who lived in the main ranch house a few acres away. My siblings and I were so excited to be moving there, with all the chickens, horses, goats, etc., because we moved a lot and didn't get much excitement as kids. But from the day we moved into our double-wide manufactured home, I felt something was wrong. We had a little black lab puppy we called Sugar. It had only been a few weeks, and she'd gone missing. We looked for days for Sugar, but still did not see a sign of her. One evening, we were playing outside when my mom called us for dinner. As my siblings headed for the door, I told her, hold on, because I was catching a frog. The frog I was after hopped into the wooded area around the horse stables, so I followed in hot pursuit. I froze in my tracks at the tree line, though. Something felt weird, like something was there with me, something big and something malevolent. I began to hear twigs crunching. Whatever it was, it was headed my way. I didn't stick around to find out what it was, so I ran as fast as my six-year-old legs could carry me. 
When I made it into the house, my mom told me to quit messing around and to go wash up for dinner. After dinner, my aunt and cousins came over for movie night and a sweepover. We were having a great time, eating popcorn, talking through the movie, pillow fights, just the regular sleepover stuff. My mom and aunt were getting us ready to help make cookies when the power just went out. Being kids, we freaked out, but my mom and aunt lit some candles and did their best to keep us calm. My aunt went to go check the fuse box outside, while my mom stayed with us inside. The next thing I see is my aunt running into the house, slamming the door behind her in a panic. My stomach knotted up. I'd never seen an adult so scared. Something was wrong. I suddenly felt afraid of whatever made my aunt so terrified. She was visibly shaking. She pulled my mom aside and whispered something to her. Then my mom ran to the window and gasped. I was petrified by then, but I wanted to know what was out there. I willed my frozen self to move, and I slowly walked over to the kitchen window. The first thing I noticed when I got to the window was the horrid smell, like a garbage fire with a hint of wet dog. It was gut-churning. I can still smell it when I just think about it. Then I saw it, that malevolent figure staring right at my house. It was a massive seven feet tall at least. I rubbed my eyes because I had to be seeing things, right? My mom shooed me away from the window, telling us all to go gather in the bedroom. I was horrified the whole time, sure that whatever was out there would come inside the house. My siblings and cousins were talking about it. Maybe it was a monster, they said. Maybe it was a killer. It could have been, but I know whatever I saw wasn't anything nice. We fell asleep after some time. I woke up early the next morning just as the sun was filling the windows. I got up to go see if my mom was awake. Sure enough, she was sitting at the kitchen table with my aunt, drinking some coffee. Both of them were silent, fixated on the window. I broke their gaze when I asked what was outside last night. They both looked at each other, then at me. Then my mom said, It was just a bear, honey. She was clearly lying. I knew it wasn't a bear. It had hands, not paws. It had a nose, not a snout. It was standing completely upright. It could have been a really hairy, tall man. Maybe. I wanted to get a look at where it was standing the night prior, so feeling brave with the sunlight out, I got dressed, then headed out the front door. But I nearly screamed in shock when I opened the door to find my puppy's lifeless body on the porch. She looked like she had been squeezed or hugged to death. I ran to my room, crying. We gave her a proper funeral that day. I don't know if what I saw that night was Bigfoot, but I have no other explanation. We moved shortly after, so thankfully, that was my only experience with what I would claim to be Bigfoot. Hen Shack Shaking Bigfoot from Mick J. 8492
This happened in 2003, during the summer. It was my eleventh birthday. It was dark out, and my family had a cookout for dinner. Now, we had a hinge shack located northwest to my aunt's house. To the north, there was a small stone-stepped slope to my grandparents' house. They were roughly about fifty yards apart. The pin had been abandoned for several years at that point, due to it getting broken into. Plus, my uncle claimed that he kept seeing something hairy, something human-shaped, running around in the woods around there. It always had this awful stench surrounding it, said it smelled like a wet dog and corpse mixed together. So, back to my story. We had a fire going in the front yard. We lived in a forested area in Oklahoma, by Lake Tinkiller. We were singing along to the sound of the radio, playing some classic rock. Around nine o'clock, we heard a bang on the shack, which was out of the range of our security lights. Besides, we figured it was a branch. There were eight of us out there. I was continuing to enjoy the tunes and some snacks, but more banging came from the shack. Soon it was even louder than the radio. We got up and went to investigate, my older aunt first turning off the radio so we could hear better. My youngest cousin went to get a flashlight, and my brother got his rifle. The banging lasted another three minutes, and when it stopped, we all saw the most terrifying sight. Eyes shining red, reflecting the flashlight beam. A face that was covered by its left arm. A creature, tall and hairy. The sound it made next scared the bejesus out of me. It was a sort of loud howl that shook me to my core and made my chest vibrate. We had to cover our ears from it. The creature was banging on the shack until someone fired their weapon into the air, causing it to run back into the woods. Though the vibrations from its footsteps and howling could still be felt for a few minutes after. After this, we tore everything down and brought it back inside, ending our fun time early. The family went back to their separate houses. Those that remained at our house slept in the dining room floor. We were so scared we placed couches blocking the entryway doors. We didn't hear or see anything the rest of the night, but my family would encounter this creature in the area again. The place I loved is now the place I fear. From Natalie. Last Monday, my grandpa called me and asked me to dog set for him on Saturday, so he could take my grandma on an all-day shopping trip to celebrate her 70th birthday. Of course, I agreed to help. Their house is located in the middle of nowhere about half an hour from our town, and as desolate as it may be, I loved visiting them. In fact, me and my brother spent a big part of our childhoods at my grandparents' home. I remember playing in their big garden, exploring the nearby forest, eating tons of grandma's home cooking. I parked my car in front of the red little house, and as soon as I stepped out, I was welcomed by Bella, my grandparents' mastiff. She jumped on my leg, trying to lick my face, but her short legs did not get her all the way up. Despite her small stature, she stacked with muscles. When I got into the house, Grandma gave me all the instructions we needed, 
and Grandpa gave me the key to the house. He reminded me to not forget to lock the door when I went out. I waved them goodbye from the porch as they drove away in their old gray car. I locked the door behind me and opened the fridge to see what Grandma had left for me. I found a nice-looking chicken salad, and on the counter there was some newly baked cookies, too. Nice. I took some salad out and sat down on the couch. Bella jumped up beside me, laying her head in my lap. For the next four hours, I watched reality shows on TV and ate a lot of cookies. Bella was beginning to get restless. I put her on her leash and grabbed one of my grandma's warmer jackets to borrow. Outside, the sky was cloudy, and the wind was blowing pretty hard. There were two different paths I could take. One led out to a bigger road with farming land on both sides of the road, and the other one was a smaller gravel road that led into the forest. I felt that the forest path would be much nicer, as the trees would block out the harsh winds, and that road was not as heavy with traffic as the other one. I put in my AirPods and started one of my playlists, and I began to walk. I hadn't turned up the music as high as I usually do, so that I'd be able to hear if a car was approaching. Bella walked in front of me, bounding from side to side, trying to get a smell of everything. The road was a bit muddy, but otherwise it was perfect. I loved taking walks, and it was always nicer with a companion that liked it as much as I did. I was gazing into the forest, almost searching for something, but at the same time not wanting to find anything. After some time, I did see something. I tried to focus on it and distinguish it from the rest of the forest. A small tingling sensation started to go up my spine as I was trying to make out what I was looking at. There was an elk, a stone's throw away. I could only see the head of the big animal sticking up from the dense bushes and trees it was surrounded by. The tingling disappeared as I looked on at the big creature. It was a female elk. It had no horns, and it stared straight at me as I walked past her. I wasn't scared of her, but held eye contact until I was further away. I was really surprised that Bella had not noticed the elk at all, as she tracked on, seemingly distracted by another scent. We walked on. I began to hear the sound of a car engine getting closer, so I stopped on the side of the road, telling Bella to sit and wait for the car to pass. The car almost flew past us. I didn't recognize it or the driver, but they were clearly out on a joyride. I gave Bella some dog candy and continued walking deeper into the woods. I was thinking about that car. I know that I can't be mad because, if I'm being honest, I have done the same thing before, more than once. This road is pretty fun to drive fast on. Suddenly, a cracking sound stole my attention. I stopped in my tracks and took out my AirPods to listen more closely. I noticed that Bella had locked up, as if she was paralyzed. I'd never seen her that way, but I could not see anything else out of the ordinary yet. The sound had come from our left. There was a small creek and stream over there that led along the road in front of us, but there was a line of trees between us and the creek that made visibility not so great. I tried to forget it, and as I started to walk again, Bella broke from her paralysis and just started running. I wasn't prepared for this, so I lost my balance and fell to the ground. Thankfully, I didn't let go of the leash, 
and as I lay on the cold gravel, Bella walked up to me and licked my face. I set myself up and got to the side of the road. I brushed the gravel and dirt from my clothes. My hands were a bit beat up, and I had hit my head, too. I stood up, and just as I was going to turn around to walk home, as I did not feel like continuing anymore, I felt myself fall to the ground again, but this time, I went black for a moment after hitting my head once more. When I came to, it wasn't Bella who pulled me to the ground. I remembered immediately feeling a hard push on my back and something being on me. The light that found its way between the treetops felt like daggers in my eyes as I tried to open them. I had a raging headache, and I felt like I was moving. I was moving. I saw the trees passing by me, and I panicked. I looked up and saw something dragging me by the feet into the forest, but I could not see Bella. The thing I was looking at was tall and slender. It almost looked like a person, but the skin was gray and looked to be wet. I screamed and started to kick the thing to try to get loose, and it worked. The creature looked surprised. The only thing I saw before I began to run back to the road were the thing's eyes. They were the deepest, most dreadful color of black I had ever seen. I heard it running behind me as I tried to get back to the road. Soon I felt a hard tug on my hair, and once again I felt myself fall to the ground. This time it dragged me by the hair. This hurt, bad. I recognized that it was dragging me toward the creek. I clawed and punched and kicked as hard as I could, but I did not get loose this time. I suddenly felt the ice-cold embrace of water as the creature dragged me into the creek. It took its large gray hands and pushed my head under the water. I desperately tried to get away from the grips of it, but I could feel the air disappearing from my lungs and my strength not being enough. I gave up. I was going to die here, and now my grandparents were going to come home to an empty home and likely blame themselves. Then the thing released me from its grip. I gasped for air as I came up from the water. I took myself up on the land and watched the animalistic fight taking place in the creek. Bella had launched her sharp teeth in the thing's neck and it tried desperately to get her off. I tried to catch my breath, and I stood up, yelling for Bella to come to me. I began to run back to the road. Luckily, she listened and came up beside me, and together we booked it back to the house. I heard the thing scream behind me as we ran, but I didn't look back. Bella ran beside me all the way. I knew she was much faster than me, especially with me in my dazed, hurt state. But she matched my speed instead. She was taking care of me. We made it back to the house, locking down the doors and windows. I stood in the kitchen and looked into the path of the forest through the window to see if we had been followed. I swallowed hard when I noticed it watching from the tree line. Its skin seemed to change colors a bit, a tint of deep red had tinged its skin.
It looked angry, but it also looked weak. I'd guess Bella got her pretty good. As of writing this, I don't know what I'm going to tell my grandparents when they get home. They may not believe the truth, and I can't say nothing because the thing might attack them if they're not prepared. But they're definitely going to know something happened when they see the shape that I'm in. Wish me luck, everyone. Lurking Creature from the Woods From Scaredy Tom When I was a kid, I had two amazing friends, Josh and Philip, with whom I did practically everything. We were basically inseparable, spending our carefree childhood days playing outside, possibly every ball game there exists, too. Occasionally, we camped in the backyard, or when we were tired of the outside world, we just had some laughs, watching our many favorite cartoons on TV at each other's houses. One day, our little group went outside to our favorite grass field that was freshly cut and literally made for a couple of 1v1 football matches. We loved to spend time there, as it was just a couple dozen meters away from our homes and was always so peaceful, so noiseless, thanks to the nearby woods that embraced it. I think we met around six that day. We stayed there for what felt like several hours. It was getting dark, and our energy was almost depleted from running around and having fun with the ball. Nevertheless, we agreed in unison to stay a bit longer. Josh came up with a new game. All three of us could play at the same time, too. There would be one goalkeeper, and the other two guys will try to score goals. The one who scores more after a certain amount of time is the winner. And so we made our improvised goalpost that faced the old forest road from available materials, like rocks and fallen branches. The game was actually pretty fun, for a quick idea. But as it got darker and darker, with shadows completely swallowing the forest in front of us, I just barely noticed something in it that I found rather unsettling and strange. At first, it looked like a remnant of a sawed tree, but as my eyes adapted more to the approaching night, it started to resemble a crouched silhouette. I tried to rationalize it, and although disturbed, I disregarded it as just a game of forest shadows. I told myself, they're just shadows in the dark. In the end, the forest can be a very scary place to be around at night. I tried to calm myself, but I could not fully shake the feeling of being watched. My two friends have probably not noticed this thing either. They continued playing, having the same amount of fun as before. So I kept this worry to myself. I didn't want to look like some scared sissy to them. It was my turn to go to the goalpost and be the goalkeeper, but this also meant that I would be the one closest to the woods, and I'd have to put my back to the shadowy figure. Unwillingly, I stepped into the goalpost. I could almost instantly feel the awful, terrifying sensation of being closely watched, of being targeted, analyzed. Now that I was closer... I could hear a subtle cracking of fallen leaves coming from it. There was nothing but grass in our field, so I was sure it was coming from the woods. 
My heart was racing. I felt my legs getting weaker, and my palms were lubricated with sweat. Safe was the opposite of what I was feeling in the position I was in. If something charged at me from my blind spot, it would very likely be my end. I could hear how the leaves snapped again. Then, to my horror, I heard a heavy, painful-sounding breathing coming from my right side. I felt so scared. I'd never felt such fear before. It was cold and had a sting to it. It was unbearable. Wanting to know what's there, knowing that something certainly is out there, now only a couple of meters away, eyeing all of us down, coming ever closer. I couldn't bear it anymore. I somehow gathered all the courage I had and turned around to face what was moving in the shadows. I took a few steps back and froze instantly in terror. The shadowy figure I disregarded earlier as a remnant of trees had now moved a good meter or two from its original spot. Whatever it was, it wasn't just a mere tree. My eyes still couldn't believe it. My friends finally noticed that something was wrong. Tom, what are you doing? To this day, I'm not sure how they didn't see it before, but I began pointing in the direction of that thing that was surely staring back at me. Look, there's something there, I whimpered, almost as if the words could not leave my mouth. I started to step back, slowly, to where my friends were, and all three of us were now looking at the thing, trying to desperately identify what in the world it could be. I think both Josh and Philip still didn't consider it to be anything out of the ordinary. Heck, even I didn't know what it was lurking out there. That was until it let out a crushingly loud groan, filled with anger or annoyance. I think I swallowed my last breath as the creature loudly announced its presence. I stood there, unable to perceive what was happening with my friends. I was only able to watch the creature now slowly standing up. It made a few small steps towards us. What we saw then gives me nightmares. This thing must have been seven feet tall. It was humanoid in shape with huge yellow eyes. Eyes that appeared to be popping out of its skull. It was extremely skinny. I could clearly see the outline of bones and a ribcage that was almost piercing through the metallic gray skin. It also had strangely long arms with muscles hanging on the bones. They hung even lower than its knees. But the most terrifying thing was its grin. The grin hinted at anger. It didn't want to be seen, but we had spotted it. It was almost sadistically, angrily happy to be coming closer to us, if that makes sense. Its mouth was full of sharp teeth. I wanted to scream. I wanted to call out for help or run away, but I could not move an inch. My body wouldn't listen. I felt a cold sweat on my back. I just wanted to be home, to be safe. But this nightmare of a creature was staring at me, fully paralyzing me with those huge, abnormal eyes. The worst thoughts began to fill my mind. Is it going to kill me? Is it going to slaughter my friends? Will they only find shreds of our bodies after this? Will there be anything left at all? I didn't want to die, not in this terrifying, cruel way, 
not this early. My train of thought was disturbed as the creature before our eyes dropped to all fours and approached us. This must have been an impulse of self-preservation to our shaking teen bodies, because we finally managed to run away screaming as loud as our lungs were capable of, leaving our jumpers and the ball behind. I remember how I ran, as quickly as I could despite the tiredness from playing all day. I saw how Josh ran beside me, and I heard loud panting, which must have come from Philip who was behind us. We managed to make it to the backyard doors of Josh's house, and as we all crawled in, Philip slammed the door behind us. Only then did we look out behind us. The creature was nowhere to be seen, but we heard a loud bang coming from the backyard. Perhaps it was a warning to us to never come back. This prompted us to run to Josh's parents, who angrily looked at all three of us. They were sure that we were behind all the ruckus, we tried to explain what we saw, but we were greeted by general disbelief. They thought of it as excuses that would keep us from getting in trouble, so they didn't believe a word of it. Josh's father then agreed to take me and Philip home. We didn't have the courage to go alone. What kid would? I couldn't really sleep well that night. I was so scared that the thing would appear in my house. After all, it wasn't that far away that we'd seen it. The following day, I got a message from Josh, saying that his father went to that place to retrieve our belongings, the jumpers, the ball, only to find that they'd been shredded. He said we were lucky because it might have been a coyote or a bear that night, but we know better. It was something different, something evil. This was our first, but last, encounter with the creature. Possibly because we never went anywhere near that place again. To this day, I don't know what it could have been, and frankly, I'd rather not think about it. If you're enjoying a nice outdoor barbecue, or you're walking your little dog on a trail in the woods, Bigfoot and other nasty critters out in the woods might only see these opportunities as snack time. So hold your dogs and your hot dogs close. You never know what is out there and how hungry it is. Good night. If you enjoyed this episode of Darkness Prevails, be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe. If you have a scary story involving the supernatural, weird creatures, glitches in reality, and more, send me your story at darkstories.org because I'd love to narrate it. If you want to support the show, check the links in the description. Until next time, here are the credits to my amazing patrons who continue to donate. Stay safe out there, and stay creepy, because this world is a strange one. Whether you're walking, driving, or partying on some old trails in the backwoods or national parks, you'd better be careful. Old trails are simply man's attempt at carving a path through the wild, and more often than not, those paths become forgotten, lost, retaken by nature in often horrifying ways. 
Don't let the darker, weirder side of nature devour you, just so you can have a few minutes of fresh air and alone time. These are trail horror stories. Remember, you can have your scary experiences narrated. Just send your story to us at darkstories.org. Now, let's begin. The Black Beast of Hell's Canyon From Mr. Smith Anyone who has ever been to the Rockies, and especially anyone who has ever lived there, will tell you that the mountains are colder than they look in all those old cowboy movies. It's a grasping cold that makes your whole body ache, unlike the dull, numbing cold of Michigan or Pennsylvania in the wintertime. And that cloying, gripping cold is precisely what I found myself experiencing on a dark October morning in Idaho, not quite two years ago. I've been a pretty avid hunter and outdoorsman for most of my life, and ever since I turned 18 I've been applying for the tag lottery in a few states out west, hoping for a chance to hunt some mountain goat. Finally, after several years of applying, my number came up in Idaho, and I soon received my tag in the mail. Unfortunately, due to a few scheduling conflicts, I couldn't go on my hunt until the last week of October, towards the end of the legal season, and well past the mid-weather days of August and September. Now, a hunt for mountain goats is one of the most physically demanding and skill-intensive endeavors a hunter can undertake in North America, a true adventure of a lifetime. Even in ideal conditions, you have to hike steep mountains, have a good set of binoculars and sharp eyes, know how to camp efficiently, and of course you need to be a crack shot. Late in the season, such a hunt becomes even more strenuous, due to the shorter hours of daylight and the more hostile weather, not to mention the fact a lot of local predators are in overdrive, trying to bulk up before the lean winter months. However, I wasn't about to let a little bit of cold wind and snow come between me and one of my ultimate dream hunts, so I immediately began planning. I was worried I'd have to make the cross-country drive, but luckily for me, an old college friend of mine was working as an engineer for a big cobalt mine in eastern Idaho, and he was willing to let me ship most of my gear to him ahead of time. Besides, he had an elk tag that he wanted to fill for the season so we could camp together and help one another hunt and scout. In the final few weeks leading up to my trip, I began checking the local news from the area I'd be hunting, just to keep an eye out for severe weather or other hazards. As a side effect, I got to see all the small-town news from western Idaho as well. Most of it was pretty mundane, but one story that caught my eye was the mysterious disappearances of two hunters who were last seen on a swath of public land, just southeast of where my buddy and I would be hunting. Of course, people go missing from big state parks and public hunting lands all the time, and they're usually found alive in just a few days, thanks to the hard work of trained professionals. Maybe they strayed too far from the trails and got lost, or maybe they took a tumble in some rocky ground and hurt themselves. Typically nothing too out of the ordinary. But occasionally, there are accidents and animal attacks that people don't walk away from, 
So I always pay attention to stories like that in order to prevent something similar from happening to me. The day of the big trip finally arrived, and after a long flight and an even longer drive, I found myself at a little hotel in a small town called Slate Creek, not too far from the huge tract of public land we would go hunting on. My friend arrived less than an hour later. We quickly got settled in before heading down the street to grab some supper at a local diner. We had a good time and caught up over dinner, but at one point I happened to look up at the TV on the wall, and the headline scrolling across the bottom of the screen ominously read, Missing Hunters Found Slain Near Hell's Canyon, Mountain Lion Attack Suspected. This definitely caught my attention, because a mountain lion won't usually attack more than one person, so there is safety in numbers. However, on the rare occasions that they do attack a group of more than one person, the attacks aren't usually fatal. A couple of fit hikers or a hunting party of grown adults is usually more than capable of forcing even a determined cougar to retreat. This is especially true for two hunters, who would certainly have been armed with rifles and probably would have been toting pistols around and skinning knives as well. Any mountain lion capable of mauling two heavily armed outdoorsmen to death simultaneously was certainly not one I wanted to meet. An adult cougar can have a territorial range of up to 300 square miles, and this put the region of our hunt easily within its patrol range, considering we'd be camped out and hunting right on the edge of Hell's Canyon. However, my buddy and I had talked previously about the possibility of running into predators during the hunt. We had packed accordingly, with him carrying a 10mm automatic and me lugging my 44 Magnum. Even still, we decided to take some extra precautions. To that end, we got up early the next day, and after I had enjoyed what would likely be my last hot shower for a week, we met up at a trading post in town which dealt in all sorts of camping and hunting gear. We picked up a few perimeter bells for our campsite, and we each bought a box of hard-cast bullets designed for penetrating thick and muscular hides of predators. They may kick you like a mule, but they certainly don't play around when it comes to stopping power. While in the trading post, we asked the owner, a quiet man of about fifty, with salt-and-pepper hair and skin weathered from decades of outdoorsmanship, if he had ever seen anything like the cougar attack that had been on the news last night. I was hoping he could give us some advice on protecting our camp, but what we got instead was far more unsettling. I've seen the wilderness out here kill a lot of people in a lot of ways, but it's been a long time since I saw anything as brutal as this. Usually if you find more than one person at a time that's been killed, it was the work of something walking on two legs, not four, if you catch my drift. Every now and then, a couple of hikers will walk up on a sow grizzly with cubs, and will find them all mangled up in a week or so. But bears always leave clear tracks behind, and it's not the right time of year for them to be raising cubs anyway. No, sir. The last time anything like this happened was about two decades back, when we had a whole rash of weird happenings. Everything from house cats and hens all the way up to prize-winning bulls were found gutted, mauled, chewed on, and otherwise turned into a fine red paste for nigh on a month. It sure put a damper on business around here, I'll tell you that much. 
The rangers said it was a cougar back then too, but I didn't believe them then any more than I do now. My buddy and I looked at one another, uneasily, before turning back to the store owner and asking, If it wasn't a cougar, then what was it? The man behind the counter simply grinned and continued his tale. Well, after a couple weeks of livestock getting mauled, some local ranchers decided to take matters into their own hands. They went out hunting one night and bagged themselves three of the biggest mountain lions anybody around here had ever seen. And when the rangers examined the cougars, they found that all three of them were related. You see, if a mother puma has more than one kit, she'll teach them all to hunt in the same way at the same time. The rangers were thinking that the mother of those three had brought them up hunting livestock, so that was all they knew. A couple of folks weren't so sure, though. One old-timer that lived up in the hills told stories of a behemoth cat that had been stalking the woods around his cabin, and it wasn't just some mountain lion, either. He said it stood taller than even the largest mountain lion, and its pelt was black as sin. This man had fought in two wars but said that this creature scared him stiff, and not two nights later, the worst incident of the whole string happened right here, in town. One of the rangers, some rookie who had just moved here from California, was walking back to the ranger station from the diner. Keep in mind, that's a walk of less than 300 yards, and the rest of the rangers at the station never saw him again. They didn't find anything left of that boy the next day, save for a slick of blood and his freshly shined shoes, left at the scene of the attack like he'd been plucked right up out of them. Not long after that, though, a group of rangers was seen sweeping the town and heading off into the wilderness, and from what I've heard, they followed that thing's tracks all the way up to an old silver mine back in the hills. None of the rangers have ever talked much about exactly what they saw up there, but several hikers in the area reported hearing a hail of gunfire right at dusk. Sure enough, the killings and maulings never happened again after that night. But I'll tell you what, if there's another one of those things out there roaming around the wilds now, then you can bet your bottom dollar I won't be sticking around to see how it works out this time around. It was a hell of a story, to be sure, and it took me some time to take it in. But it couldn't be true, right? Not all true. I mean, no cat that big and that aggressive could possibly remain hidden on public game land, I told myself. The two of us thanked the man for the info and paid for our ammo and supplies, and after that, we got on our way as quickly as we could. Our time was limited and listening to the man's story had put us a bit behind schedule. Our last stop on the way out of town was at the ranger station, to check in and inform the rangers of where we'd be and what we would be doing. There was only one officer on duty since it was so late in the season, so I figured we'd probably be able to get through the check-in pretty quickly, but as we answered his questions about our firearms and tags, I thought back to the outfitter's story. I asked the old ranger if there had been any mutilated animals found recently, or if there were any dangerous wildlife in the area that we should be aware of. After all, 
we would be camping back in the wilderness for close to a full week. The ranger froze for a few moments, and he quietly zipped my .30-06 rifle back into its case before raising his eyes to meet mine. I suppose you heard about those two bodies over at Hell's Canyon. To tell you the truth, there's a lot of nooks and crannies in these hills where something could be hiding, but we've got our best men out there working to keep the place safe. Still, you two should be extra careful out there, and if I were you, I wouldn't split up. I'm really not supposed to do this, but if you've got a notepad handy, I'll give you boys our audio frequency. And you just tell us if you find anything unusual out there. This was way out of the ordinary, since game wardens and rangers never give out their radio frequency. If everyone in the area with a radio could listen in on them, a poacher could have a heyday with all the unsecured information. For the Park Service to be handing out secure channel information, they must have been truly desperate for as many eyes and ears as possible. To make things even more unsettling, according to the sign-in book, there were only four other hunters in this section of the wilderness. Two individuals and one duo. Of course, there could be others out there that hadn't signed in. An extremely stupid idea in such a large and dangerous wilderness. But this late in the season, I certainly didn't expect the area to be crowded. Even though being so isolated and alone was less than ideal, if there was truly something dangerous roaming the area... I have to admit I was relieved that I wouldn't have to worry about anyone else spooking the game. We finished our check-in at the ranger station by noon, and it was finally time to head back into the wilderness for what would hopefully be the hunt of a lifetime. In fact, it would definitely be a once-in-a-lifetime experience, but not in the way we initially expected. We drove my buddy's pickup as far as we could go along winding gravel roads, well back into the public game lands, and when we finally found a good area to park on the side of the road, we packed all our camping supplies into our two huge backpacks, starting to hike even further into the wilderness on foot. After all, if you really want to find where all the record book animals are, you have to go where most hunters won't. All in all, we probably hiked a little over a mile further uphill to get to a good base camp location. We finally got settled into a nice little clearing surrounded by dense forest by about 6 p.m. The sun was just setting over the beautiful Rocky Mountain landscape. We pitched our tents and set up a few lines of string with small bells on them around the edges of the clearing, and then we finally stopped for a simple but filling supper of canned soup cooked over our small camp stove. I was so tired from hiking and so happy to be out in the wilderness on such an adventure that I completely forgot about all the strange rumors and unsettling happenings. The next two days were free of any weird incidents. We scouted the ridgelines and timber thickets, searching for just the right place to set up the perfect shot, and the whole time we never saw anything out of the ordinary. Every now and again, though, we would hear our handheld radios crackle softly, and we would always stop what we were doing and listen close. Most of the time it was just a ranger checking in and giving his location, but more than once the voice on the other side was uneasy, as one of the rangers called in finding a severely mutilated elk or mule deer. What was even more ominous was that if we checked our maps and marked out the locations where mutilated animals had been found, 
a pattern started to emerge, and it looked like whatever was leaving the mauled animals in its wake could be headed our way. At the end of the third day, we had found the absolute perfect place to lie in wait for a big billy goat. We were planning on getting there early the next morning. We were both bone-tired from hiking all day. But as we sat around the warm fire, waiting for our dinner of sausages and hash browns to finish cooking, we both became aware of an approaching sound in the woods beyond the clearing. Both of us were reluctant to leave the warmth of the fire, but finally I made myself stand up and head toward the tree line with my forty-four in one hand and a lantern in the other. There was barely a sliver of the waning moon in the sky, so my visibility was limited to how far my lantern could reach in the coal-black darkness. The sounds grew closer and closer, and soon the crackle of leaves and branches was accompanied by heavy breathing. I brought my revolver up and pulled the hammer back, bracing myself for some horrible demon cat to come bursting out of the shadows of the woods. Instead, I heard what sounded like a human voice call out from about fifty feet into the tree line. Hello? Anyone there? Relieved, I called back. Yeah, there's a clearing not far in this direction. Just come towards my voice slowly. What are you doing out here this late without a light? A few moments later, a pair of men dressed in camouflage clothes and safety orange toboggans stumbled out of the woods and into the light of my lantern. The two men looked haggard and spooked, but after taking a moment to catch their breath, they introduced themselves. I recognized their names from the sign-in sheet at the ranger station, and they explained that they had followed a wounded elk into the brush and had gotten lost without their flashlights. Being lost in the woods at night is a scary enough concept on its own, but what they told me next sent a real shiver down my spine. They explained that they had shot a fine bull elk from across a gully, and before they could track him through the brush, they had to hike down the side of one mountain and then up the slope of another. By the time they crossed the gulch, found the blood trail, and began tracking the wounded bull, it had been over an hour. They spent another forty-five minutes or so following blood splatter and broken branches through the brush. When they finally came to a clearing, they hadn't found exactly the site they'd been expecting. Sure enough, what they found was the carcass of the elk sitting there in the middle of the clearing. But it had been torn apart. Limbs and bones tossed aside. Entrails had been torn out and devoured. Large hunks of meat still hung on the bones in places. So whatever had been going at it had had its fill with the innards, or had simply been mutilating the carcass for fun. Both hunters said they had gotten an extremely uneasy feeling there, and they'd been debating on whether or not to try and salvage the rack, when they realized that darkness was beginning to fall. Yeah, so we hightailed it out of there as quick as we could. We must have gotten turned around somewhere in the underbrush, because we certainly didn't end up back where we started. Thank goodness we finally found you two, or we might still have been wandering around till morning. The two of them were clearly exhausted, so we offered to let them share our campsite for the night, throwing a few extra sausages on the griddle. They thanked us, and said they'd be on their way at first light. 
As we ate, I asked if they could think of any more details that might reveal the identity of whatever had mauled the wounded elk. They said they'd found a few footprints, but in the fading light and the mud and blood from the carcass, they hadn't really been able to tell exactly how large the prints had been, though they both agreed that the tracks looked like those of a mountain lion, or perhaps a bobcat. Moreover, they both reported feeling like they were being watched during their walk through the woods in the dark. We never saw anything, but occasionally we'd hear a rustling in the brush, or we'd catch a quick glimpse of movement out of the corner of our eyes, or all the hairs on the back of our necks would stand up all of a sudden. But we figured it might have just been our heads playing tricks on us in the dark. We talked for a few more minutes as we made our plans for the morning, but soon our exhaustion got the better of us, and we all decided to hit the hay for the night. We doused the fire, and soon we retired to our tents. My buddy would be staying with me in my tent that night, and the other hunters would be sharing his tent. It didn't take long for all of us to fall asleep, since a light snow had begun to fall and our warm quilts and sleeping bags had never seemed more cozy or inviting. At some point during the night, however... I woke up from my peaceful slumber. I'm a pretty light sleeper, so at first I figured my friend had just shifted in his sleep or something. But soon I heard it. The soft tinkling of bells. Something had bumped the small line of bells strung around the perimeter of the campsite. Now at first I assumed it was probably one of the two guests. Maybe one of them had gotten up to use the bathroom out in the trees. And maybe they had bumped the trip line by accident. But then I heard it again, louder this time. It was like someone was playing with the string and bells, swatting and jerking the line to elicit the quiet jingle of the little tin bells. Again and again, the string thrummed from an impact, and the bells tinkled as though they were tossed around on the line. By this point, I was starting to get nervous, and I reached down to the floor of the tent next to my sleeping bag, to find my forty-four in its holster. I'm not sure if I made a noise as I moved, or if whatever it was just got bored with the line of bells, but as soon as I set up, the jingling stopped, and the night again fell silent, with no noise whatsoever, except for the soft crinkle of falling snow. The next morning we rose early, coming out of our warm cocoons at 3.50, we brewed a quick cup of coffee in the morning darkness, and munched on some trail mix as we got our backpacks ready. However, when we were about to set out for the ridgeline, which we had found the day before, our flashlights caught something menacing pressed into the fresh snow. Coming into the campsite, from the same place where the two hunters had stumbled out of the woods the night before, was a trail of big paw prints. They followed the exact path those two hunters had taken from the edge of the woods to the fire pit, and then they made a large circle around the tent the other two men were sleeping in, before crossing the campsite once more, and ending before the line of bells on the far side of the site, only to continue again about fifteen feet further into the woods. It was like something had jumped the bells to exit the clearing, all without making a sound. So what I did here the night before must have been the thing playing, or rather testing the bells on the way into the campsite. Maybe it was amusing itself with our security measures, 
measures it was smart enough to avoid triggering on the way out of the site. Now I was definitely creeped out, and I decided that this, combined with the story of the mutilated elk from the day before, qualified as unusual enough to report to the ranger service. I called it in over the radio, giving the sleepy ranger on duty our location, and quietly rolling my eyes at his reprimand for using a secure frequency. He said that somebody would be out this way in a few hours, and to just stay put. Of course, if we wanted to be in position on time, we couldn't afford to wait a few hours. We opted instead to just leave a note taped to the inside flap of the other hunter's tent, before going on our way. It was a bone-chillingly cold morning to be hiking up and down steep mountain ridges with a heavy pack and a rifle, but I knew there was no other way I'd be bagging a nice goat. So we continued on our way with dogged determination. We finally made it to the base of the ridgeline that we would be setting up on, and we decided to take a brief break before hiking up to the last hill, getting into position. As we were sitting there at the base of the mountain ridge, eating a few more handfuls of trail mix to keep our energy up, we kept catching glimpses of movement out of the corners of our eyes in the lavender light of pre-dawn. It was never anything we could focus on, but every now and again it would seem as if a shadow in the trees would move, or a new shadow would appear where there hadn't been one a moment ago. It was more than enough to set me on edge, and I quietly cycled my rifle's bolt. I put a round into the chamber, just in case. Pretty soon we noticed that the sky was getting brighter, so we decided to go ahead and hike up to the top of the ridge then. We made it about halfway up the steep hill, before my buddy pointed out just how eerily calm the morning was. We hadn't noticed it on the way there due to the strenuous nature of the hike, combined with the fact that it's really not out of the ordinary for everything to be silent in the woods at 4 a.m., on the morning after a snowstorm, no less. However, now that the sun was beginning to light up the sky, small animals should have been out skittering around. Birds should have been flitting from branch to branch as elk bugled in the distance. But there was nothing. Just the occasional plop of a gob of snow falling from a tree branch. We made it to the top of the ridge, and boy, let me tell you, that view alone was worth the early morning trek. Frost glistened on every tree in the valley below, and a serene blue-white carpet of fresh snow covered the opposite peak like icing on a cake. I took it all in for a moment before getting down on my stomach and setting my pack up as a rest for my rifle, as my friend quietly rummaged in his pack for his binoculars. Just then, however... A powerful feeling of being watched came over me, and when I rolled over onto my side to look around, I nearly soiled myself in fright. About thirty yards up the ridge to my right, a pitch-black shape sat perched like a gargoyle on a snow-covered rock. It had the distinct profile of a big cat, but its fur was so dark that I couldn't make out any features of its body, except for the piercing amber-colored eyes that stared right back at me. It was massive, certainly bigger than any mountain lion I'd ever seen. Furthermore, its ears stood straight up, coming to tufted points like a lynx or bobcat. I did not know exactly what it was, but I knew without a doubt that it wasn't there to ask for a cup of sugar. I kicked my buddy lightly with my outstretched leg, and it didn't take him long to spot the predator eyeing us from afar. 
We were stuck in a standoff, not wanting to make any sudden movements, as the cat just stared at us from its perch. My revolver was strapped on my hip, and while it would have been easier to aim at close range with it, it would be slow and awkward to bring up from my prone position. I heard my friend pull his 10 millimeter out of its holster, but he was in a bad shooting position as well. Instead, my best option would be to turn and fire with my rifle. I flicked the safety off, and its distinctive click sent the cat into a low pouncing position. It began to slink down off its rocky vantage point. I knew it was now or never, and I whispered to my friend, You ready? And he whispered back, Go for it. So I did. As quickly as I could, praying harder than I ever had before, I willed around to bring my rifle to bear, and I'll never forget the sight of making eye contact with that thing through my scope. I fired, the shot echoing across the silent mountain range like the bang of a judge's gavel. I could not see anything except for a blur of movement in my scope, but my friend later told me that I had hit it, just under its massive collarbone. He said that he saw a spray of coal-black hair come off the beast as it charged. The creature screeched loud enough to wake the dead, and it tumbled, rolling downhill a few yards before getting back to its feet and running off through the snow-covered woods with alarming speed as my friend fired after it with his pistol. We both just sat there for a few moments, collecting ourselves and coming down off the adrenaline high. There was no way we were going to go chasing after that thing, but we also didn't want to stay there on the ridge in case it decided to come back. Besides, our hunt was ruined for the day anyway, as so much gunfire certainly would have scared away any animals in the area. We decided to make our way back to the campsite as soon as we could. Before we left, however... I wanted to have a look at the thing's tracks to see if they matched the ones at our campsite. The paw prints in the snow were enormous, and they were clearly feline. Cats keep their claws retracted as they walk, leaving only the indentations of the pads of their paws. Still, even the largest cougar tracks I've ever seen looked small in comparison to these, and they were pressed deeply into the snow, even penetrating to the mud underneath in some places indicating that the animal had to have weighed an enormous amount. As I surveyed the tracks, I found a few tufts of oily black fur, but there wasn't a single drop of blood anywhere to be seen, despite the fact that I had nailed it dead center with a odd 6 at less than 20 yards. I was curious for sure, but certainly not curious enough to follow the thing's tracks into the brush, so as soon as we both made sure our handguns were loaded and our holsters were unbuttoned, we got on our way. We made good time heading back downhill, and much to our relief, a little bit of the life seemed to have returned to the forest, with nuthatches chirping and squirrels scampering through the fresh snow. We had made it about two-thirds of the way back towards our campsite, when we encountered two men in rangers' uniforms coming up the trail in the opposite direction. They were armed to the teeth, with one toting a black tactical shotgun and the other carrying a semi-automatic rifle. They both had body armor over their green uniforms, with plenty of extra ammunition practically dripping off of them. They asked us if the camp just down the trail was ours, and when we said yes, they both breathed a sigh of relief, saying that they had heard our flurry of gunfire earlier 
and had assumed the worst. We continued hiking hurriedly back towards the campsite, and as we walked, we told the two rangers what happened. When we described the animal to them, however, they both shot one another a dour look before saying, Yeah, you boys sure are lucky to have survived a cougar attack like that. My friend and I looked at one another in stunned silence for a moment, and asked them if they had even been listening to our description. I've seen cougars, heck, I've hunted cougars, and I've been hunted by cougars. This thing was not a damn cougar, I said, frustratedly. The rangers looked at me sympathetically for a moment before continuing to hike in silence, but by then we were nearly to the campsite. Although when we emerged from the trees at the edge of the clearing, it looked much different than when we had left it a few hours ago. The whole clearing was crawling with people. Some were rangers decked out in tactical gear, like the two that had come to meet us, and others were rangers in regular uniforms. Some were dressed in the blue and gold uniforms of local police, too. Cameras flashed left and right in the woods beyond the clearing, and our tents had both been neatly packed and placed in an organized pile, along with our cooler and a few other things at one edge of the campsite. The other two hunters from the night before were nowhere to be seen. Our jaws hung open in disbelief, and soon enough, a tall man in a clean and well-fitted ranger's uniform approached us, telling us that he believed it was in our best interest to pack up and leave the area as quickly as possible. We did agree that the campsite didn't feel safe anymore, but when we asked to simply relocate our camp to another section of the game reserve, his expression turned dark, and he retorted with, I asked you boys to leave. Now you're going to cooperate, right? I looked at my friend again, and he simply shrugged, unsure of what other options we really had. After a few seconds, I simply gave in and said, You got it, chief. I'll head to the truck before grabbing one of my tents and slinging it over my shoulder. When we reached the state road where my buddy had parked the truck, there must have been at least fifteen or twenty other vehicles there, lining the shoulder of the small gravel road in both directions. We packed the truck, and we returned to town in silence. Once we were back to civilization, I checked back into the small inn we had stayed at on our first night in town. It would have been cheaper to stay there for the next few days than to reschedule my flight last minute. My buddy left for home on the other end of the state the next morning, and we never said another word about the bizarre experience. I spent the next three days quietly milling around town. One evening, while I was back at the local diner, I caught a snippet of local news broadcast featuring an interview with the same steely-eyed ranger that had told us to leave the reserve. Following the interview, there were a few snapshots of men in rangers' uniforms posing with the carcass of a moderately-sized cougar, and the headline on screen emphatically stated, Cougar Behind Hunter Deaths Trapped by Local Rangers. I finally returned home, albeit empty-handed, and I soon got back to my daily routine of work. However, less than a month later, a mysterious envelope with no return address arrived in the mail, and when I opened it, there was a full set of Idaho hunting tags with next year's season dates stamped on them. Everything was there. Mule deer, elk, black bear, even mountain goat, all pre-approved and stamped with my name. Underneath the set of tags, there was a folded piece of stationery marked with the Forestry Service logo, which bore the handwritten words, Every year, say nothing.
I haven't been back out west since, but I'm considering going back this year. This time, instead of my hunting gear, I think I'll bring a camera. Bigfoot in Williams, Arizona from Panda AZ The weather was cold that night. There had been a slight breeze, enough for the trees to howl throughout the northern Arizona night. I was in my truck, taking some dabs with a couple friends, getting ready to do some backwoods partying. We had music playing. It was a playlist I had on Spotify that mainly contained songs by ICP. Boogie Woogie Woo had been playing at that moment. I had the rig while everyone was talking, coughing, and rapping along with Violent J and all Shaggy Shags. The truck cab got really smoky, which impaired our vision even more than it already was. We decided to ease off the dabs for a while and just mellow before cracking into the booze we had. We had the cab light on to see what we were doing. Darn thing was pretty bright, not bright enough to shine through the thicket of smoke we had accumulated from all the wax, but you can see everything within a couple inches from your face. The song had changed. It was now dead and gone by Twisted. The bass was deep, shaking the truck a little bit. Everyone else was sitting back and hanging out. One of my friends, E, held his girlfriend and they were cuddling in the back. His back was against the driver's side window. He was chatting when he felt a slight thud. This caused him to turn and look behind him. It felt like something had been thrown at the window. A small rock or maybe a hand slapping against it. Whatever it was, it had everyone's attention. What is it, babe? his girl asked. Something at the window. You didn't feel that? he replied. She shook her head, leaning forward, now feeling uneasy. Are you screwing with me? she asked, looking at him with sincere intent. No, I'm dead serious. I felt it on my back, he said. I turned down the music to hear the situation. What's going on? I asked, spinning around in my seat to look at them. Something tapped on the window behind me, he stated. I bet it's just a joke, Panda. Don't worry about it, his girlfriend remarked. Babe, I'm not joking. I felt it, he said, now irritated. He believed that it was real. He looked at me, eyes narrowed, but I could tell he wasn't lying. Do you want me to go check it out? I asked, sensing the tension rise. I didn't want the mood to be killed even more than it already was. Uh, I wouldn't. E's girlfriend scoffed. No, I'll go out there with you. He responded, grabbing his girlfriend's waist to move her off of him. She stood her ground and huffed. You guys are crazy, she shouted. What if it is some psycho? Or maybe the guy just wants to smoke with us. We do have a free seat up here, I joked, pulling out my pocket knife as I opened the door, E following me. We stayed close to each other while E's girl kept in the truck, smoking a cigarette to calm her stress. E had his phone's flashlight on, shining it through the trees to see if he could scope anything out, but nothing could be seen. We crept deeper into the brush, leaves crushing a lot louder under our feet, especially since we were just walking. We were too high to even be ready to stay quiet. E scoffed. Man, there ain't crap out here. I glanced at him while I clutched onto the handle of my pocket knife. If there was, it probably took off. Shh, stay still, 
He interrupted me, shining the light to the left of him. There's something over there, and it's walking. I stopped and I listened. There was, sure enough, some harsh, heavy footsteps crashing through the leaves. My eyes grew wide, and I gripped tighter to the handle. I looked over to E, who was frozen. His eyes were glued to one spot. At first, I could not see what he was seeing. It was like he was staring out at nothing. But then he finally broke his silence, whispering to keep from drawing anything close to us. There's glowing eyes a couple of feet away. Look closely. He said to me, my eyes darting around the direction he kept pointing. That's when I saw it. Yellowish, whitish eye shine. The eyes looked to be about seven or eight feet off the ground. Fear had grabbed a hold of both of us. The eyes crouched down a foot, almost like whatever it was had hunched down. Then it took a step forward, revealing a dark brown, hairy face. It kind of looked gorilla-like. The eyes were slightly sunk in, and the nose was flat. I trembled, staring back into its yellow eyes. The thing's face scrunched as if it was smelling something it didn't like. Then it grunted. Our hearts sank while we heard the noise. It felt powerful. It glanced to E, then gnashed its teeth at us. Its teeth were huge, but they were more human in shape. The only difference between these teeth and a human's were the canines, which were far larger than normal, kind of hanging down over its bottom lip. E didn't show fear when it did this. He was in shock, confused, or in a trance or something. I subtly tapped his back and whispered, Run. Now. He didn't show much of a response, except for a very soft nod. The creature kept us in its sight. It was like it knew what we were planning. It took a large step towards us and growled. Our bodies both turned as if we were in sync, and we ran. The creature chased us for a short distance, crying out in an angry tone. These cries were higher-pitched and gave the same rumble as the grunt did. We felt the ground shake as it ran, and the cries sounded like they were right behind us. E sped up, and I tried my best to keep up with them, trying my hardest not to become a monster's midnight snack. After a few more feet, we saw the truck, and we ran harder. E made it in first and dived in through the door. I slowed down once my hands touched the cab. I'm sure adrenaline was pumping through both of us. We were ready to get the heck out of there, and both of them were waiting for me to get in the truck. But my mind was a blink. Something was telling me to turn around. E's voice faded as I turned. The figure was just outside the tree line, staring at me with those glowing yellow eyes. Its teeth were gnashed, just like they were towards E, but it wasn't crying out anymore. I locked eyes with it one last time before my body forced itself out of the trance. I quickly hopped into the truck and slammed the door, cranking the ignition and revving it up. The sooner the truck started, the quicker we could distance ourselves from this tall, hairy thing that had chased us. That was a very terrifying night. El Chupacabra from JM7 I was born in California, but I was raised in Mexico from when I was 3 to 18. 
I lived in a rural part of Mexico called Zacatecas. Back then, I'd really never seen anything creepy. But every year when the whole family would gather, I would always love to hear their stories. We lived on a ranch with about six houses. There would be two houses right next to each other, one of which had a little field. In the middle, there were some horse stables and a little old school the size of a one-story house. And that school had a schoolyard. About 300 yards away from everything, along a trail, there was a lienzo. It was a big ring with a wall that was 60 meters long with dirt. We would host parties there known as coleaderos. It's a Mexican thing. My cousins and I would always take the horses there and practice. One day we were doing our normal things, playing, working out the horses, and at night we were making fires. But this day it was different. We decided to go along the trail to the Lienzo. Now, the Lienzo had these bleachers where it would oversee all of it. We were going to stay up there for a little bit, deciding to make a fire, which we were successful at. This was pretty fun for a while. We must have been up there for three hours when one of my cousins said, Guys, look over there. We looked at where he was pointing, and we saw a figure. It was dark, so we didn't see much more than shadows moving around inside the big ring. One of my cousins had brought a flashlight, and when he shone it at that figure, it was the scariest thing I'd ever seen. There in the light was this dog-shaped thing. It looked like a dog, but it had no hair. It had a longer-than-average snout, too, with a bunch of razor-sharp teeth gleaming from the light. It had two big front teeth, and we could see red stains on them. Its eyes were two yellow orbs. We stared at it before it made this howl of some kind that shook the bleachers we were on. Then it walked away showing its teeth at us for a moment, before it disappeared. Honestly, I think what we saw that night was El Chupacabra. Something in the Woods from Anonymous Before I get into my story, I'll give a bit of background. I don't know if you've ever seen or heard of what I call the Neon Hour, but it usually happens between spring and fall. The air gets this charged feeling and looks neon. Have you ever looked at a fluorescent light? The ones that are most typical in a basement, or maybe in an older school building. They're long, tubular, and have this yellow-pink kind of glow to them. That glow is how the neon hour looks. Grass looks super bright green. The colors of leaves and flowers pop brighter than usual and the sky has this yellow-pink glow about it. Now, on to the story. I was about 12 years old at the time, making it the mid to late 90s. I lived in a woodsy part of Surrey, New Hampshire, the mountainous part, not down in the valley. It was my mom, dad, three brothers, and a variety of farm and wild animals. We had 32 acres of land to our names, and the land had old wagon-wheel trails that cut through the trees in many directions. One of these trails came close to our house, did a huge loop, and went back to the house. It took about 20 to 25 minutes to walk the loop at a normal pace. I was outside enjoying some afternoon sun with my older brother, as our dad came out of the house and said he was going to check on the stream by the loop. He wanted to see if it was drying out. 
He wasn't going to walk the whole loop, so he should have been back in about eight minutes or so. He headed off. My older brother went inside to play his Game Boy at that point. I followed to get a drink and cool down for a little while. And after a bit, I glanced at the clock and realized our dad should have been back already. So I went outside to yell his name, as he'd be able to hear me from the stream. My eyes went huge as I was greeted by something I'd never seen before. The sun was still out, but didn't look right. The grass and everything around me had a weird coloring to it, and the air felt... weird. I don't know why, but it made my heart pick up, and I felt creeped out. I started yelling for my dad, pausing every once in a while, but there was no response. I went inside, and I told my older brother I was going to find dad. He just grunted, as his Game Boy beeped at him. I headed up the wagon trail at a jog, still feeling creeped out, like I had to go get my dad home, fast. I made it to the stream quickly, but Dad wasn't there. I could see he'd stuck a stick into the water with a rock on top, so he'd definitely been there. I called his name, no response. I counted to ten and called again, but this time, he answered. I'm over here, Danielle. I ran further up the path before ducking into the trees to my left, toward a clearing. Danielle. I'm over here. Come on. But my dad was not in the clearing. Danielle, come here. I took off at a slight run, as my dad sounded slightly irritated at this point. I was heading toward a huge rock, which was bigger than a minivan. It was a rock that we liked to sit on and relax sometimes. At this point, I should have crossed over another wagon wheel path before I came to the huge rock, but somehow, I didn't. The trees around me seemed to blur, and though I was running, I felt as if I wasn't moving as fast as I had been. It was like I was going slow, but I should have been moving full speed. Getting to that rock should have taken me at most two minutes, but it felt more like ten. Danielle, where are you? I'm waiting. My dad's voice called again. I finally made it to the huge rock, but again, my dad was not there. I stood, panting and feeling even more unsettled. But then my dad called again. Danielle. Danielle. I was thinking about running further up the trail, and that would mean going further into the woods, when I suddenly heard the metal bell from the house being rung loudly, and my brother's voice was calling out. And then, I heard my dad's voice at the same time. He was calling me back to the house too. But wait, my brother's and my dad's voices from the same place. Then what voice was I following? Who in the world was leading me into the woods? Horrified, I turned around and I ran. I got onto the wagon trail, running, pushing myself back the way I'd come. I stayed on the trail, and I didn't stop running. I splashed through the stream, and kept going until I made it back to the house, to see my brother still ringing the bell, and our dad 
was standing right next to him. Where have you been? asked Dad. What took you so long? asked my brother. I took a moment to catch my breath. Then I told them both how I'd gone looking for Dad, and he kept calling me from the middle of the woods. Still panting, I asked him, How... how did you get back here before me, Dad? Well, I decided to make the loop after all. I've been back for about ten minutes or so, and we've been trying to get your attention for about as long. My dad answered. So it wasn't my dad calling me into the woods. It only sounded like him, but it wasn't him. I never saw who it was or what it was, no animals or anything like it. And as I thought about it, I didn't hear any birds or the normal woodsy sounds either. I don't know how the trees blurred or how I missed a path that I should have crossed, how I didn't hear the bell or them calling me back home for that long, how I lost so much time. Because my dad walked the loop and was back for ten minutes before I came back. And that means about thirty-five or minutes passed from the time he left and the time I got back. I was gone twenty-five minutes when I should have been gone ten. I'd been jogging the whole time. I didn't really stay still at all. So where did the time go? And who was calling my name that sounded like my dad? I've had some other smaller odd things happen during the neon hour over the years, but nothing as creepy, nothing as weird as that. For the most part now, whenever the neon hour happens, I stay right by home, and I don't go near the woods. And now I warn people to stay out of the woods during the neon hour. Something is following me. From Tiny Money This has been happening for a while now, and I finally want to share it. I live in San Diego, California, and some weird things have been happening lately. It all started when I was visiting my mom at her house up in Ramona. She lives in a trailer on a farm, where you can hear everything due to it having no people for miles. Ever since my mom moved up there, she said that she has had bad vibes there. At first, I wasn't exactly sure what she meant. One night I was up playing video games on my phone. It must have been 3 a.m. or so. When, seemingly out of nowhere, a feeling of dread overcame me. It was like I wasn't supposed to be there for some reason. I shook it off and ignored it. Then I went back to playing my game. That's when I heard something jumping. Now, this trailer had a fence surrounding it, and the fence itself was high enough for any coyote to not be able to jump over. We had a couple of cats and a dog, and coyotes were a problem on the farm. So, the only thing I thought it could be was probably a mountain lion. I then began to hear the sound of sniffing around the trailer, followed by a low growl. Then the trailer began to shake back and forth. My cats, which had been lying on me, bolted to the back of my room, hiding and terrified. It was really dark out, so I couldn't see much through the windows. But something did run by the window, jumping back over the fence, running along and eventually disappearing along one of the trails. 
It was tall and darker than the night around it. That's all I saw that time. Fast forward a few months. At the farm, there is this old abandoned shed. It was beginning to smell really bad, so my mom checked it out. But when she came back to the house, she was crying, saying that there were dead cats everywhere. In Ramona, we have a lot of stray cats, and apparently something on the property, maybe the same thing I saw on the trails, has been eating them, specifically in and around that shed. My mom ended up moving after that, and she had no other problems, but I did. About a year later, I was walking to my friend's house up the street from mine. It was pretty late at the time, about 10 p.m. and dark out. I was walking when I heard that same growl from long ago. I turned around to look behind me and saw the most horrifying thing ever. There was this animal. I know it wasn't human, that's a fact. Whatever animal this was, it was seven feet tall and pitch black. It had a dog-like face with ears and a snout and all that. And then it did this thing that was either a smile or a snarl, I can't be sure. But either way, it was disturbing enough. I ran so fast, faster than I think I'd ever run before. I ran right into my friend's house before turning around to see it crawling over a fence and disappearing. I still see that weird creature in the neighborhood from time to time, and every time I do, I remember these sightings. Beware the trails and countryside of Ramona. I woke up from Nile, 1888. Me and my closest friend group are avid campers and outdoorsmen. I grew up in the woods of Oklahoma and Arkansas. The woods and fields out here are my home, and I know it like the back of my hand. Excuse the cliché phrase. That's what makes this experience all the more terrifying for me, because any person would assume that they are safest at home. This happened in 2004. My friends and I had gone camping in the Ozarks, like we had done a dozen times before. It would be me, Derek, David, and Isaiah, all guys I'd graduated high school with. That whole day we were hiking and going off-road on four-wheelers, and when we settled down for the night, we nestled a campsite into the flattest spot we could find in the woods. We roasted hot dogs and marshmallows, we weren't exactly hunters or fishermen, after all. Then, after talking about girls and our plans for the future, we settled into two different tents. I shared mine with Derek. Derek was a light sleeper. If you even had an inkling of a snore coming out of you, he would wake you up and tell you to go somewhere else. If a fly landed on Derek, he would be awake all night. Seemingly the only thing he could sleep through was nature. And as I was the only non-snorer between the other three of us, I was bunked with Derek across the campsite from the other two dudes. Anyway, we were exhausted after a long day, so Derek and I were quickly asleep, without much of a conversation in bed. 
Now this is where the horror begins. I wake up an unknown amount of time later. My backside is completely sore, and when I rub my eyes and look around me, I'm horrified. I'm no longer in my tent. I'm in the middle of the woods, surrounded by miles of trees in every direction. This wakes me up quickly. I pull myself up from the ground, my back entirely sore from top to bottom. I look around, trying to make sure that I'm awake, and if I am awake, I need to find the campsite, my friends, as soon as possible. What the hell was going on? Immediately, I thought it was a prank. I know the guys have never done pranks like this before, nor could I even recall the last prank they pulled, because none of us were really pranksters. As I scanned my surroundings in the darkness, lit only by the moon through the pine needles in the trees above, I spotted a clue, one that only disturbed me more. I had had another theory that maybe I sleepwalked, but seeing this threw that idea entirely out the window. There on the ground in front of me was a long, stretching trail, like someone had dragged something along the way. In fact, that drag trail ended right below me. That was my trail. I began to turn in a circle, trying my darndest to see my back, I'd been sleeping in a shirt and shorts, as it was pretty cold out here, and upon feeling my back, I realized my entire backside was covered in dirt and mud. It was me that had been dragged through the woods, but by who and why? How far away was I? Derek! I called out. If it truly was a prank which I wasn't even sure it was that. Derek would be the weak link. If he even felt a bit guilty, I knew he would give in and probably come out of hiding. But after I waited several minutes, there was no reply. No footsteps, no sounds of hushed laughter. I was completely and utterly alone. I shuddered. Goosebumps raised up on my arms. I needed to get back. And I guess luckily for me, there was a path laid out before me. One that I was sure would get me back to where I'd been sleeping. I followed the drag trail in the dirt and mud, trying to push down those thoughts. The ones asking me what could have done this to me, or who. Then I started to wonder, how had I not awakened from being dragged through the woods? It would have been loud. It would have been wet and painful, obviously, given the sores and mud on my back. But I was unconscious until I woke up right in the middle of nowhere. I walked and walked on this trail. The woods were quiet for a long time. There was a steady breeze, and whenever it hit my wet back, it made me shiver. I wanted to be back in my tent. I knew then that if I made it back and I couldn't convince the others to leave. I would just stay awake all night, watching the opening and hoping that I didn't fall asleep again. I was terrified of the thought that if I went unconscious once more, I would wake up out here, or 
I wouldn't wake up at all. And then with that thought, I was afraid that maybe my friends had been taken too. Having worried myself a good deal, I started to jog, and that jog turned into a run the more I panicked. I ran for as long as I could. I think it was maybe two and a half minutes straight or so. I slowed down to catch my breath, still walking pretty fast. I was huffing pretty loud, too. You could almost hear an echo of my breathing out there. It was then that I felt a sudden and deep pain in my left shoulder, one that caused me to fall forward onto my knees. What the... Ah! The pain was like a shock throughout my entire skeleton. I turned around and saw a large rock, perhaps half the size of my skull, lying on the ground. It hadn't been there before. And as I was turned around looking at the ground... Another largish rock came flying past my head. If that had hit me, I probably would have been killed. Now angry, I began to look around again, peering from tree to tree trying to find who was doing this to me. But I still didn't see so much as a figure. Hey, stop that! This isn't funny! I reprimanded whoever it was out there. But once more, there was no response. And then another rock came flying from a different direction. Another rock that I barely dodged. I was being attacked. And possibly trying to be killed. I started running again, even though I was still out of breath. This time I ran for nearly twelve minutes straight. I ran so long and so hard that my vision was getting darker and blurry. I was moments away from passing out if I didn't stop. But, as if by some miracle, when I did stop, I was just on the edge of my campsite. Judging by how far I ran and for how long I'd been walking and running, I'd been dragged a good two or three miles at least. That's a bit of a ways for something that I thought, or hoped, was just a prank. But after being attacked in the middle of the night in these woods, this was no prank. The rocks had stopped being thrown several minutes prior. I stepped calmly into the clearing where the campsite was. It was undisturbed, save for two things. The trail from my tent into the woods where I had been dragged, and my tent flap still being open. Slowly, I stepped towards my tent, worried that I wouldn't see Derek in there. But when I saw him asleep, still perfectly fine and perfectly out of it, I was even more terrified than I thought I would be. What in the entirety of the world could drag me out of the tent after unzipping it, keeping me asleep while being dragged through the dirt for miles while not even waking Derek or any of the others for that matter. I mean, if my friend was being dragged away after someone broke into our tent, surely I would have noticed. I sat next to him, not even bothering to look at the other tent to make sure the other two were okay. I was just happy to be back, and I had a promise I had to keep for myself. That promise of sitting still, watching the tent opening, and hoping that I didn't fall asleep. Well, for the remainder of the night, 
I managed to stay awake. Funny thing is, pure primal fear is quite the motivator to keep your eyes peeled. When Derek began to stir, I asked him if he noticed anything weird going on last night, but he answered with, Nah, man, I slept like a baby. About half an hour later, I heard the other two's tent unzip, meaning they also slept well and hadn't left their tent all night. So, I wasn't pranked. I don't have any answers, and that's what really keeps me awake when I think about this. Now I'm asking you, who or what could have done this to me? How can someone be dragged through the woods for miles without ever waking up? And who or what was it that threw those rocks at me? I don't know if I'll ever figure it out, but I do know I don't camp in the Ozarks anymore. That's sad for me, because it makes me feel as if my home and my childhood has been stolen from me. Driving Home From Work From Naughty Illuminati When you work an hour away from home, it's quite a pain to have to drive two hours a day, an hour there and an hour back. You end up getting used to it. For me, I usually play some podcasts or music, distracting myself as my mind is on autopilot. I work at a call center in Georgia. I work the old 9 to 5, which again is more like 8 to 6 for me, thanks to my long drive. But because the job pays well, and I own my own home, then that's perfectly fine to me. Now, this drive takes me to several miles of farmland and field. It's some really pleasant scenery, but it was during this stretch of road, the part that I always thought was the most peaceful, that something horrific happened to me. So I left work at around 5.15 p.m., having to stay a few more minutes late due to an irate customer I was on the phone with. This happens quite a lot, as you could probably guess, at call centers. That workday was a bit more bearable, though, as it was a Friday. I had a whole weekend to look forward to, as well as some fun plans with friends that my wife and I had been scheduling for the last month. I clock out, say my goodbyes, then get in my car. I'm driving for about 20 minutes, playing some classic rock, but just thinking about my day. It's funny how long stress can stay with you, even though it doesn't matter anymore. As I hit that stretch of road surrounded by fields and farmland, I received a call from my wife. She wanted to go over the plans with friends tomorrow, so that we wouldn't be late, we knew what to wear, where to show up, and all that jazz. She's the kind of person that, even though we've gone over something several times, she'll go over it with you several more times. I kind of like it. It's nice to have someone to make sure you're prepared. We talked for about ten minutes straight. Glancing out the window, I saw that I was passing by rows upon rows of corn or something. The sun was going down in the distance, and it was quite beautiful. I looked back in front of me, just in time to slam on my brakes as I nearly ran over some person. Before my wife even knew that something was going on on my end, the phone was thrown from my hands by the sudden stopping force, smacking into the windshield. I came to a complete stop, 
nearly hitting my forehead on the steering wheel. Christ, I muttered, praying that I hadn't hit someone. I rubbed my head and got my wits about me as the car idled on the side of the road to the right. I went straight for my phone with my foot still on the brake. The glass of the windshield where it had hit was perfectly fine, but my phone's screen had all but shattered. The screen was now completely black. There was no call or sound on the other end either. I couldn't get it to turn back on, so it was basically dead. Great, I thought. Talk about making a bad situation worse. If someone was hurt, I wouldn't be able to call 911. I then quickly glanced out of every window, trying to find the person that I nearly hit. I didn't see anyone. Then again, it was getting darker by the second. The sky was a dark purple and blue at this point, and in moments it would be completely dark. Still, I didn't see anyone around me. Maybe I'd spooked them, just as they spooked me, and just ran off. I wanted to get out of the car and be perfectly sure. But when my headlights automatically came on from the dimming sun, I quickly found who ran out in front of me. They were... well, they were nude, and there were scars all over their skin. And the weird thing about this was that this nude person didn't have any defining features, not even any gender-identifying features on their body. And before long, I realized what I was looking at in the middle of the road ahead of me was the partially illuminated right side of something that wasn't human. There's no way they could be human. I let off the brake and turned on the steering wheel to the left a bit, aligning my car to the center of the road. Then I got a full, good look at it. For the entire duration that I stared at this figure... I couldn't breathe. It was like I forgot how to for a moment. Nothing I was looking at made sense. From head to toe, this thing was human in shape. Two arms, two legs, a head, torso, it was all there. But it wasn't right. Imagine taking a nude photo of a person, and then using the smudge tool on Photoshop. That's what it reminded me of. Its flesh was just all sagging skin and scars, and when I finally looked at its face, I was even more terrified than I thought I could be. It didn't have eyes or nose, I don't think. All that was on its face was two diagonal slits and a mouth. The thing sort of twitched and stayed put. During this time that I was horrified of what I was looking at, I was desperately trying to make sense of it, and I even had the thought in my head that maybe I did hit the person, and they came out looking like that. But that's stupid. I know how stupid it sounds now. But being scared, being worried like that, it can do things to your head. As I was still moments away from realizing that I should get out of there or call for help, this creature made the first move, and what a move it was. It took off on two legs at such high speed that I lost sight of it almost immediately. It ran off to my right, and I thought that it ran off into one of these fields. I quickly found myself glancing out the windows trying to locate it again, because when you see something that horrifying, 
You want to keep your eyes on it. You never want to lose track of that spider in your room. But soon I heard something instead of seeing it. The sound of my passenger side door being opened. I slammed my foot on the gas pedal, too scared to look over to see if someone got inside. I don't think they did, because I heard the door slam shut from the force of me flooring it. But I also heard something dragging on the road outside. Whatever had grabbed the door was still holding on to it. I began to swerve left and right. I nearly swerved off the road and crashed into a ditch, but I managed to shake whatever was holding on to the door. With a thud and a scrape, the dragging sound stopped. I looked in my rear view and saw the thing standing perfectly still in the middle of the road. I never saw it get up. It was just fast and twitchy like that. I sped off down the road, going twice the speed limit to get home. I made it home quickly, arriving to a very distressed wife. I told her everything that happened, even though I'm not sure she believed it all. Even she was worried that I simply hit someone, and mistook their appearance or something. I assured her that it wasn't that. Whoever was on the road I had not hit. I knew that for a fact now that my head was clear. No accident occurred, but I definitely saw something that defied reality. Something that gave me nightmares for months on end. From that day forward... I didn't use that route to go to work or to go home. There was an alternate route that increased my drive there and back by about 20 to 30 minutes. That sucked, but I'd rather avoid ever having to see something like that again. Silent Hill Creature Thing in the Fields of Georgia. Please leave me be. The Thing That Chased Us from V. This happened in Ontario, Canada, to my friends and I. When my friends and I were in grade 9, we used to go into a forest next to our old elementary school to hang out. We would dirt bike, build forts, play card games, drink and climb trees. The usual teenage stuff. The day this happened, we were climbing trees, seeing how far we dared to climb up the dead trees, then jump down, all while praying that we didn't break our necks. Yeah, we were weird, even reckless. One of my braver friends, C, decided it would be a smart idea to climb up a dead tree that was leaning against another tree to see if he could get to the top. My other friend, Leon, and I decided that we did not have a death wish like he did, so we stayed perched on another dead tree watching our idiot friend. Now, I want to say that I've always gotten these strange feelings about things. I practice Wicca, and I'm personally a witch of Draconic Wicca, but the point is, I get these feelings. They are like warnings when something is about to happen, when something supernatural is nearby, when we're in danger. Call it a sixth sense. I'm the firstborn female of a firstborn female, and so on. I'm the seventh firstborn female in the generation, which makes for a very female-dominated family tree. But we believe seven is a powerful number, similar to the number six in Christianity. The seventh witch, which is myself, has the strongest connection to the supernatural on par with the first witch, who started the generation, my really great-grandmother. I'm called a high priestess, 
the reincarnation of my grandmother's mother, which only makes these feelings stronger and more absolute. Now, I know everything I just explained doesn't sound real. As fake as witches who fly on broomsticks and crowd around a black cauldron saying bubble bubble toil and trouble is, I didn't believe it at first either. Anyway, while C was climbing further up the tree, one of these feelings came over me, like someone brushing a feather down my back. It was telling me that my friends and I were in danger. Which was odd. It was when I was pondering the strangeness of my feeling, C disappeared into the canopy of the tree, and Leon and I lost sight of him. V, I remember Leon saying to me, something's not right. The air is stale, the birds are quiet, something feels wrong. It took me a minute, but he was right. There was a sinking feeling in my stomach as I looked around. Everything was still. Then that feeling against my back returned, followed by a tingling sensation against my pocket. To my relief, it wasn't a claw trying to get at my wallet, it was just my phone. As every impulsive teenager who lives off their device does, I pulled out my phone, saw that it was a message, and opened it. It was from my Wiccan friend, Red, and it simply said, You need to leave, now. I was taken aback. I knew that Red was quite intuitive. They practiced spiritual Wicca, and were very in tune with the elements. This confirmed my suspicion that something was wrong. I responded, What do you mean? She confessed, I had sent a protection spell with you, and felt that you were in danger. I still feel it. Where are you? Although I was flattered that Red had cared enough to spiritually stalk me, I was still somewhat suspicious. I remember looking around. They didn't live near me, so I was getting a little worried how they knew about our situation. Maybe she was right. So I replied, I'm at the park in the old forest. Leave, they told me. It's not safe right now. At this point, I was super glued to my phone. I had lost track of C and was completely immersed in this conversation. When suddenly, I was pulled from my device's grip when Leon and I heard a loud thud. It was the breaking of branches and something landing in the bushes about maybe 15 meters away. I nearly fell off the tree I was sitting on. I was so spooked. My shock was only dampened when I saw C sprinting, cuts all over his arms and legs from falling into the bush, pale as a ghost and terrified. Get out of that freaking tree! Now! He called up to us. Leon looked puzzled, but I could see anxiety bubbling as he looked at C. Well, don't just stand there, C demanded with fearful irritation in his tone. We need to get out of here. Why? Leon called, while beginning to slowly shimmy down the trunk of the tree. There's... there's something here, C breathed, glancing back in the direction he came from. Crap, C cussed as he began to move away. Leon moved fast down the tree, but I was frozen. My phone was buzzing in my hand as messages from Red poured in, their warnings falling on deaf ears as I saw a dark, hairy shape hidden in the green ferns. Something smelled off, 
and my heart lurched as I saw it twitch in our direction. For a moment, I swear to God we made eye contact, and just as it began to move towards us, C grabbed me by the ankles and hauled me down the tree and to the ground. Quickly, I scrambled to my feet as I heard twigs breaking and branches being pushed out of the way. Out of fear, we all bolted as fast as we could. We thundered over thorny ankle-biting bushes, broke branches, and ran through many spider webs to get out of the forest. But when we got out, we were trapped. Where I live, the park and the forest are right next to a beach, which is a decent ten-meter drop, and there was no way in heck we were going to freaking swim to safety or hide by the rocks at the beach. My grandma's house... Leon panted as we all sprinted down the trail towards civilization. It's the closest. There were no objections. We were all too scared to think of a decent plan. I felt my lungs burn for air as I pushed to keep up with my more athletic friends. I was never lazy, but I was no spring chicken. I am and always will be a short-distance runner. So when I felt my pace begin to slow, I pushed even harder. Fearing for your life can make you do amazing things. We raced into Leon's grandmother's property. We all knew that she was snowbirding in Florida and would be away for the remainder of the cold months. We scrambled to the back door, which thankfully Leon had the spare key to, and we tumbled over each other to get inside. Now, we've seen horror films, and we thought we knew the best way to survive them. Number one on that survival list was to lock down the house, so we bolted to every door to lock it, as well as every window. It was in that time that I finally acknowledged my phone again. I had missed several texts from Red, and a few calls from them too, so I called back. Thank God, V, you're alive, they said. What happened? Are you okay? I explained everything to Red in as much detail as I could muster at the time. I was shaking both from overexertion and adrenaline, and after thinking about it, Red surprised me again. Get all the candles in the house and put them at every entrance to the house. Just trust me. C interjected. But your grandma doesn't have many candles. He had clearly crashed here many times before when he got drunk at a party and needed a place to be hungover at. Leon's grandma was a sweetheart lady after all. There's the herb garden, Leon suggested. Perfect, said Red. Go get all the sage you can find, then. And as if instructed by a general, Leon did so without complaint, returning with enough to make a small shrubbery out of the sage. Then we locked down the door and went upstairs to hide in the office. There was only one window and one door there, plus that door locked, so we figured it'd be safe. But for my personal safety, I decided to have the boys stay nearest to the door. I'd sooner jump out of a window that is two stories in the air before I let myself become dinner. Then again, we had no idea what was chasing us. Once we were huddled into the office, I hung up the phone with Red, and we took a moment to breathe. The hell was it? C asked, his voice barely hovering above a whisper. I don't know, Leon responded. It felt like a monster from a horror film. Or maybe it was some drug-addicted psychopath who was broke and looking for some fresh teenagers to sell in the black market so he could buy more drugs. 
I stated with an irritated amount of sarcasm. I was starting to get frustrated at this point. What if this was some elaborate prank? What if some jerk had decided to dress up as Bigfoot and wait in the tree line for a while to send some unsuspecting passers-by into the afterlife for a laugh? Then we all froze. Something had opened the back gate and closed it. We stayed as silent as a church when we heard heavy footsteps against the garden path in the backyard, and then we heard the distinct sound of jiggling doorknobs, the sound of something touching the windows. Whatever was stalking us was looking for us and was checking every entrance in the house to get inside. I knew it, I thought to myself. It's some murderer, and we're about to be killed. Guys, Leon whispered, cutting through my pessimistic thoughts. What? I responded. Who locked the basement door? My heart sank as we looked at each other, all silently admitting that it wasn't us. I had been too nervous to go to the basement, but it was the same for them. No one locked it, I said, my throat dry as we realized that that thing had an opening. Crap, said C. Someone needs to lock it. Are you out of your mind? growled Leon. If one goes, we all go, I stated, quietly getting up. No point in getting separated. We stand a better chance as a team than we do on our own. Reluctantly, the boys and I grabbed nearby objects and quietly crept out of the office. I had grabbed a broom that was hanging on the hook by the door. Leon had a combat stapler, I guess, and C had a mail opener. We heard the thing move to the front of the house at that point so we hurried to get to the basement. Carefully, we tried our best to sneak down the old wooden stairs. I used that old trick I'd used to sneak downstairs of the house when my parents were watching TV, so I could sneak some sweets, clinging to the edge of the wall. Once we got to the cold basement, we were huddled together, moving as quickly as a bunch of scared teenagers could, toward the door. The way the basement was set up was like this. There's the staircase leading to an open room surrounded by doors to the boiler and storage room, with an air hockey table in the center of the room leading to the movie room where a couch was and the door just around the corner. We were trying to be stealthy when the boiler turned on, spooking Leon, who instinctively jumped, going right into the air hockey table and letting the plastic puck hit the floor. Then we all froze. Although the sound was small, it felt as loud as a fire alarm, and we strained our ears to hear. Quickly, we heard footsteps coming towards the door. Crap, I huffed as I darted from the huddle towards the door. I saw a shadow swiftly dart behind the curtains of the window nearing the door. My heart was pounding. I put my hand forward and prayed under my breath, hoping that I would be faster, hoping that I would make it to the door first. My shoulder collided with the door as I fumbled against the knob to lock it. As soon as I did, I felt an equal thud on the other end of the door, and a loud growl. I basically flew away from the door and into the arms of my friends, who were standing in horror. Through the glass window of the door and the floral white mini-curtains, we saw a shadow, large, covered in hair or fur, its shoulders were at the midpoint of the window. It was taller than the door, 
and it growled like a dog would when you kept its bone away from it. I rose to my feet shakily, and I stared at the shadow as I felt it stared right back at me. Leave, I remember commanding under my breath as I felt a surge of electricity go through me. Maybe it was adrenaline, or something else, but it soon growled one more time, and then thudded away, its heavy footsteps soon fading. We heard every single agonizing step, though, up the stairs, through the gate. As soon as we could breathe, we bolted back upstairs in the house, and to the office again, calling our parents. We were still teenagers, and there was no way in hell we were going outside. When my mother came to get me, to her reluctance, she said to me that she felt something was there around the house, something evil and dangerous, and I had told her nothing, only that I had heard my ankle falling from a tree. That was all the confirmation I needed. I knew that feeling I had was right, and to this day I trust my sixth sense. I advise you all to do the same, the next time you feel yourself being stalked by something sinister. Light a candle. Grab some sage. It may sound silly, but it might just save you. I saw it crawling on my neighbor's roof. From Plague Bacon These incidents occurred over a period of time when I was younger. However, it was only until recently that I connected the dots... I grew up in Louisiana, right on the outskirts of New Orleans. The city itself has so much history, myths, and intrigue surrounding it that I would be remiss to say that I didn't have other experiences involving spirits and all that, but that's a story for another time. Right after Hurricane Katrina, I was displaced by the storm and ended up staying in Florida for a while. While there, it seemed as though every channel on the news had coverage of the horrific event. People's homes were flooded, the roads were blocked, businesses destroyed, and to make things even worse, there were many reports of people committing some heinous crimes. Part of the news covered people trying to escape the storm and the resulting aftermath. The other half seemed to cover the dark side of humanity. Vandalism, theft, looting, violence... All of that occurred while others were simply trying to survive. To make matters worse, the prisons were destroyed, and a lot of the city's unmentionables started roaming the area, causing more trouble for the people who were simply trying to exist. Some really horrible stuff went on. Like, sure, this experience involves the aftermath of a horrible storm and the possible encounter with something dangerous and unexplained. But I'll never put it past humans to be the darkest, most cruel creatures in existence. The news covered up a lot of it, of course. This is where people begin to say, then how do you know what really happened if there was a cover-up? And to you, I'll say this. I was there in the Superdome. I hid from the prisoners when they broke in. And I, being one of the able-bodied people in the area, had to help deal with the people who weren't as fortunate in being able to hide. Coverage about the swamps flooding, animals escaping zoos, as well as creatures from the bayou areas, like alligators and such, were frequent. Many of these dangerous animals made their way into the same broken streets as the ones where there were people simply trying to get back home, 
So what I'm trying to say is, all manner of beasts were displaced by the storm, not just humans. But what about the things that we are told don't or shouldn't exist? Is it possible that the storm impacted them as well? A few months after the storm, I eventually moved back to Louisiana, trying to put back the pieces of my own life. I lost a dear friend to looters. My house was in shambles, and the majority of my classmates were off in different cities now. Thankfully, I started dating my now wife from Florida. We would take turns visiting each other every other weekend. It was a long-distance thing, but we made it work. This is relevant to the story, trust me. One week as I was driving my sister home from the movies, we started talking about lions. She was 13 at the time, and she just got out from seeing the Narnia movie with some friends. We crossed over the small bridge over a canal that led into our subdivision, and as we turned the corner, she said something along the lines of, and Mr. Tumnus started to play a flute, and... Wait, what's a Tumnus again? I asked. She saw my confused face and continued. He's got, like, the legs of a goat, but he has horns and doesn't have any hair on his body like Phil. You know, from Hercules. She paused mid-sentence. Oh, did Ashley get a new dog or something? She motioned towards our neighbor's yard. I glanced to the left and saw what looked to be a grayish dog, sort of like a greyhound, sitting in their front lawn. Something about it didn't feel right. It was skinny, like a little too skinny. Its muzzle looked to be flat, and its legs were longer than I thought they should be. But I was no dog expert by any means. I didn't think too much about it at the time. Uh, not sure, I said, as we drove past their house. But I can ask later. We drove off with that dog looking in the direction of our car, almost as if it were following us with its eyes, but I figured that's what animals do, and I cast it off as nothing. Later on, I would text Ashley about her new creepy puppy, but she had no idea what I was talking about. She said, if anything, it was probably some stray that got a whiff of her dogs. Poor thing was probably malnourished, if it was as thin as you described. She told me. I wrote it off as whatever and forgot about it entirely for a while. A few weeks later, I was on the phone with my girlfriend, talking about our respective days at school. I walked into the kitchen to grab a Coke. Robin, my sister, was browsing her friend's MySpace pages and listening to Lil Wayne on Pandora. Soon as I walked into the kitchen, I could barely hear what my girlfriend was saying, so I asked Robin if she'd lower the music. She begrudgingly complied after muttering to herself. I grabbed my Coke, a whole bag of chips, don't judge me, and was making my way back upstairs when I heard Robin call to me. Kuya, she squeaked as I rounded the steps. What's that? Hmm? What do you mean? I heard something outside. I groaned and told my girlfriend to hold on a moment. I went back down into the kitchen to see Robin peeking out through the blinds. Ooh, that dog is back, she said, closing up the laptop and heading towards the stairs. I'll, I'll be in my room. That thing gives me the creeps. Sure enough, there it was, 
sitting at the edge of our property. Trying to sound tough, I told my girlfriend I was going to go outside to scare it off, and I'd call her back. In reality, I wanted to see the thing up close, bring it some food if it wasn't hostile. However, if it was, I didn't want her to hear me scream like a baby. I opened the sliding glass door that led towards my backyard, and proceeded to walk over to where Robin saw the dog sitting. Now, to get an understanding of our backyard, it had a cement patio that connected to the grass, and at the very end of the yard was a canal. We had cement bases for a fence, but due to the hurricane, all work stopped there. As I approached closer, its gaunt silhouette started to make me feel uncomfortable. It did that thing with its eyes that nocturnal animals do when they reflect light, you know, making it look even more unsettling. I took a deep breath and was about to let out a, Hey boy, you hungry? But before those words could leave my mouth, it quickly jolted up and turned its head back toward the canal. For some reason, this caused me to freeze. The way it moved was wrong. It let out this moan. Maybe it was a growl. Sounded like the combination between a dog's howl and a goat bleeding. It was more melodic, though, if that makes sense. I saw its eyes flash that eerie glow again as it spun its body around and darted down toward the canal. It was creepy, sure, but once more I wrote it off as whatever. Fast forward another week or so, and one of Ashley's dog was found dead in her backyard. Now, I didn't see it myself, but from the way she described it, the poor thing was torn to shreds. Pieces of fur scattered all over in what appeared to be a struggle. The general consensus was that a bobcat or some other wildcat had done it, but she wasn't convinced. But Jocks was a mastiff. She kept repeating, There's no way some bobcat got to him like that. Now, I know what you're thinking. It's probably related to that thing I saw, right? It was outside of her house that one night, too. I mean, the thought crossed my mind, but I didn't want to bring it up around her. Later that same day, I was sitting on my roof. I would crawl out of my window from the second story and recline on the rooftop that hung over the garage. This gave me a good view of the neighborhood. I was telling my girlfriend about all that had happened so far, how I kept hearing strange sounds at night, and about how Jacques was found dead. I was in the middle of telling her how these sounds have been increasing in occurrence these past few days, when I heard it again, right there. It sounded louder, closer. Before I could ask if she heard it as well, she asked, What the hell was that? Confirming that she had heard it too. I then proceeded to tell her my theory on how it was connected to the creepy dog. When the weekend came, my girlfriend was in town to visit so I took her and my sister out to dinner. It was a nice meal. Steak, potatoes, soda. The latter is important because none of us had any alcohol during the meal. On the drive home, we were discussing the intricacies surrounding religion and faith. When Robin screamed, she pointed to the roof of a nearby neighbor's house. In my shock, I slammed on the brakes to get a better look. And that's when we saw it. And I mean really saw it. It was slender, 
almost to the point of absurdity, and its limbs were outstretched, joints bent in some unnatural posture. It had pale gray fur. Well, not fur, actually, it was skin. Its skin was pale gray and stretched extremely tight over its body. It was quite unnerving to look at. I sat there, with a foot on my brake, as I tried to make sense of what it was. My sister screamed, Go! I want to go home! Then the creature froze. Wait, I thought. Did it hear us? No, there's, there's no way it hurt us. The creature twitched, turning back to face us, once again hitting me with the eerie glow of its eyes. And then it skittered, like the way a lizard does, body close to the surface, over the other side of the roof, towards their backyard. I quickly called my neighbor as soon as we got home and told him that we saw something on his roof. In an attempt to not sound crazy, I said that it looked to be a huge possum crawling around the second story. His reply shocked me. Did it look like a monkey? Wait, what? No, it was... The wife and I have been seeing this monkey-looking thing hanging in the trees at night. We called animal control and they said it was probably some possum done escaped from a preserve. But I know what a possum looks like, and that thing ain't no possum. Uh, I was more than a little confused. I, I guess, I mean, it looked like a long skinny dog or something. We just saw it crawl. Yep, that's the one, little man. That's the one. Don't you worry, though, it just sits there staring at nothing. I figure if it means any harm, it would have done so already. He had interrupted me. I guess, I said. Well, I just wanted to let you know. It's pretty weird looking. <laughs> he laughed. Well, if it come in here, I'll knock it dead and mount it on the wall. And that was the end of that. Fast forward to a few weeks ago, early 2020. My wife, the girlfriend from the story, and I ended up moving to Florida, became parents, and were living the good life when my sister and parents came to visit us for the weekend. While the grandparents were enjoying putting our daughter to sleep, Robin suggested looking for creepy videos on YouTube. We're horror buffs, so why not, right? We came across a few scary story channels, but then soon came across another YouTube channel. Wish I could say the name of the channel in the video. But he had a numbered list of the creepiest things ever caught on camera. It went through various ghost sightings, unexplained occurrences, and even dabbled into the unexplained creature territory. This YouTuber started to talk about the rake, a creepypasta creature. As with the other items on the list, it had some photos and videos attached, all of which looked eerie, until we came across one photo, a photo of a long, emaciated creature sitting on all fours. Almost as an aside, Robin said, That looks like that thing we saw on the roof. Do you remember that, Kuya? I looked up and squinted. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I'm surprised you remember that. My wife added, She's right, I remember it as well, and it did look very similar to this. We laughed it off as a strange experience and proceeded to watch the video, which more or less said, 
Supposedly, the rake lives within deep forests. Reports have also sighted the creature in places like Louisiana. We all froze. The hair on the back of my neck stood up as it all came crashing back. I looked up to see my wife and Robin in similar instances of awe. Well, crap. Now that's creepy, I said. The video proceeded to show more convincing footage of the rake, with glowing eyes, via a video from a sewer tunnel. You probably know what video I'm talking about. As I watched it, I began to feel uneasy. Those eyes, they pierced through me. I mean, that's exactly what I remember staring back at me from way before. That's even worse, I started, because that's how I remember the eyes look. I cut myself off, then the creature in the video ducked out of view, moving in that same fluid yet jittery motion as it did on that roof. My wife and my sister froze, both visibly shaken. This sparked a big discussion on cryptids and the like, ending with both my wife and sister telling me to share our story. Someone needs to know something, they said. A thing I forgot to mention earlier was the smell. There was always this dry, musty, rotted smell lingering in the air whenever we remember seeing it, but I couldn't find anything that talked about how the rake smells. So, whoever's listening, did we really encounter the rake back home? Is it possible that there's more than one of these things out there? I mean, what else could it be? I know it's hard to explain, but the creature in that video, it was so similar. The movement, those eyes, one does not forget a sight like that. Not at all. Especially once you've seen it on your neighbor's roof. The Paintings from Mystic Mutic I used to work for a real estate company where I'd survey locations to see whether or not they were worth flipping. Basically, I spent my days in abandoned buildings, more than anyone should. It was a good thing my teenage years were occupied by some light urban exploration. While most times I went to these locations with one of my coworkers, a burly man named Sam, but there were a handful of times when I'd be sent down on my own. This instance ended up being one such solo trip. It had snowed the previous night, and while it was shoveled or melted off the main walkways, there was still enough of it to be troublesome. Sam and I were supposed to meet at the house, but he had texted me during the drive, saying something about how his kid was sick, and he couldn't make it. If anything goes wrong, call me, he'd ended the message with. I sighed. Sure, it was understandable, but I hated going into such broken-down places on my own. Just seemed too dangerous for my taste. At least, for my adult taste. Even with the ease that I opened the door, it was apparently enough force to nearly tear it from its hinges. With a glance at the rusted hinges, I made a few notes in my book before stepping inside. I closed the door behind me in an effort to keep out as much of the cold as I could. The interior was in better shape than I imagined, with furniture tossed about rather than the structural damage I was anticipating. The first floor checked out and was better than I imagined. 
A few strokes of the pen, and I moved on to check upstairs. With a huff, I picked up one of the fallen shelves that had blocked the stairs. Crap, I thought aloud, looking at the holes that all but littered the steps. With cautious footsteps, as though walking on a tightrope, I eased up the stairs, hoping to make it to the second floor in one piece. This floor was where the bedrooms and bathroom were located, but it didn't look anything like the first. Where the first had been just a bit out of sorts, the second looked to have suffered through a storm. The walls were torn and hole-ridden. Torn mattresses were thrown against walls or onto the floor, and the floorboards looked dangerous. Though I tried to keep my footsteps on the solid-looking floorboards, one gave way and a sharp pain jolted through my foot, which was burrowed into the wood. My boots ensured the wood hadn't scraped against my foot, but the pain wasn't leaving any time soon. Even before I pulled it out, I knew my pants were not so lucky. The fabric by the ankle had been turned to Swiss cheese, and I cursed. One hand reached toward the nearby doorframe, as the other searched for anything else to gain some leverage and pull my foot out. I found a string that seemed to lead up to an attic space, and decided that that would work well enough. With both hands gripping these objects, I pulled down and thrusted my leg upward. There was a sudden rush of pain, but I was able to free myself. But it was with this motion that the ladder-like staircase was pulled down, and I went crashing to the floor. It was nothing short of a miracle that I didn't fall through those floorboards and land somewhere in the living room below. I jumped to my feet and dusted myself off, all the while cursing up a storm. Finally, I looked up. To my surprise, these pull-down stairs were the most well-kept thing in the house, and they looked brand new. Curiosity overwhelmed me. I sent a quick message to James, telling him the place was a dump, but I was checking the attic now. Maybe because I wanted to make sure that if anything happened... Sam would realize and get me out of there. Shaking off the pain in my foot, I tested the first few steps and the rails that bordered them. Convinced they were safe enough, I made a slow ascent. The only sliver of light came from the breaks in the wood planks that covered the window. It wasn't enough to properly maneuver, so I pulled out my flashlight, and I nearly leapt back down the steps when I turned it on. The space was cluttered with images of people, all different subjects and different mediums. There were paintings over there, pictures along the wall, Polaroids hanging from the ceiling, all of very different people with one thing in common. None of them looked normal. There was a distorted aspect about each of them. Gangly limbs, jagged teeth and mouths much too wide, eyes too far apart, too animalistic. Skin shades of green or yellow that only came with sickness, bodies set at impossible bone-shattering angles, an array of indents into the skin as though hands had squeezed the flesh. Something was wrong about each picture, and the longer I stared, the harder my stomach lurched upward. I'd seen some weird things in my time, but nothing so gut-wrenching as those images. 
I clambered back down the steps, with no regard for safety or caution, causing the true instability of such new-looking steps to make itself known. My already injured foot broke through one of the rails, and I lost my balance before I was even halfway down. While I remember tumbling downward, I don't remember hitting those sketchy floorboards, but nobody really remembers passing out. They just remember waking up in a strange position at a time of day they don't remember venturing out into, or another space entirely. Next thing I remember is waking up to the sound of Sam calling out to me from the entrance. Turns out I'd fallen through those darned floorboards and had broken a few bones in the process. I also sustained a concussion which may have been what knocked me out in the first place. Good thing it had too, as all that pain would have been a fresh kind of hell. All because of a room filled with creepy paintings. Speaking of those paintings, there wasn't any trace of the attic I claimed to have climbed up into. By the time Sam had arrived with the police, the stairs were nowhere to be found, and unlike myself, he wasn't about to go exploring. The ratty old building was condemned, and eventually knocked down, replaced with a hotel. The same one that I found myself staying just a few days ago. It's the reason I'm writing these incidents out to begin with. It was late when I checked into the hotel, but all I could think about was getting to a bed as fast as possible. If I was focused enough to really look at the lobby, then I'd have gotten the heck out of there. Instead, I just dragged myself to the room, and all but collapsed down onto the too-stiff mattress. I was drifting off when a loud bang had me bolting upright. I sat there trying to steady my breathing and looked around the room, trying to listen to anything else. For a while, there was nothing. Then there was this rhythmic knocking. Slow knocks, as though someone was asking permission to be let in. It would be slightly understandable if the sound had come from the door instead of the wall behind me, like the person in the other room was knocking against the wall, knowing that's where the bed was on the other side. My heart leapt into my throat and sweat coated my skin. A curse slipped from my lips as I reached back to pound on the wall. In the deepest voice I could muster, I yelled for whoever it was in the other room to stop. The sound came to a halt and the silence returned. After a few minutes of nothing, I collapsed back down and tried to get back to sleep. No such luck. The knocking started up as soon as my head hit the pillow, and continued on throughout the night. I thought about going over there and causing a scene, but I decided to let it go. It was just one night, not worth the energy. Somehow I drifted off and was awakened by the bright morning sun hitting my eyes, as my exhausted state kept me from closing the blinds. I set up and following a groan-filled stretch, I got my things together to check out, more eager than ever to get home and into my own bed. When I got into the hall, though, I stopped, and I found myself looking over to the room beside me. I wanted to see just who was bothering me all night, or to wake them up in the middle of their sleep. I made my way over. It wasn't a room at all, or at least not for the guests, it was the office for the hotel's manager with its door propped open, and one of the managers, 
An older gentleman, with a graying beard, sat at the desk. Startled, I knocked on the door as I eased it open, greeting the man with a confused smile. Um, I didn't know this was an office. I heard a knocking against the wall all night long, and I thought there was a kid staying over here, I explained. Just wanted to let you know in case there was something wrong. The man apologized profusely for my experience and offered me a cup of coffee from his private espresso machine, something I couldn't say no to. When I stepped inside, though, eager for the coffee that would put the sludge they usually offered to shame, I froze. My stomach lurched upward, and a pain, more memory than anything real, shot through my leg. Hanging on the wall across from the manager's desk was none other than one of those distorted paintings. This one of a woman, tall and gangly, standing beneath a tree that was entirely too small to be giving off any sort of shade for her. She was smiling, head tilted at an uncomfortable angle, but not toward the painter, instead down at a child, a totally normal-looking child. It made her appearance look all the more grotesque. The promise of coffee had left my mind, and without another word, I apologized and ran out of the room. I nearly knocked over a few carts on my way out to the car, fumbling with my keys all the while. They fell to the floor in the lobby, and when I reached down to grab them, I noticed the painting hanging on the wall behind the reception desk. I recognized it instantly. It was the first painting I'd laid eyes on in that forsaken attic. That of a family dressed in Victorian clothing, sitting on a plush couch with a bouquet of flowers in the mother's hand. They all looked mostly normal, save for the mouths that were too wide and the eyes far too black and soulless to be that of a human. I'm surprised that I didn't get pulled over for how far over the speed limit I'd gone to cut my once two-hour car ride down to a little over an hour. The whole ride home, all I could think about were those pictures and what sort of demented mind it took to create them. What sort of person would want to save them and hang them up in their office, as decor for a hotel? I couldn't wrap my head around it, not even as I got home and my wife surprised me with a present. I'm sure you know deep down where this is going. I had to write it down, get it out there, I can't explain my experience or why these pictures just keep popping up in my life, but I just want it out. I wish I'd never found them in the first place. I wish I'd never climbed that ladder, never investigated the second floor, never went into that house on my own. Because I know now it's a choice that will follow me forever. The choice I will never get away from. I just hope you don't make the same mistake. Bigfoot in Mexico, from Little Mexico. I was born and raised in California, and this happened in Mexico. I always go to Mexico with my three other cousins, Abel, Isaac, and Dimian, along with my aunts, uncles, and our grandpa. We go yearly every summer, from June to August. We would stay at a ranch in pretty much the middle of nowhere, when you came down the main road, you would see a house on your right, and about a couple hundred yards more and another house, same thing with three more houses to go. 
Then we had our horse stables, and then there was that hill going up towards what I'd call a desert, with a bunch of dead trees and cacti. In the middle of this was a big pond with nothing but water. We had cows on that property, too. We called it El Drasno, which means the beach, because if you looked at it from above, it was shaped like one. Now, the day started normal. We ate, fed the horses, messed around for a bit. Then we all got the idea to go to El Drasno and stay at night, see what happens. We got ourselves a tent, some blankets, some dried-up meat like chicken and beef, a lighter and matches, a flashlight and marshmallows. Then we set off around five, because we knew it would be dark by about eight. El Drasno was about twenty minutes away. We made it there at around 5.30. Once we got there, we decided on a place to make camp and began to put things down. I'd say overall we had a pretty cozy spot. Our next task was to get wood and sticks for the fire. By this time, it was about six. So two of us stayed at camp and two of us went to go get sticks. While we were getting them, I got this feeling in my body. It was like I was being watched. Abel told me if I felt something like that, it meant something was wrong. I told him, yeah, it's like we're not alone out here. He replied, I don't know about that, but let's try not to worry about it too much. We made it back five minutes later with a bunch of sticks, an amount we thought would be enough until we fell asleep. We made our fire and decided to eat our dried up meat when we all began to hear a cow just making some strange noises. It didn't sound like your typical, regular moo from a cow. It was more like something was hurting it. The sound of it still gives me goosebumps when I remember. At that moment, Dinian said, in a little bit of a concerned voice, What in the world? Sounds like a cow when you give them their vaccines. Sounds painful. Isaac said we should check out what's happening. I was already pretty shaken up by this. We went out to investigate, and after a few minutes, the sounds had died down. But we did manage to find the cow. What we saw was horrifying. There lay a dead cow in the pasture, with all of its stomach ripped open. The head itself was fine, but the neck looked to be bent too much to the side. And the stomach part was ugh, just disgusting. There was a rancid smell in the air, too. It was just a mess, and we were all terrified. Abel said, I think we need to leave. But Isaac said he thought it would be a smarter idea to stay a bit longer. We said okay, and stayed. None of us ate any more meat. We were all disgusted and had no appetite. A couple of hours passed by, but nothing else happened so far. We were just talking, messing around, trying to forget what we'd seen. Another two hours passed by, and it's about midnight or so. We're all ready to get into the tent. We lay down next to each other, and all of us pass out pretty quickly. About ten minutes or so later, we wake up hearing this horrible sound. It sounded like a woman's scream, but distorted. I jolted up and asked, what on God's earth was that? 
hoping someone had an answer, but knowing they wouldn't. Isaac once again wanted to go check it out. He grabbed a flashlight and begins to go outside, and we follow him closely and slowly behind. We're scanning our surroundings when Demian says, in a shaky voice, Guys, I think I see something. He pointed towards a patch of dead trees. Isaac focused the flashlight in that direction, and what I saw then, it'll be engraved in my mind until I die. There was this tall, hairy thing. It looked similar to a person, but there was hair covering its entire body, and it was far too tall to be a normal man. It was maybe eight feet tall, and looked really strong, as if he could pull a tree from the ground if he wanted to. When we looked closer, we saw stains of red covering its mouth, which we assumed was blood. Its eyes were brown or hazel in color. It saw us watching it and looked back, showing its teeth in a way that reminded me of a smile. We all booked it back to the ranch after that. We left our things, but at that point we didn't care. Once we got back to the closest house, which was Abel's, we all rushed inside. We made a lot of noise, which made my aunt and uncle wake up. At first, they were mad, but then my aunt asked why it looked like we all saw a ghost. We explained. She told us we just needed to get some rest, and we could discuss it in the morning. But I don't think any of us went to sleep that night. When morning did come, we went to go eat at our grandpa's house. In Spanish, he said to us, You guys seem pretty quiet today. We told him the story, too but he actually had a positive response. He believed us and said, you guys finally met him. And he drank a bit of his coffee. We were intrigued and wanted to know what he was talking about. So we asked him what he meant. So he told us about an encounter he had with the same kind of creature when he went to go count cows one day. He called it El Martin. He said that it only came around when it smelled blood. The Black Beast of Hell's Canyon From Mr. Smith Anyone who has ever been to the Rockies, and especially anyone who has ever lived there, will tell you that the mountains are colder than they look in all those old cowboy movies. It's a grasping cold that makes your whole body ache, unlike the dull, numbing cold of Michigan or Pennsylvania in the wintertime. And that cloying, gripping cold is precisely what I found myself experiencing on a dark October morning in Idaho, not quite two years ago. I've been a pretty avid hunter and outdoorsman for most of my life, and ever since I turned 18 I've been applying for the tag lottery in a few states out west, hoping for a chance to hunt some mountain goat. Finally, after several years of applying, my number came up in Idaho, and I soon received my tag in the mail. Unfortunately, due to a few scheduling conflicts, I couldn't go on my hunt until the last week of October, towards the end of the legal season, and well past the mid-weather days of August and September. Now, a hunt for mountain goats is one of the most physically demanding and skill-intensive endeavors a hunter can undertake in North America, 
a true adventure of a lifetime. Even in ideal conditions, you have to hike steep mountains, have a good set of binoculars and sharp eyes, know how to camp efficiently, and of course you need to be a crack shot. Late in the season, such a hunt becomes even more strenuous, due to the shorter hours of daylight and the more hostile weather. Not to mention the fact a lot of local predators are in overdrive, trying to bulk up before the lean winter months. However, I wasn't about to let a little bit of cold wind and snow come between me and one of my ultimate dream hunts, so I immediately began planning. I was worried I'd have to make the cross-country drive, but luckily for me, an old college friend of mine was working as an engineer for a big cobalt mine in eastern Idaho, and he was willing to let me ship most of my gear to him ahead of time. Besides, he had an elk tag that he wanted to fill for the season, so we could camp together and help one another hunt and scout. In the final few weeks leading up to my trip, I began checking the local news from the area I'd be hunting, just to keep an eye out for severe weather or other hazards. As a side effect, I got to see all the small-town news from western Idaho as well. Most of it was pretty mundane, but one story that caught my eye was the mysterious disappearances of two hunters who were last seen on a swath of public land just southeast of where my buddy and I would be hunting. Of course, people go missing from big state parks and public hunting lands all the time, and they're usually found alive in just a few days, thanks to the hard work of trained professionals. Maybe they strayed too far from the trails and got lost, or maybe they took a tumble in some rocky ground and hurt themselves. Typically nothing too out of the ordinary. But occasionally, there are accidents and animal attacks that people don't walk away from. So I always pay attention to stories like that, in order to prevent something similar from happening to me. The day of the big trip finally arrived, and after a long flight and an even longer drive, I found myself at a little hotel in a small town called Slate Creek, not too far from the huge tract of public land we would go hunting on. My friend arrived less than an hour later. We quickly got settled in before heading down the street to grab some supper at a local diner. We had a good time and caught up over dinner, but at one point I happened to look up at the TV on the wall, and the headline scrolling across the bottom of the screen ominously read, Missing Hunters Found Slain Near Hell's Canyon, Mountain Lion Attack Suspected. This definitely caught my attention, because a mountain lion won't usually attack more than one person, so there is safety in numbers. However, on the rare occasions that they do attack a group of more than one person, the attacks aren't usually fatal. A couple of fit hikers or a hunting party of grown adults is usually more than capable of forcing even a determined cougar to retreat. This is especially true for two hunters, who would certainly have been armed with rifles, and probably would have been toting pistols around, and skinning knives as well. Any mountain lion capable of mauling two heavily armed outdoorsmen to death simultaneously was certainly not one I wanted to meet. An adult cougar can have a territorial range of up to 300 square miles, and this put the region of our hunt easily within its patrol range, considering we'd be camped out and hunting right on the edge of Hell's Canyon. However, my buddy and I had talked previously about the possibility of running into predators during the hunt. We had packed accordingly, 
with him carrying a 10mm automatic and me lugging my 44 Magnum. Even still, we decided to take some extra precautions. To that end, we got up early the next day, and after I had enjoyed what would likely be my last hot shower for a week, we met up at a trading post in town which dealt in all sorts of camping and hunting gear. We picked up a few perimeter bells for our campsite, and we each bought a box of hard-cast bullets designed for penetrating thick and muscular hides of predators. They may kick you like a mule, but they certainly don't play around when it comes to stopping power. While in the trading post, we asked the owner, a quiet man of about fifty, with salt-and-pepper hair, and skin weathered from decades of outdoorsmanship, if he had ever seen anything like the cougar attack that had been on the news last night. I was hoping he could give us some advice on protecting our camp, but what we got instead was far more unsettling. I've seen the wilderness out here kill a lot of people in a lot of ways, but it's been a long time since I saw anything as brutal as this. Usually if you find more than one person at a time that's been killed, it was the work of something walking on two legs, not four, if you catch my drift. Every now and then, a couple of hikers will walk up on a sow grizzly with cubs, and will find them all mangled up in a week or so. But bears always leave clear tracks behind, and it's not the right time of year for them to be raising cubs anyway. No, sir. The last time anything like this happened was about two decades back, when we had a whole rash of weird happenings. Everything from house cats and hens all the way up to prize-winning bulls were found gutted, mauled, chewed on, and otherwise turned into a fine red paste for nigh on a month. It sure put a damper on business around here, I'll tell you that much. The rangers said it was a cougar back then, too, but I didn't believe them then any more than I do now. My buddy and I looked at one another, uneasily before turning back to the store owner and asking, If it wasn't a cougar, then what was it? The man behind the counter simply grinned and continued his tale. Well, after a couple weeks of livestock getting mauled, some local ranchers decided to take matters into their own hands. They went out hunting one night and bagged themselves three of the biggest mountain lions anybody around here had ever seen. And when the rangers examined the cougars, they found that all three of them were related. You see, if a mother puma has more than one kit, she'll teach them all to hunt in the same way at the same time. The rangers were thinking that the mother of those three had brought them up hunting livestock, so that was all they knew. A couple of folks weren't so sure, though. One old-timer that lived up in the hills told stories of a behemoth cat that had been stalking the woods around his cabin, and it wasn't just some mountain lion either. He said it stood taller than even the largest mountain lion, and its pelt was black as sin. This man had fought in two wars, but said that this creature scared him stiff, and not two nights later the worst incident of the whole string happened right here in town. One of the rangers, some rookie who had just moved here from California, was walking back to the ranger station from the diner. Keep in mind, that's a walk of less than 300 yards, and the rest of the rangers at the station never saw him again. They didn't find anything left of that boy the next day, 
save for a slick of blood and his freshly shined shoes, left at the scene of the attack like he'd been plucked right up out of them. Not long after that, though, a group of rangers was seen sweeping the town and heading off into the wilderness. And from what I've heard, they followed that thing's tracks all the way up to an old silver mine back in the hills. None of the rangers have ever talked much about exactly what they saw up there, but several hikers in the area reported hearing a hail of gunfire right at dusk. Sure enough, the killings and maulings never happened again after that night. But I'll tell you what, if there's another one of those things out there roaming around the wilds now, then you can bet your bottom dollar I won't be sticking around to see how it works out this time around. It was a hell of a story to be sure, and it took me some time to take it in. But it couldn't be true, right? Not all true. I mean, no cat that big and that aggressive could possibly remain hidden on public game land. I told myself. The two of us thanked the man for the info and paid for our ammo and supplies, and after that, we got on our way as quickly as we could. Our time was limited, and listening to the man's story had put us a bit behind schedule. Our last stop on the way out of town was at the ranger station, to check in and inform the rangers of where we'd be and what we would be doing. There was only one officer on duty since it was so late in the season, so I figured we'd probably be able to get through the check-in pretty quickly, but as we answered his questions about our firearms and tags, I thought back to the outfitter's story. I asked the old ranger if there had been any mutilated animals found recently, or if there were any dangerous wildlife in the area that we should be aware of. After all, we would be camping back in the wilderness for close to a full week. The ranger froze for a few moments, and he quietly zipped my .30-06 rifle back into its case before raising his eyes to meet mine. I suppose you heard about those two bodies over at Hell's Canyon. To tell you the truth, there's a lot of nooks and crannies in these hills where something could be hiding, but we've got our best men out there working to keep the place safe. Still, you two should be extra careful out there, and if I were you, I wouldn't split up. I'm really not supposed to do this, but if you've got a notepad handy, I'll give you boys our audio frequency. And you just tell us if you find anything unusual out there. This was way out of the ordinary, since game wardens and rangers never give out their radio frequency. If everyone in the area with a radio could listen in on them, a poacher could have a heyday with all the unsecured information. For the Park Service to be handing out secure channel information, they must have been truly desperate for as many eyes and ears as possible. To make things even more unsettling, according to the sign-in book, there were only four other hunters in this section of the wilderness. Two individuals and one duo. Of course, there could be others out there that hadn't signed in. An extremely stupid idea in such a large and dangerous wilderness. But this late in the season, I certainly didn't expect the area to be crowded. Even though being so isolated and alone was less than ideal, if there was truly something dangerous roaming the area, I have to admit I was relieved that I wouldn't have to worry about anyone else spooking the game. We finished our check-in at the ranger station by noon, and it was finally time to head back into the wilderness for what would hopefully be the hunt of a lifetime. 
In fact, it would definitely be a once-in-a-lifetime experience, but not in the way we initially expected. We drove my buddy's pickup as far as we could go along winding gravel roads, well back into the public game lands, and when we finally found a good area to park on the side of the road, we packed all our camping supplies into our two huge backpacks, starting to hike even further into the wilderness on foot. After all, if you really want to find where all the record book animals are, you have to go where most hunters won't. All in all, we probably hiked a little over a mile further uphill to get to a good base camp location. We finally got settled into a nice little clearing surrounded by dense forest by about 6 p.m. The sun was just setting over the beautiful Rocky Mountain landscape. We pitched our tents and set up a few lines of string with small bells on them around the edges of the clearing, and then we finally stopped for a simple but filling supper of canned soup cooked over our small camp stove. I was so tired from hiking, and so happy to be out in the wilderness on such an adventure, that I completely forgot about all the strange rumors and unsettling happenings. The next two days were free of any weird incidents. We scouted the ridgelines and timber thickets, searching for just the right place to set up the perfect shot, and the whole time we never saw anything out of the ordinary. Every now and again, though, we would hear our handheld radios crackle softly, and we would always stop what we were doing and listen close. Most of the time it was just a ranger checking in and giving his location, but more than once the voice on the other side was uneasy, as one of the rangers called in finding a severely mutilated elk or mule deer. What was even more ominous was that if we checked our maps and marked out the locations where mutilated animals had been found, a pattern started to emerge, and it looked like whatever was leaving the mauled animals in its wake could be headed our way. At the end of the third day, we had found the absolute perfect place to lie in wait for a big billy goat. We were planning on getting there early the next morning. We were both bone-tired from hiking all day, but as we sat around the warm fire waiting for our dinner of sausages and hash browns to finish cooking. We both became aware of an approaching sound in the woods beyond the clearing. Both of us were reluctant to leave the warmth of the fire, but finally I made myself stand up and head toward the tree line with my forty-four in one hand and a lantern in the other. There was barely a sliver of the waning moon in the sky, so my visibility was limited to how far my lantern could reach in the cold black darkness. The sounds grew closer and closer, and soon the crackle of leaves and branches was accompanied by heavy breathing. I brought my revolver up and pulled the hammer back, bracing myself for some horrible demon cat to come bursting out of the shadows of the woods. Instead, I heard what sounded like a human voice call out from about fifty feet into the tree line. Hello? Anyone there? Relieved, I called back. Yeah, there's a clearing not far in this direction. Just come towards my voice slowly. What are you doing out here this late without a light? A few moments later, a pair of men dressed in camouflage clothes and safety orange toboggans stumbled out of the woods and into the light of my lantern. The two men looked haggard and spooked, but after taking a moment to catch their breath, they introduced themselves. 
I recognized their names from the sign-in sheet at the ranger station, and they explained that they had followed a wounded elk into the brush and had gotten lost without their flashlights. Being lost in the woods at night is a scary enough concept on its own, but what they told me next sent a real shiver down my spine. They explained that they had shot a fine bull elk from across a gully, and before they could track him through the brush, they had to hike down the side of one mountain and then up the slope of another. By the time they crossed the gulch, found the blood trail, and began tracking the wounded bull, it had been over an hour. They spent another 45 minutes or so following blood splatter and broken branches through the brush. When they finally came to a clearing, they hadn't found exactly the site they had been expecting. Sure enough, what they found was the carcass of the elk sitting there in the middle of the clearing, but it had been torn apart. Limbs and bones tossed aside, entrails had been torn out and devoured. Large hunks of meat still hung on the bones in places, so whatever had been going at it had had its fill with the innards, or had simply been mutilating the carcass for fun. Both hunters said they had gotten an extremely uneasy feeling there, and they'd been debating on whether or not to try and salvage the rack, when they realized that darkness was beginning to fall. Yeah, so we hightailed it out of there as quick as we could. We must have gotten turned around somewhere in the underbrush, because we certainly didn't end up back where we started. Thank goodness we finally found you two, or we might still have been wandering around till morning. The two of them were clearly exhausted, so we offered to let them share our campsite for the night, throwing a few extra sausages on the griddle. They thanked us, and said they'd be on their way at first light. As we ate, I asked if they could think of any more details that might reveal the identity of whatever had mauled the wounded elk. They said they'd found a few footprints, but in the fading light and the mud and blood from the carcass, they hadn't really been able to tell exactly how large the prince had been, though they both agreed that the tracks looked like those of a mountain lion, or perhaps a bobcat. Moreover, they both reported feeling like they were being watched during their walk through the woods in the dark. We never saw anything, but occasionally we'd hear a rustling in the brush, or we'd catch a quick glimpse of movement out of the corner of our eyes, or all the hairs on the back of our necks would stand up all of a sudden but we figured it might have just been our heads playing tricks on us in the dark. We talked for a few more minutes as we made our plans for the morning, but soon our exhaustion got the better of us, and we all decided to hit the hay for the night. We doused the fire, and soon we retired to our tents. My buddy would be staying with me in my tent that night, and the other hunters would be sharing his tent. It didn't take long for all of us to fall asleep, since a light snow had begun to fall and our warm quilts and sleeping bags had never seemed more cozy or inviting. At some point during the night, however, I woke up from my peaceful slumber. I'm a pretty light sleeper, so at first I figured my friend had just shifted in his sleep or something. But soon I heard it. The soft tinkling of bells... Something had bumped the small line of bells strung around the perimeter of the campsite. Now at first, I assumed it was probably one of the two guests. Maybe one of them had gotten up to use the bathroom out in the trees. And maybe they had bumped the trip line by accident. But then I heard it again, louder this time. 
It was like someone was playing with the string and bells, swatting and jerking the line to elicit the quiet jingle of the little tin bells. Again and again, the string thrummed from an impact, and the bells tinkled as though they were tossed around on the line. By this point, I was starting to get nervous, and I reached down to the floor of the tent next to my sleeping bag to find my forty-four in its holster. I'm not sure if I made a noise as I moved or if whatever it was just got bored with the line of bells, but as soon as I set up, the jingling stopped, and the night again fell silent, with no noise whatsoever except for the soft crinkle of falling snow. The next morning we rose early, coming out of our warm cocoons at 3.50. We brewed a quick cup of coffee in the morning darkness, and munched on some trail mix as we got our backpacks ready. However, when we were about to set out for the ridgeline, which we had found the day before, our flashlights caught something menacing pressed into the fresh snow. Coming into the campsite, from the same place where the two hunters had stumbled out of the woods the night before, was a trail of big paw prints. They followed the exact path those two hunters had taken from the edge of the woods to the fire pit, and then they made a large circle around the tent the other two men were sleeping in, before crossing the campsite once more, and ending before the line of bells on the far side of the site, only to continue again about fifteen feet further into the woods. It was like something had jumped the bells to exit the clearing, all without making a sound. So what I did here the night before must have been the thing playing, or rather testing the bells on the way into the campsite. Maybe it was amusing itself with our security measures, measures it was smart enough to avoid triggering on the way out of the site. Now I was definitely creeped out and I decided that this, combined with the story of the mutilated elk from the day before, qualified as unusual enough to report to the ranger service. I called it in over the radio, giving the sleepy ranger on duty our location, and quietly rolling my eyes at his reprimand for using a secure frequency. He said that somebody would be out this way in a few hours, and to just stay put. Of course, if we wanted to be in position on time... We couldn't afford to wait a few hours. We opted instead to just leave a note taped to the inside flap of the other hunter's tent, before going on our way. It was a bone-chillingly cold morning to be hiking up and down steep mountain ridges with a heavy pack and a rifle, but I knew there was no other way I'd be bagging a nice goat, so we continued on our way with dogged determination. We finally made it to the base of the ridgeline that we would be setting up on, and we decided to take a brief break before hiking up to the last hill, getting into position. As we were sitting there at the base of the mountain ridge, eating a few more handfuls of trail mix to keep our energy up, we kept catching glimpses of movement out of the corners of our eyes in the lavender light of pre-dawn. It was never anything we could focus on, but every now and again it would seem as if a shadow in the trees would move, or a new shadow would appear where there hadn't been one a moment ago. It was more than enough to set me on edge, and I quietly cycled my rifle's bolt. I put a round into the chamber, just in case. Pretty soon we noticed that the sky was getting brighter, so we decided to go ahead and hike up to the top of the ridge then. We made it about halfway up the steep hill, before my buddy pointed out just how eerily calm the morning was. 
We hadn't noticed it on the way there due to the strenuous nature of the hike, combined with the fact that it's really not out of the ordinary for everything to be silent in the woods at 4 a.m., on the morning after a snowstorm, no less. However, now that the sun was beginning to light up the sky, small animals should have been out skittering around. Birds should have been flitting from branch to branch as elk bugled in the distance. But there was nothing. Just the occasional plop of a gob of snow falling from a tree branch. We made it to the top of the ridge, and boy, let me tell you, that view alone was worth the early morning trek. Frost glistened on every tree in the valley below, and a serene blue-white carpet of fresh snow covered the opposite peak like icing on a cake. I took it all in for a moment before getting down on my stomach and setting my pack up as a rest for my rifle, as my friend quietly rummaged in his pack for his binoculars. Just then, however, a powerful feeling of being watched came over me, and when I rolled over onto my side to look around, I nearly soiled myself in fright. About thirty yards up the ridge to my right, a pitch-black shape sat perched like a gargoyle on a snow-covered rock. It had the distinct profile of a big cat, but its fur was so dark that I couldn't make out any features of its body, except for the piercing amber-colored eyes that stared right back at me. It was massive, certainly bigger than any mountain lion I'd ever seen. Furthermore, its ears stood straight up, coming to tufted points like a lynx or bobcat, I did not know exactly what it was, but I knew without a doubt that it wasn't there to ask for a cup of sugar. I kicked my buddy lightly with my outstretched leg, and it didn't take him long to spot the predator eyeing us from afar. We were stuck in a standoff, not wanting to make any sudden movements, as the cat just stared at us from its perch. My revolver was strapped on my hip, and while it would have been easier to aim at close range with it, it would be slow and awkward to bring up from my prone position. I heard my friend pull his 10mm out of its holster, but he was in a bad shooting position as well. Instead, my best option would be to turn and fire with my rifle. I flicked the safety off, and its distinctive clicks sent the cat into a low pouncing position. It began to slink down off its rocky vantage point. I knew it was now or never, and I whispered to my friend, you ready? And he whispered back, Go for it. So I did. As quickly as I could, praying harder than I ever had before, I willed around to bring my rifle to bear, and I'll never forget the sight of making eye contact with that thing through my scope. I fired, the shot echoing across the silent mountain range like the bang of a judge's gavel. I could not see anything except for a blur of movement in my scope, but my friend later told me that I had hit it, just under its massive collarbone. He said that he saw a spray of coal-black hair come off the beast as it charged. The creature screeched loud enough to wake the dead, and it tumbled, rolling downhill a few yards before getting back to its feet and running off through the snow-covered woods with alarming speed as my friend fired after it with his pistol. We both just sat there for a few moments, collecting ourselves and coming down off the adrenaline high. There was no way we were going to go chasing after that thing, but we also didn't want to stay there on the ridge in case it decided to come back. Besides, our hunt was ruined for the day anyway, 
as so much gunfire certainly would have scared away any animals in the area. We decided to make our way back to the campsite as soon as we could. Before we left, however, I wanted to have a look at the thing's tracks to see if they matched the ones at our campsite. The paw prints in the snow were enormous, and they were clearly feline. Cats keep their claws retracted as they walk, leaving only the indentations of the pads of their paws. Still, even the largest cougar tracks I've ever seen looked small in comparison to these, and they were pressed deeply into the snow, even penetrating to the mud underneath in some places, indicating that the animal had to have weighed an enormous amount. As I surveyed the tracks, I found a few tufts of oily black fur, but there wasn't a single drop of blood anywhere to be seen, despite the fact that I had nailed it dead center with a thirty-aught six at less than twenty yards. I was curious for sure, but certainly not curious enough to follow the thing's tracks into the brush, so as soon as we both made sure our handguns were loaded and our holsters were unbuttoned, we got on our way. We made good time heading back downhill, and much to our relief, a little bit of the life seemed to have returned to the forest, with nuthatches chirping and squirrels scampering through the fresh snow. We had made it about two-thirds of the way back towards our campsite, when we encountered two men in rangers' uniforms coming up the trail in the opposite direction. They were armed to the teeth, with one toting a black tactical shotgun, and the other carrying a semi-automatic rifle. They both had body armor over their green uniforms, with plenty of extra ammunition practically dripping off of them. They asked us if the camp just down the trail was ours, and when we said yes, they both breathed a sigh of relief, saying that they had heard our flurry of gunfire earlier and had assumed the worst. We continued hiking hurriedly back towards the campsite, and as we walked, we told the two rangers what happened. When we described the animal to them, however, they both shot one another a dour look before saying, Yeah, you boys sure are lucky to have survived a cougar attack like that. My friend and I looked at one another in stunned silence for a moment, and asked them if they had even been listening to our description. I've seen cougars, heck, I've hunted cougars, and I've been hunted by cougars. This thing was not a damn cougar, I said, frustratedly. The rangers looked at me sympathetically for a moment before continuing to hike in silence, but by then we were nearly to the campsite. Although when we emerged from the trees at the edge of the clearing, it looked much different than when we had left it a few hours ago. The whole clearing was crawling with people. Some were rangers decked out in tactical gear, like the two that had come to meet us, and others were rangers in regular uniforms. Some were dressed in the blue and gold uniforms of local police, too. Cameras flashed left and right in the woods beyond the clearing, and our tents had both been neatly packed and placed in an organized pile, along with our cooler and a few other things at one edge of the campsite. The other two hunters from the night before were nowhere to be seen. Our jaws hung open in disbelief, and soon enough, a tall man in a clean and well-fitted ranger's uniform approached us telling us that he believed it was in our best interest to pack up and leave the area as quickly as possible. We did agree that the campsite didn't feel safe anymore, but when we asked to simply relocate our camp to another section of the game reserve, his expression turned dark, and he retorted with, I asked you boys to leave. Now you're going to cooperate, right? 
I looked at my friend again, and he simply shrugged, unsure of what other options we really had. After a few seconds, I simply gave in and said, You got it, Chief. I'll head to the truck, before grabbing one of my tents and slinging it over my shoulder. When we reached the state road where my buddy had parked the truck, there must have been at least 15 or 20 other vehicles there, lining the shoulder of the small gravel road in both directions. We packed the truck, and we returned to town in silence. Once we were back to civilization, I checked back into the small inn we had stayed at on our first night in town. It would have been cheaper to stay there for the next few days than to reschedule my flight last minute. My buddy left for home on the other end of the state the next morning, and we never said another word about the bizarre experience. I spent the next three days quietly milling around town. One evening, while I was back at the local diner, I caught a snippet of local news broadcast featuring an interview with the same steely-eyed ranger that had told us to leave the reserve. Following the interview, there were a few snapshots of men in rangers' uniforms posing with the carcass of a moderately-sized cougar, and the headline on screen emphatically stated, Cougar Behind Hunter Deaths Trapped by Local Rangers. I finally returned home, albeit empty-handed, and I soon got back to my daily routine of work. However, less than a month later, a mysterious envelope with no return address arrived in the mail, and when I opened it, there was a full set of Idaho hunting tags with next year's season date stamped on them. Everything was there. Mule deer, elk, black bear, even mountain goat, all pre-approved and stamped with my name. Underneath the set of tags... There was a folded piece of stationery, marked with the Forestry Service logo, which bore the handwritten words, Every year, say nothing. I haven't been back out west since, but I'm considering going back this year. This time, instead of my hunting gear, I think I'll bring a camera. Hill 29, from The Woodsman Talk to anyone around my age about camping when they were young, and they'll tell you all about their proverbial good old days. I suppose I'm no different, really. We used to go and get plastered in every grove and gully from here to Florida. Not like we had much else to do. School was a joke. We were young and stupid. We didn't have a care in the world. Funny enough, you go camping as much as we used to, and it becomes less like camping, and more like just kind of hanging out. I mean, really, every summer, every weekend, all the time we had to spare. You could expect us to be in some backwoods hollow raising heck. So as you can imagine, most of the memories of those days I got are just kind of one big blob. But not this one. Out here, federal land means to us free roam. Never really knew why the feds latched themselves onto so much nothingness, but they did, and it created for us our very own little slice of the wild. Rarely did we see or even hear anyone else out there. The only other human beings out there, within fifty miles, were the army squads that used the woods as training grounds pretty regularly. They had a whole grid and label system set up out there, and thanks to a kid named Tommy's dad... We'd gotten our hands on one of the maps. We navigated with the grids, markers, and numbered features, 
and all kinds of other minute, individually specified details. Even now, people refer to my hometown area as Hill Country. High sandstone cliffs with winding, dusty paths stretching far into the sky, as well as low, dark valleys where the air felt good as conditioned. The lands bordered on a big military base, so generally speaking, the town was an army town. Of the small group of guys we had that went out, all but one was a military kid. Now, I'm not saying that army families always have trouble in them, but it'd be ignorant for me to not say that they did more often than not, so getting out of the house was sometimes a priority. And so, we'd load two or three old pickup trucks with our green army bags and put on our green army coats, heading into the endless green valleys and ridges. Not long ago, parks and the like weren't really maintained as well as they are now, and federal lands had basically no management in comparison. Dirt roads and dilapidated fences made up the border of the nearly untouched open expanse. There were hardly even trails, and half of them were cut by us. Cell phones weren't really a thing we had, so to keep in contact, we used radios. A friend of mine, Mika, was a real whiz with that kind of thing. I was never really considered the brightest of kids, especially when it came to electronics, so I had rather basic understanding of how the radios worked. What I did know was that the hilly terrain messed with them, so when we had two separate groups, we'd have to set up a small relay tower, and then take it down at the end of the trip. Nothing major, just a small little tripod thing in a little black box, propped atop one of the many numbered hills. This particular trip happened late summer. Our senior year of high school was to start up soon, so we had a pretty sizable group. It was me, Tommy, Mika, Porter, Herschel, and another group of six who'd be across a cliffside from us, some of Herschel's friend, a guy named JT, and some other kids we sort of knew. We were all set for a week-long, beer-fueled send-off to the summer of 86. Stupid, yeah. Fun, also yeah. Anywho, we loaded up the same old way, a couple of beater cars headed up and down the winding valley roads. Pushing about eight o'clock, we pulled off onto some back road, bounced up and down along the old dirt path for a few miles, and eventually parked in a little clearing. The two groups split themselves and unpacked their bags from the trucks, reviewed our plans, and got ready to roll out. Herschel, Porter, and Tommy would head off on the south side of Hill Number 29, along the 38003 line, and the other group would work their way along the close side of Hill Number 28, ending up somewhere along the 36-001 area. It became mine and Mika's job to work our way up 29 and set up a communication tower, so the two groups could keep in contact. Everyone set off like a little pack of G.I.s, eventually diverging our separate ways. Mika and myself, with pieces and parts lashed to our pack frames, began the ascent to the sandy reaches of 29, as the rest of the guys headed deeper into the rapidly darkening woods. We made up our minds to be swift about the task, as it would be pitch black within the hour, and our flashlights weren't exactly the brightest. The climb was rough in patches, 
with rather sheer rock slides that were only made navigable by the protruding roots that served as our natural handholds. We made it to the peak area as the sun was setting, and worked out a setup for the tower. Soon it was erected and ready for relay. Hey Jake, think we'll pick anything up? Mika had a set of headphones plugged into the box, rotating a dial. Dunno. Probably not. How strong is it? I replied. Oh, if we heard anything, it'd be army in the area. Stay for that, I'd be surprised if anything were close enough. Mika answered, while digging into the OD green carrying case. He produced another set of headphones from somewhere within the plastic box, and gestured for me to take them. I slide them down over my ears and listen in. I can faintly hear Mika's, hmm, as the static flickered back and forth over the radio. Little but faint murmurs came through, and static to fill the gaps. Mika sat back, looked at the device again, and switched a dial over. A sudden new patch of static filled my ears, as Mika began to carefully rotate the knob. For a minute, I thought we'd hear nothing when the radio picked up the faintest of signals. I could only pick up small phrases between the static. Wilco, right side, over the south, back on the... Faint ramblings faded in and out of our hearing. Target 0079 is within... 03, moving west at... Roger, stay vigilant. The channel then reverted back to static, and we could no longer hear anything. I wonder what that was about, Mika pondered, removing the headphones. Probably some army drill or something, I replied, placing my own headphones back into the case. The sun was getting really low. Well, we ought to be getting down to camp. At this rate, we'll be getting there by dark. If they don't have the fire set up by now, I'll strangle one of them. He trailed off as he packed his things. We began back down the steep trail towards the turn and headed for camp. It was dark, as Mika predicted, when we finally trudged into camp. Two rather basic wooden sheds we'd built some time back stood illuminated by a fire contained in an old metal fire ring. We ate a hasty meal of canned garbage, radioed the camp across the hill to check the comms, then fell asleep. I woke up maybe half an hour before the crack of dawn, and did what all campers do upon awakening. I walked what felt to be a suitable distance from the campsite, and took care of business, then decided to head down to a nearby stream. As the first pastel lights of morning cut their way through the sky, I washed my face and took a drink. I plunged my arms into the cold water, and as I did so, a crack and a screech faintly bounced across the valley. Perplexed, I stood up and strained my ears for more, but it never came. This was a strange occurrence, sure, but I'd certainly encountered stranger. Besides, I was pretty sure I knew what this one was. If you've never heard a cougar scream, well, I'll say that I can understand why the old settlers told stories of monsters in the hills. I made my way back to camp and began to throw some more logs under the fire. Soon the crackling of flames eating away at dry logs awoke the guys. Within a few minutes, the camp was full of life. Herschel and Tommy were frying up some bacon over the fire. 
Mika and Porter collected wood, and I busied myself cleaning one of the two hunting rifles we brought. The rifle itself was Porter's, or rather, his dad's. A rugged old bolt-action chambered in 308 with a short, nondescript scope set atop. The other rifle, Tommy's, was a touch newer, a sleek, slender 22 made for small things, squirrels and the like. For today, we'd planned a short hunt, as it may just be the only full day when we weren't drunk or hungover. After sitting down to eat our breakfast, and some messing around with each other, we loaded up our packs, then set off with either rifle or binoculars in hand. Porter and I would set off on the mid-elevation areas in search of deer or anything else substantial, and Tommy, Mika, and Herschel would go about bagging some squirrel or rabbit. Neither of those animals were in season, but that wasn't something that was enforced, nor that anyone really cared too much about for that matter. Each group took a radio and took off. As we trudged into the woods, light flecks of rain began to mist across our shirts, and soon warranted a deployment of our army ponchos. The cliff trails were soon slick with mud, as our leather boots left tracks behind us. Every now and again, we would stop at an overlook, scan with scope and binoculars, and see what we could find. We saw some light movement on the other side of the valley, and very little aside from that. We walked on into the afternoon in the misty rain, stopping to have some lunch of canned sausages and sandwiches. Soon we were on the move again. The rain began to fall with more force, now at a full rainstorm pace. On one of our stops to search the valley, Porter picked up more movement. There, next to the pine, he said in a subdued breath. Yeah, I got it, I replied, equally as hushed. Buck? Yep, he excitedly whispered. He began to dial in his scope. I heard the click of his safety moving into the offsetting. A shot suddenly cracked through the valley, followed by three more in rapid succession. The deer raised its head, turned for an instant, and took off into the woods. Dang it, exclaimed Porter, lowering the rifle. Ugh, Tommy. Why'd we give him the rifle again? He said with a disappointed chuckle. Never was a good shot. Surprised he got more than one in, though. He trailed off. I don't know. Something seems a little weird about that. Let me radio in and... My words were cut short by a burst of noise from the radio in my hand. Porter? Jake? What the heck did you find that took four shots to take down? Garbled out of the black box. Porter and I exchanged a brief... Wait, what? Look, before I pressed the button and raised the comm to reply. We... we were just about to ask you the same thing. A moment passed with no reply. The radio cut out abruptly. Mika? I asked into it. Radio check, do you copy? No response. Well, dang, Porter said aloud. What do you think we should do now? The weather's too bad to stick around. I think they'll think the same and head back to camp, I replied. Probably not a bad idea. Let's get moving, Porter said, flicking his safety back on and sliding two caps onto the scope. The sound I heard at dawn rang out from the same vicinity of the shots. Huh, 
I said, confused. I heard that same sound this morning. Mountain lion? Porter theorized. I guess, I replied. Creepy things, huh? Porter nodded in agreement, but I could tell something didn't sit right with either of us. Nevertheless, we began the trek towards camp, winding down the slick, twisted face of the rocks. Our packs grew heavier and the sun crept lower by the step. We made haste towards the campsite and arrived at around 5 p.m. Porter and I took refuge in one of the old Adirondack shelters around what remained of the morning's campfire. We sat our now damp packs down, hung up our rain gear, and changed clothes. We sat down in the back of the shelters and waited for the rest of the folks to arrive. An hour passed by, and both myself and Porter began to get anxious. Our nerves were calmed by the soft sound of footsteps and twigs breaking in the near distance. Porter turned his head. You know, y'all had me a little worried for a second, he called out, standing up and advancing towards the open wall of the shelter. The footsteps stopped abruptly, and so did Porter. Silence fell on the campsite. Tommy? You guys good? He cautiously said into the dark droves of trees. The weighty footsteps burst off, scampering in the opposite direction. Porter hardly breathed a, what the hell? Before another set of footsteps from behind him made him whip around, facing the oncoming steps. It was Herschel, Mika, and Tommy. What's going on? You good? Herschel questioned to a disoriented Porter. Yeah, he stammered out, with somewhat of a relieved sigh. We all settled down into our shelters as the rain pelted the roofs. For a while, a silence hung about the camp. No one wanted to address the strangeness of the events that day, and I knew the other guys were just as suspicious as me and Porter. Mika broke the silence. I think we should radio the other group, he declared, standing up. We need to get the comms working again to make sure they're okay. From what I can tell, I think the storm may have knocked out the tower. I'm not sure, though. I don't remember JT or any of them saying if they had rifles or not. Maybe they did. Maybe that's what we heard, but we still need to check. We nodded and grumbled in agreement. The plan was that Mika, Herschel, and myself would work our way back to the station atop 29 figuring out what was wrong with the relay, then contact the other group. Porter and Tommy would stay at the campsite, waiting for contact from us. With our bags packed and ready to move the next morning, we skipped dinner and laid down for the night. The sounds of the rain pouring against the shelters put us to sleep. I rose at first light, which was shrouded in the grim clouds that still bore rain. With some difficulty, I was awakened by Porter, who was up before anyone else. The rest of the group followed. You think this bloody rain will ever stop? groaned Tommy, cracking open a can of beans. He placed four more cans into the struggling fire lids open and gave each a stir. All of us got dressed and laced our boots, checking on our bags and getting ready to set out. We joked around a bit while digging our spoons into the burnt cans, eating a quick meal. I'm honestly not too sure what happened to the relay, 
Mika said between bites. It's never done anything like this before. It should have been able to make it through a storm ten times this fierce. We all exchanged somewhat uneasy glances. For the first time, we collectively acknowledged the strangeness of the trip's occurrences. The moment passed, and we prepared for our trek. I slung my backpack on, donned my poncho, and watched my two companions do the same. Porter and Tommy began to find something to keep themselves, collecting and splitting wood, cleaning a rifle, and things like that. Mika and Herschel began to move towards the trails, and I followed. We soon found ourselves amongst the endless, pointless ups and downs that inhabited these woods. The soft pats of rubber-soled boots became our soundtrack as we moved about the forest. After a while, the rain let up, and we became bored of the sounds around us. We started to talk. I thought this trip would be a little less, I don't know, weird, Herschel said, echoing our thoughts. Me too, I replied. I hate being on edge out here. I think we're thinking too much, Mika sighed. Let's forget about all this creepy garbage and drink some beer or something. Truer words were not spoken the rest of the trek. Eventually, we reached the base of the hill. The sky grew dark again as we neared our route. The slick limestone faces above peered down at us as a bear might to a mouse. Plant life grew all down the sides and along the length of the ridge's spine. Great boulders and minuscule pebbles stood alongside each other, perched high above the dark recesses of the grounds beneath. With a grunt aloud, Herschel was the first to start the steep ascent. The climb of sorts followed a series of crags and faces as it worked its way up. Parts of the hill were little more than inclined hiking, Others were more akin to rock climbing. I certainly felt my pack the whole time as it gave the slightest of pulls on my back, away from the hill itself. We made good time up the hill, and soon we found ourselves rapidly nearing the peak. Each of us found ourselves a small seat atop the hill, taking a drink of water and breathing hard. The sun was just past its midpoint, and the view across the valley was unparalleled. A hush crept amongst us, we all felt a stark tranquility. The overlook gave us a look into all that was the valley, with its tall, dense green shadows and looming hills as far as we could see. For a moment, we were all at peace. The passing quiet was shattered by sounds I'll never forget. First a thud in the near distance, then another shot, followed by screams. I've heard people in pain cry out before, but this... this was like nothing else. Pure, primal shrieks of absolute pain and terror. I could feel the fear in my ears as the screams ripped across the valley in front of us, echoing off the distant hills. My stomach dropped, like I was a rider on a million roller coasters. I felt sick to the core. I saw Herschel and Mika react the same way. Mika looked like he might vomit, too. With huge eyes, he spoke. What? The Mother of God? Was that? He staggered out, mirroring all of our reactions of confusion of fear. I don't know, Herschel said. From the looks of it, he was ready to bolt. Call Porter. Figure out what that was. Right, 
Mika said curtly, as he frantically dug for his radio. Porter, Tommy, did you hear that? No response. Guys, not funny. Did you hear that? Mika was beginning to panic. Silence. Did you hear that? Mika screamed into the radio, nearly in a rage. He cursed and shoved the radio into his bag. We need to get up to that tower right now, I said. Herschel nodded, and Mika turned to continue. We scrambled up the rest of the trail, going faster than was probably safe. Soon the small metal tower and box popped into our sight. It stood solitarily amongst the darkening clouds in the sky above it. Mika hurried to it and knelt down beside it. Herschel and I caught our breaths and bent over with our hands on our knees, watching Mika fiddle with the box. His face suddenly went pale. What? What? Herschel asked, to no response from Mika. Mika! I shouted, snapping him out of it. Someone messed with our relay, he said, quietly, still not looking back at us. What? I asked, confused. Someone messed with our relay, Mika shouted. Someone cracked into it and battered the dials and bloody turned it off. Mika was growing angrier by the minute. What the heck? Herschel spat. Who would do that? Who else is even out here? I don't... I don't know. I don't know. Mika dejectedly stated, cooling down. I don't know. Can you fix it? I asked, determined. Yeah, he replied. Give me a minute. Herschel and I looked on as he reset the dials and flipped switches. Suddenly, the radio sprang to life. Negative. Sighting was 301-2, north side, looking for a visual on... Roger, we'll go. A stern and regimented voice faded in and out. We all recognized the tone of the man's voice as military. Looking for visual. 0079 is within. Would be north side of... Hill number 29. Over. We all went pale. Stay sharp. Did he just say... Herschel trailed off. Yeah, I replied, with a lump in my throat. North side of 29 is... That's where JT and his guys are, Herschel said, realizing what was happening. Get them on the radio, he said to Mika. The radio! One sec, Mika replied, rapidly moving dials. Get them on the freaking radio, Herschel shouted. I am, I am, give me a bloody second. Mika lashed out, turning dials with more urgency. He whipped out his radio. Hey, JT, whoever has the radio, this is Mika. What the heck was that? An indistinguishable garble flooded the radio. Mika cursed and adjusted more dials. Repeat, he commanded with authority into the microphone. Who is this? Came back through. This is Mika. We're on the other side of the hill from you. Mika said quickly, with utmost urgency. Oh, so you're the punks who have been screwing with us, huh? Well, piss off. The radio replied. What? What are you talking about? Mika responded, confused. It's not funny, dude. Screaming and shooting stuff in the woods is just a dirtbag move. That wasn't us, we replied. There was a pause. What do you mean? The radio responded, 
It wasn't us. We're trying to figure out if you're okay. Mika was growing in anger again. Maybe not a bad plan. Stay in contact. The radio should be working now. Will do. Sorry about the misunderstanding. It's no big deal. Just stay safe. Mika set the radio down inside. We paused for a moment and thought about the events we'd just witnessed. Mika called down to Porter, who said they'd faintly heard the noise and had tried reaching us. He said they'd stay and make contact with the other group to try and set up someone to reliably contact. Well, while we're up here, might as well check the weather, Mika said, finally relaxing a bit. He tuned the radio to the weather frequency. And it looks like we're going to have some nasty rains coming in this evening in the next few days. We have some flooding issues in the Lower Valley region, so if you're in those areas, roads will likely not be safe to travel on. Many local towns have declared a shutdown of most roads in order to... Did they say... here? I asked aloud, realizing what this might mean. That's just great. Now we can't even leave, Herschel exclaimed, hearing the bad news. Yeah. Looks like we're stuck here, at least for the night, I sighed. If we're gonna be here, let's at least try to enjoy it, guys, Mika said, standing up. Let's head back to camp. It's been two days out here already, and we haven't even touched our cooler. Let's go get plastered. And that's what we did. By the next morning, we were up far later than was normal, all of us sporting head-splitting hangovers from the night before. Herschel groaned as he sat up, setting the precedent for everyone else. We all slogged up slowly, and doggedly set about our tasks. We were all doing our best to ignore the prior events and try to enjoy ourselves, at least a little. The ever-present rain made it hard to get a fire going. Fortunately, Porter and Tommy occupied themselves with the acquisition of firewood the day before and had stored nearly half a cord in the shed, using the old mall stored there. The group enjoyed the rather slow and tired breakfast of hotcakes and bacon, a warm refresher from the previous day's breakfast. For a while, it seemed like all was going normal again. It was still raining, not as hard as it was, but nonetheless, so we sat just inside our Adirondack sheds, talking and laughing. We killed maybe three hours doing that. The day passed by uneventfully as dark clouds continuously rolled over our heads. The fire crackled as a meal cooked. Porter moved towards the fire and stirred the pot. A horrible stench wafted up out of it. Jesus! Mika remarked. What'd you do to that thing? I don't know. Maybe I overcooked it, Porter replied, perplexed. Tommy, Herschel, and myself shared the sentiment with Mika. We reluctantly dug out eating equipment and spooned ourselves some of the thick, terrible-smelling stew. We sat back down in our sheds and slowly began to eat, with pinched noses. To everyone's surprise, the soup was delicious, we all looked at each other, shrugged, and kept eating. Soon, the cooking pot was empty. We cleaned our bowls and equipment, only to find that the smell persisted. Confused, Herschel spoke out. What is that smell? 
It's awful, he said in disgust. It's not one of you? Tommy jabbed. Well, I don't think so, I said, holding my nose. We tried to play it off, to ignore it, but it was to no avail. A few moments passed as our resolve to continue disregarding the stench that invaded our nostrils faded gradually, and Herschel was the first to crack. Hell with this. What is the friggin' smell? He blurted out. You're right. I can't stand it. We gotta find whatever that is and chuck it off a cliff or something, I replied in utter agreeance. We fanned out and began searching, checking around the site until Porter called out in surprise. Hey, uh, guys, you ought to come look at this. Porter's accented voice faded out as we rushed over to see what he was looking at. His dark eyes were fixated on the ground at the base of a tall oak, just maybe fifty feet down the slope at the back of the campsite. The scattered members of our group slowly and apprehensively made their way to the spot. We strained to peek around the trees, or Porter, whichever obstructed our views. There at the base of the tree lay a jagged lump of puffy white and brown fluff and shiny dark liquids. The tree itself was spattered with the same. It was a deer, misshapen, contorted, sliced, and torn apart. All of us knew from hunting when we were younger that it was relatively fresh. The blood was still bright, the flesh still red and not browned. Bones jutted out from various places within the small pile of creature, cracked like a glow stick. Now bemused, I looked to the others for an explanation, a plan, a concession, anything. I soon found that they matched my expression, and that there was no such reasoning to be heard of. Wordless, we turned to make the slow, cautious retreat back into our nearby encampment. I think we could have stayed silent for the rest of the trip, if it were not for what happened next. As we stepped into the edge of our sight, Tommy began to pick up some of his things and moved into the sheds. He returned, clutching an axe he'd brought. The rest of us gave but a mere concerned look before inevitably coming to the same conclusion that he'd reached before us. That being, we weren't alone out here. As if a stage cue had been issued, the situation immediately escalated. Behind myself, there was a crack of a stick. Everyone's heads, including mine, snapped backwards to see what had made the faint, nearly inaudible noise at the edge of the tree line. We held our breaths and waited for another noise. Nothing at first. Then something. Another stick broke, this time louder, opposite from where the last had come from, resonating from behind Herschel, who now had found that he had quickly changed from being the back of the group to being the front. He whipped around just as I, but not before another stick broke, this time two cracks in rapid succession. All of us began to back together, wide-eyed and vigilantly scanning the tree line. I noticed Porter make a slow, methodical shuffle to a shed and returned with the deer rifle. He began to raise it, pointing in the direction of the most recent tracks. I saw Mika do the same with the twenty-two, and suddenly felt naked of defense myself. I drew out my knife, and I held it out, as if it would be a deterrent for whoever was encircling us, to whatever was encircling us. Mika dialed in the rifle, preparing a shot at seemingly nothing. 
he never got the chance. A shadow, a cloud, a lump of darkness flashed through my vision, blurted out of the trees, and backed in like a dog running a competition. Tommy, nearest the movement, swore and fell backwards, scrambling to get away. In his panic, the axe in his hand slipped, careening into his lower left calf and slicing into him. He cried out in pain, and I rushed to him as Mika and Porter swung around, rifles raised like sentries on a shift. Tommy was cut bad. The bit of axe had dug about two or three inches into his leg, revealing the dark, reddish matter beneath. I made for my bag, retrieved the first aid kit, and fumbled it on the way back to Tommy, who now was wincing repeatedly. I quickly moved to start applying gauze, and Tommy bit down on a stick he had placed in his mouth. Mika and Porter were shouting to each other, but what exactly, I could not tell. I was focused on Tommy, and finishing applying the antiseptic liquids I was pouring onto a rag. I began to cover the wound, when out of the corner of my vision, I saw Porter raise his rifle. A dreadful quiet fell over us, as Porter aimed towards where he last saw the looming dark mass. A moment passed, a mere second that felt like an eternity. The silence was shattered by two deafening booms in rapid succession. Booms that made my ears ring. The dark shadow appeared once more, this time fleeing. The heavy and steady pattering thump of footfalls returned deep into the woods once more and as they faded away, the whole encampment faded to silence for yet another time. It seemed now that all of the significant events of which we experienced were marked by a silence, a quiet of some kind. We all got up and looked around, as if we hadn't really seen any of it, as if we'd all just imagined everything. But now things were different. It was no longer this sort of unrealized game of cat and mouse. Now we knew what we were into. Now we knew that we weren't just seeing things. Now it was us and them. We all realized this as we set about solemnly patching up Tommy and packing our bags. The rain and the flooding it couldn't have been that bad. We had to get out. We all sat down back at our prompt logs near the fire that was now smoldering. We gotta go, Mika said, voicing all of our thoughts. Tommy, Porter, Herschel, and I mumbled in agreement. But we can't try in the dark, Porter said, sounding just as apprehensive as we all felt. We have to. What the hell are we going to do if that thing comes back? Herschel blurted. We shuddered at the first mention of the creature we'd seen since it happened, as if somehow speaking of it gave it life and made it reality. Herschel, you know we can't. You know, with all the hills and slopes and crap, we just plain can't make it through in the dark. Porter pressed on. I know. I'm just... Hell, man, we're in a shaky spot right now. And... Uh, he trailed off. We knew that Porter was right. We'd have to stay one more night. That didn't stop us from completely mobilizing as the sun set, though. By the time darkness descended upon the site... We'd gathered enough firewood to light up almost fifty feet around us in all directions, and had packs lined up, completely packed, save for our sleeping bags, which lashed onto the outside. We divided up shifts. Porter would start at 9 p.m. and go until midnight, standing watch with a rifle. Porter would wake Mika, who took 12 to 2 a.m., 
followed by Herschel at 2 to 4, and eventually me, from 4 to sunrise. Tommy needed to rest and heal from his leg. The sun was getting low, so we retreated to our shelters, grabbing some additional firewood on the way. Porter examined his rifle, rubbed a mark off the barrel, and chambered around. He sat down onto his upturned log, sighed, and pulled his hat lower. You good to go? Mika inquired. Yeah, I'll wake you up in three, he replied, clearly shaky. Good luck, man. Don't hesitate to get us all up if anything, if you need us. Mika finished after a bit. Yeah, yeah, Porter resolved, tugging at his hat again. The rest of us laid down and waited. According to my watch, Herschel shook me awake at 3.56 a.m. Hey, he said in a deep, hoarse voice. Hey, I replied, just as exhausted. Still plenty of wood. Nobody's seen anything yet. He informed me as I exited my sleeping bag and stood up, pulling on my boots and tucking my arms into a button-up shirt. It was surprisingly chilly. Enjoy the sleep, dude. Wish me luck, I said, slapping him on the back as he went for his own bag. Let us know if anything goes wrong. You're up till sunrise, he drowsily stammered tucking his face into his sleeping bag. I moved to the fire and saw that Herschel had chucked on a few logs, before plopping back down next to the fire. I resolved to keep a good watch of the stretch of tree line where we'd seen the thing before. Seconds turned into minutes, and minutes to hours. The creatures of the dark chirped and howled as the fire crackled. The night grew colder, and I was glad for the flames— Aside from warmth, the blaze allowed me to see around myself. The stars and moon were bright dots painting the sky, lighting up the night, allowing me to see even farther. I could faintly hear the creak at the base of our site, emitting a distant trickle. A cool, nearly imperceptible breeze flowed through my hair and whisked away sparks and embers of the fire. The tall trees of the valley swayed and danced like ancient deities, engaged in a sleepy waltz. The sky opened itself, as if it were the spotlights upon the theater that was the valley, with curtains of pines and solemn stone faces. My eyes grew heavy as the hands of the great forest gently shut them for me. I awoke from my near-catatonic state to what I believed to be pine resin in my fire, cracking louder than usual, as it sometimes does. I put together the thoughts to check my watch, finding it was now nearly 6.30. The sky was beginning to light up. The fire popped loudly again, but something was off. It took me a minute to realize that the fire behind me was not giving off much light anymore, nor was I being warmed. I turned to face it. It was smoldering nearly out. I murmured an expletive and tossed on a few new logs. Soon the fire was going again. I was about to drift off again, before my brain finally realized what felt so wrong. How did the fire pop so loudly, if it was out? With impeccable timing, another pop rang out. Fully awake, I placed it as a distant noise. It was a gunshot. No, 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 I spoke softly to myself, beginning to realize what was happening. That ear-rending scream I knew all too well boomed through the valley again. My stomach sank, 
I felt like a kid who was about to be sick on a county fair ride. I stood alone, listening still. Another shorter groan echoed again, and snapped me out of it. I turned toward the shed. Guys. Hey, guys! I yelled, panicking. There was stirring in the shelters. Uh, what? What? Mika said, standing up. Listen, I demanded, frantically gesturing to the distance. The four others, now plenty awake, listened intently. There was nothing. They looked at me confused. In the distance, there were shots and screams. I exasperatedly stated. Just as Herschel gave a bemused, huh? The screech was back, followed by two more shots. They turned to me wide-eyed. Ah, hell, JT, Herschel said. Radio. Get them on the radio. Mika frantically went for his pack. He produced the radio and flicked it on fast. JT, group two, anyone, come in. This is Mika, come in, he shouted. No response. He tried again, but to no avail. Everyone swore. Bags, G get your bags. We gotta go help. I commanded, sounding far more confident in my choice of words than I really was. No one replied, instead heading for their packs and quickly lacing their boots. Porter helped Tommy up, and after talking, I assumed they determined Tommy was well enough to walk. We took off, quickly kicking the fire out as much as we could in about thirty seconds, clicked on our dim lights, and prayed that between that and the slowly rising sun, we would have enough to make our way there. Mika tried over and over to reach Group 2 by radio. We walked into the solemn woods once more, rapidly approaching Hill 29. When we made it to 29, Mika and myself set up the hill for the third time, leaving the rest to wait with Tommy to let him get some time off his bad leg. This time, though, we knew our route and got up the hill in no time. To our relief, we didn't hear any more sounds from the other camp. On the flip side, Mika still couldn't reach them, so it wasn't just the radio. We recovered the comms equipment, rapidly strapping it to our pack frames. We scrambled back down and set on the trek again. The forest had transformed so much since our walk-in. What was our own green heaven was now a shaded nightmare. Our boots were in a strangely uniform cadence as we nearly marched our way up and down the deep hills. The sun was reaching higher and higher in the sky. We clicked our lights off, and soon we drew within a few miles of the second encampment. Mika called out loudly. No reply. No surprise there. We descended into the valley down the campsite, and soon we could see the large shapes of the shelters in the afternoon sun. We broke the tree line into the camp's clearing, and what we saw was bizarre. The site was vacant. We called out again but it truly was vacant. There were loose belongings here and there, a shirt, a water bottle, and even a pocket knife. The shelters were slightly charred, and the remains of what once was a tent was now a few metal poles and shreds of fabric. A lone, yellowed note, clearly soaked in rain, was left just inside the shelter, under a rock. We tried to make out the words, but what we were able to read was, We had to leave. Radio won't. Me back, and something out here. Mika read the mostly unintelligible note. 
they're already gone, he concluded. God, I hope they made it out, Tommy trailed off. I guess we're on our own now, and we gotta get the heck out of here, Porter said, firmly. We turned and began to mobilize. Porter and myself began to help Tommy up, who was sitting on the ground. Hey, shouted a gruff, deep voice, startling us all so badly we nearly dropped Tommy. Mika turned, reaching for his twenty-two and facing whatever it was. As I faced it as well, I was taken aback. A tidy row of about six green-clad troopers stood, each clutching weapons. Several were wearing pack frames with pressurized tanks strapped to them, and all kinds of hosing running all over. Others clutched heavy rifles, but all of them were armed to the teeth. They were fanning themselves out and checking around the site like some cheap movie scene. "'What are you doing here?' demanded one of the soldiers, stepping forward with his rifle thankfully lowered. "'We are... Uh, we, we were camping,' I replied." Why'd you bypass all the signs? This place is on lockdown. What signs? Tommy inquired. This land has been off limits for four days now. You shouldn't be here. We've been out here nearly a week, I responded. He sighed. Listen, you shouldn't be here, and you need to go. But we have some questions first. This gave me a bad feeling. Do you know this area well? he inquired. We nodded. Do you know how to get out the fastest? We nodded again. Are you armed? We were confused, but murmured a yes again. This time he nodded, as if to say, good. All right, he said. We're looking for... a unit who was sent out on an... evasion exercise. I perceived immense mistruth in this excuse. Have you seen anything for a while? You knew what they were looking for. Yeah, that way past the third hill. There's another campsite just like this one. It ran in and out of the trees, there. Mika said, sounding almost irritated. The soldier seemed taken aback when Mika so confidently delivered the answer he wanted. I think he knew that we knew. The soldier sighed again. I need you all to get out of here now, he commanded sternly but relentingly. And if you don't want trouble, stay away. My desire for answers was quickly outweighed by my need to get away from this thing in the woods, and looking to the others, they nodded in agreement. We slung on our packs, and the soldiers made their ways out. We then set off, back up the trail. We were going home. The walkout was our final silent checkpoint in the timeline of our bizarre experience. Eventually, the green tunnel developed some holes, and soon we stood next to our truck. We loaded our gear and started it up. Piling in, we talked retrospectively about what we'd seen. I think we all didn't, or couldn't, believe that it all happened, and talking through it made us feel like we could truly think about it. We'd have to track down the other group when we got back, and figure out what they'd seen. We sat for a bit, and eventually we set off for the winding hilly back roads that would lead us back home. 
As we passed the now-leaving sign, written in plain white dremeled letters, a thin column of black smoke arose from the forest, from right on the other side of hill number 29. Roadwalk From Great Moves, Ethan Slugbug Reynold hit me in the shoulder as hard as he could, causing me to swerve the car on the dark road. But luckily, there was no one else driving that night, or so it appeared, for the last hundred miles. Crap, man, that's not funny. It's not even a bug on the road, dude. I got us back on the right side of the road and rubbed my shoulder. Then I gave him a quick but mean scowl. Yeah, I know, but I want to make sure you're not falling asleep. I saw you dozing off a minute ago. Scared the crap out of me. I don't want my brain implanted into some tree out here. Whatever, I said, not realizing that I probably did just doze off a second. We'd stayed up really late partying with our friend. It was his bachelor party. Things got a little too wild. But now we were halfway home on a five-hour journey. It was dark out, and we were both tired out of our minds. Basically, yeah, maybe I did deserve that punch in the shoulder. Reynolds starts messing with the bags of chips we have in the back, a bunch of leftover road trip junk food. He snacks on a bag of Lay's potato chips, and then he goes quiet for a while. When I glance over maybe ten minutes later, he's out cold. I rub my face a little bit, give myself a slap, trying to make sure I'm wide awake. The road I was driving on was quite hypnotic. Not a whole lot of winding turns or bends, and the trees to our left and right, they were colossal and menacing. But I tried to focus on what was ahead of me, which really wasn't much. Just straight, badly maintained road, miles upon miles from towns in any direction. Truly the middle of nowhere. Having creeped myself out from the thought of having to walk down this road at night, if something happened to the car, I glanced down to the fuel gauge. We were three-quarters full, nothing to worry about. I looked back up, having only looked away for a split second, and slammed on the brakes, but it was too late. I ran right over into a pile of something in the middle of the road. I didn't have time to swerve around it either, but I tried. There was a loud pop coming from the back of the car. My panicked turn of the steering wheel caused us to fly into the ditch before coming to a sudden halt. Crap, I said, my heart feeling like it was going to beat out of my chest. Reynolds shot right up and looked at me, a bit of drool hanging out of his mouth. He noticed it and wiped it away quickly, at the same time asking me, What in the hell, dude? What's going on? You didn't fall asleep, did you? I rubbed my head, trying to console a worsening headache. Uh, believe it or not, no. I think there was something in the road. Ran it over. I think it punctured the tires in the back. I undid my seatbelt and began to climb out of the car. Reynold did the same. The cold night air hit me hard, as if it were a spirit passing right through me. I crossed my arms and held them tight, then began to walk to the back end of the car. 
Reynold checked his side, and I did the same, lowering myself down to the back left tire. The thing was torn to shreds. It was far beyond the hope of getting it patched. The whole dang tire needed replaced. I sighed, and then I heard Reynold cursing. What in the world did you hit, dude? The tire practically exploded over here. I walked around to his side and took a look. He was right. The tire on the back right had also been obliterated. I have no idea what I hit. It was dark and happened really fast. Turning on the flashlight on my phone, I walked up out of the ditch and Reynold followed. I aimed the light toward the road and followed traces of burnt rubber and what appeared to be these yellow-white shards. They were bones. As I followed these yellow-white particles, they grew larger until it led me to what appeared to be a very old carcass on the road. Well then, I said. Reynolds spoke up. That's the first time I've seen or heard of people's tires being blown out by a ribcage. I'm almost impressed, Ethan. But now, we're stranded. I only have one spare tire, man. Here, let me call up Lane. We'll get someone out here to pick us up. It's gonna be several hours, though. What are we, like three and a half hours out from either direction? Perfect. He began to dial a number, and I continued to scan the road around me. I found another carcass on the road. Then another. In total, there were seven different animal carcasses on the road, and these were larger creatures. It looked like deer. I felt more cold, more chilled than I did when I stepped out of the car. I motioned for Ethan to come back to the car with me. We had no other choice than to wait inside anyway. With the temperature being single digits, it was going to be a cold, long wait. While Ethan's car's heaters did work, they weren't the best. Back in the car, I put them on full blast, then turned off the headlights. The way we were angled, we might blind someone if they passed by. But if need be, we had plenty of time to signal them with the headlights. We'd be able to see them coming for a while. Reynold put the phone back in his pocket, and then let me know. All right, Lane's sending his wife, Alyssa. He's already been called to work, this early in the freaking morning, can you believe it? So, it's gonna be a couple of hours. Gotcha, I said, and laid back in the seat, reclining it as far as it would go. By the way, did you see the... just how many carcasses were in the road? I asked him. Huh? What do you mean? There's like seven dead deer out there. I mean, do they have wolves up in these woods? Nah, not as far as I can remember, he answered. Nah, before I moved down with you, the worst we got were coyotes, and they're tiny little things compared to dogs. For the most part, they're mangy, skinny little opportunists. I don't think that's what killed those deer, but they're probably getting ready to come up here and chew on the remains. Gross, I said. Well, maybe it was a semi. Ran over a whole family of deer, I suggested. Yeah, only thing that makes sense. Reynold agreed. Then he reclined too, reaching for yet another bag of Lay's. Hey, grab me a bag of Cheetos while you're at it. Flaming hot? Do you even have to ask? I said. He tossed the bag to me. For the next hour or so, we laid there, just looking out the window. 
With the headlights off, we could see the sky pretty well, and the stars were bright out in these parts. Would have been a beautiful night had we not found ourselves in this predicament. And I have to admit, the thought of those carcasses on the road, they did spook me a bit. They didn't look like they'd been run over. They looked like they'd been torn open, eaten. I shook my head and got that off my mind. Focusing on that right now would only make the situation more unbearable. So I turned on the radio, then lowered the volume just enough to where the music was subtle. Kind of like we're camping, huh? Reynold wondered aloud. Pretty much. Wish we had some s'mores instead of chips, though. And you ate all the Slim Jims on the way up here. Hey, I'm a carnivore. Can't help it. He smiled. But then his face went straight. Hey, uh... He scratched his temple, giving some thought into what he was about to say. Do you happen to remember going camping? Me, you, and Lane out in the woods? It was our freshman year. My stomach sank a bit. It was weird that he was asking me if I remembered it. How could I forget that? So I simply nodded. I turned away to face the stars again. I think he was waiting for a reply, so I eventually gave him one. That's something pretty difficult to forget. So, uh, do you still believe, Lane? He dug into the bag of chips he had in his hand, pulled out the biggest one he could find and chomped down hard on it, then set up to down a swig of water. His question made me wonder. We were kids, but I know Lane wasn't faking it. I know what I saw on his leg. I answered. He seemed satisfied. A little smirk grew on the side of his face. That's what I thought you'd say. And if you believe him, I believe him too. Man, some weird stuff goes on in the woods. He tossed his now empty bag of chips in the back seat. Our trash pile, basically. Then laid back again. I had been trying to keep myself from being more creeped out, but then he had to bring up that memory. Way back when we were freshmen in high school, we played sick on a Friday so that we could have a three-day weekend. We had made plans to go camping in these very woods. Just me, Lane, and Reynold. Lifelong best friends, and best friends still, even though we lived so far away from each other. Well, at least to us, it felt far. What happened out there, it was the first thing that happened to me that had me question reality. That night, we all slept in the same tent, but Reynold woke me up, and Lane was gone. The moment we stepped out of the tent, Lane, either unconscious or still sleeping somehow, was being dragged away. I screamed in time to cause whatever was dragging him to release him and run off. I was also out of the tent first before Reynold, so I was the only one that saw what had taken Lane. But it's something that I tried hard to convince myself I simply saw wrong. At first, I told myself it was some psycho in the woods that tried to kidnap our friend. But then I decided it was simply Lane sleepwalking. When Lane explained what happened to us, he could only recall the last few seconds before that thing let go and took off. Said that whatever it was, it didn't have the right amount of fingers and that its skin was slimy, yet smooth. He even showed us a spot on his leg. It was swelling up in red, and covered in some sort of thin mucus. 
Now, Reynold had never been the type of guy to be able to take things calmly. He was known to panic first, then run away before asking any questions. So he threw a tantrum of denial right then, saying that Lane had did it to himself, that it wasn't cool that he wanted to leave now. While we all agreed that we wanted to leave, I looked at Reynold and I told him, I believe him, that I believe Lane. Reynold didn't like this. The guy actually started to cry. He trusted me a lot, and having me say that, it was like I was confirming that he should be afraid. We left those woods as quickly as we could that night, and we never went back for another camping trip. So yeah, I believe what Lane said. I just didn't want to believe what I saw dragging him away. And I still hadn't told Reynold or Lane what I think I saw. A steady light rain began to fall outside. It landed and flowed down the windshield, even more mesmerizing than the road had been when I was driving before. I was dozing off again, until Reynolds shook me. What? I said. Dude, it's raining. He seemed a little freaked out. Yeah? So? He pointed toward the dashboard. Look at the temperature gauge. Look at the temperature on your phone. I did as he asked. The screen on the dash said 8 degrees, and my phone read 7. Huh. Reynold went on. Shouldn't the rain be freezing? Freezing on the ground, at least? Shouldn't it be snow or sleet or something? I shook my head. Man, you're just freaking out because we're stuck out here. You're making something out of nothing. No, look! Look out the window, look at the ground! I rolled my eyes and looked out the window. The rain formed little puddles in the holes in the pavement, and little streams in the cracks. I must have sat there for a few minutes looking at the water, but he was right. It never froze. And then the temperature began to drop, rapidly. According to my phone, it dropped another 15 degrees. It was now well below zero. I kept glancing from my phone to the outside, and the rain didn't freeze. It refused to, but I refused to make anything more of it. I looked at Reynolds and said, We aren't scientists. I'm sure there's something going on, maybe with the road or with the weather, that's just keeping this water from freezing. Then Reynolds looked like he had an idea. He grabbed his bottle of water that was in the cup holder, opened his door, letting in quite the chill. Then he began to pour some of the water on the ground. What are you doing, Reynold? I said. We'll just see if my water freezes. Maybe we'll know something then. So you're wasting our drinking water for a science experiment. He looked at me with a finger over his mouth. Just shush, he said. I leaned over towards him, and I looked out the door. I wanted to see this in action. Of course it wasn't going to freeze. If the rain wasn't freezing, his water wasn't going to freeze. I watched the water hit the ground, mix a little bit in the grass with the rain. Before, over the next minute or so, clumps of ice formed where the water had been poured, but the rain around it remained liquid. What the hell? I said. Then Reynolds said what I think we were both thinking. I don't think that's rain, 
Ethan. He put the cap back on his water bottle, then closed the door. He made sure to lock it, too. So it's just some dirty rainwater. Doesn't freeze because all the crap in it, I guess. Reynold looked at me and said, Sure, let's go with that. I'm just going to try to get some sleep. I nodded, and he laid back, facing away from me. I sat back in my seat as well, and it didn't take long to finally fall asleep. I'm awakened when the sound of thunder crashes outside. Reynold is still sleeping, so I don't wake him. I don't feel tired enough to go back to sleep, though, oddly enough. We'd only been sleeping for a couple of hours. I stayed awake, watching the rain and now the lightning outside. Lightning that had a weird green tint to it, made everything seem more ominous than it really was. I glanced at the ground outside, and once again, the rainwater was still liquid. No ice on the ground. As I lay there, I began to hear a sound within the rain. A sound I thought was wind at first, howling through the trees. But as it got louder, closer, it stopped sounding like wind, and sounded more like crying. Like the tormented cry of someone mourning someone close to them. It was coming from the left side of the road, from the woods, growing louder by the second. With a big green flash of lightning in the sky, the road in front of us and the edges of the woods to our sides are brightly lit for a couple of seconds. Within that brief window, I see a figure in the road. A very tall figure. A very familiar figure. Uh, who is that? Reynold had awakened. I looked over to him. He was rubbing his eyes and looking in the direction of the figure, too. But just like me, he became quiet and started to stare. The figure must have been nine feet tall, maybe more. It looked like we could stack two of this car on top of each other, and that thing would still be taller. It appeared to be looking up towards the sky. Lightning kept flashing in and out, revealing to us this thing... For plenty of time, this tall thing, with a skinny torso and thin, long limbs, but a head that was bulbous, like a baby's, except far larger than that. But I could not find its eyes, a face at all, really, and I was left wondering if it was facing away from us, or towards us. Then, more figures like that one, but at different heights and different proportions of bulbous head, began to walk out of the left side of the woods, slowly, like slow motion slow, crossing over the road and onto our side. The moaning sound, the cry, it seemed to be coming from each and every one of them. I didn't know any better. I'd say they sounded sad. We stayed quiet and hunkered down in the car, getting as low as we could to still watch the things outside but lowering our chances of being seen. I was glad then that I kept the headlights off. I looked at Reynold. He was shaking a bit. He started to turn around, wanting to look out the back window. When he did, his eyes grew wide, and his shaking intensified. He looked at me, then looked ahead, as if to say without a word 
that I need to see this. I followed his gaze and looked out the back window as well. Those things were all over the road, behind us and ahead of us. But the ones behind us, a couple of them had crouched toward the ground and were picking at the bones and meat of the dead deer. Each one that stopped at a deer carcass would only take a few bites before getting back up and walking in that physically impossible slow-mo walk. In silence, in fear, in terror, we must have watched a hundred of these things cross the road before it finally stopped. And only when the last centimeter of flesh of one of those things disappeared beyond the trees did the wind and rain and lightning suddenly stop. The rain all over the road and ground, it didn't freeze or stay, but seemed to fade, evaporate. Before long, we were left in the exact same position we had been. A dry, dark road quiet and alone. But it took longer for the crying moan to stop. We didn't even dare sit up in our seats until that sound faded. And when we did sit up, we simply looked at each other and tried to stutter out the first words. What? What? I... Reynolds tried to speak, but he could not find the words. But I did have something to say. Reynold, those things, they, uh, I've seen one of them before. You're not going to believe me, I know you're not, but one of those things tried to drag away Lane. His eyes narrowed. Did he disbelieve me? Or was he mad, angry that I hadn't told him this yet? W way back when we were camping... What we just talked about, I never told you guys, didn't know if I even should, but I saw what was dragging him away. He wasn't sleepwalking, he wasn't taken by a person. I was never sure of what I saw until now, but it was the exact same height, same shape as one of those things. I'm sure of it now. I collapsed into the car seat, and I just waited. Reynold remained quiet. Another hour of this silence, of this terror of wondering if they'd turn around and come back to cross the road again, before Alyssa's car finally pulled up. The two of us put on fake faces, told her we were happy to see her, and thanked her for picking us up. But when she asked if we were okay, beyond just the slight accident in the ditch, we feigned ignorance. Not sure what she was talking about. Reynold eventually accepted my apology for holding my secret for so long. We made it back to society okay, and we keep this story to ourselves. I'm not sure if we should tell Lane this, but maybe he does have the right to know. That night was really a weird one. And still, I have no idea what those things were, or whether or not... They meant us harm. I'm just glad that they didn't see us. You get used to it. From The Other Malfoy 
I worked as a security guard at one of the local hospitals, and despite what I'm going to tell you, it's a pretty great place to work. Plentiful hours, pay is good, and the nurses are downright sweet. That being said, it is still a hospital, and as such, it comes with its bad things. I confess, and forgive me if I come across as a little bit morbid, I've been in the presence of more death in the first six months on the job than the previous thirty years of my entire life. But that's not exactly what this is about. No, this story is about the hospital basement. I had initially been hired to work a specific area of the hospital, and I had daytime hours. But when a full-time evening shift opened up, I went for it. Gotta make that money. This meant I had free range to patrol the whole property. One of the areas I got to patrol was the basement. Contrary to what you might think, it's a pretty busy part of the building. X-ray department, custodian, engineering, food prep, those are just some of the many departments that fill the basement. So it's not exactly a spooky, damp, and dark place. But once 8 p.m. hits and the vast majority of employees have gone home, that basement gets quiet. And that's when the incidents began. It was my first week as patrol officer, and so far, it had been rather uneventful. Which I was fine with. I'd had five years' experience with private security in other areas, and I was hoping for less action for a while. One night, I was making my rounds in the basement, when I heard footsteps. Normally, this is no big deal, but it was very late so it drew my attention. Still, I wasn't thinking it was a big deal. Maybe a nurse had to grab something, or a visitor took a hilariously big wrong turn. So I wandered over in that direction. As I approached the corner, I checked the wall mirror. For those of you who don't know, hospitals have ball-shaped mirrors to allow staff to check around corners, thus preventing any gurney fender benders. When I did this, I saw nothing. No people, no shadows, no movement of any sort. I rounded the corner to make sure, and it was an empty hallway. Only place they could turn into were the elevators, which I would have heard the ding from if someone had entered them. It was strange, but I shrugged it off. Probably my brain messing with me. A similar incident happened a few days later. While checking to make sure engineering didn't leave their equipment in plain sight, again, I suddenly hear voices. I couldn't make out what they were saying, but it was for sure human voices. I went to check, out of curiosity more than anything else. But no matter where I walked, the voices always seemed distant. I didn't see anyone, and I must have walked the entire basement but the voices always sounded so distant. Then, suddenly, it went quiet, just like that. It was as if they had disappeared, left the area. How very strange, but, again, I chalked it up to nothing unusual. Maybe a custodian left a radio or podcast on. In my mind, it was all easily explained, and no big deal. While that could have been explained easily enough, this next one was unnerving, because I still cannot explain it. 
It was another day, another basement patrol. I was walking down a large stretch of hallway when, in front of me, I noticed a set of doors closing. These are fire doors that are held open magnetically and automatically close upon the fire alarm going off, which incidentally had happened earlier. A false alarm, though. Clearly, these two hadn't been pushed open after the all-clear, so I walked towards them to do the job myself. Then one of them opened up, not swung open aggressively, but just casually opened up, like someone was just passing through. This caused me to stop in my tracks in shock. These doors are quite heavy. Nobody could have just yanked it open and ducked out of sight like that. This door was pushed to the wall all the way in a smooth motion, not shoved, not opened slightly, unless there was a very specifically located hurricane in that spot, those doors were not hit by a sudden draft. Needless to say, I patrolled a more populated area that night. There were also the cold spots. So many cold spots in that basement. It wasn't wind or air conditioning. These were specific moments of cold that randomly disappeared shortly afterwards. These were not normal. They were everywhere. Not just the same spots every time. Different spots... Spots where it should have been warm, like by the food prep kitchen or near the CT scan room. It just didn't really make sense. A few weeks of this, and I was just doing my best to ignore it. Job paid well, and I didn't want to abandon ship like that, but that nearly changed one evening. I was on another basement patrol. Woo-hoo, I guess. Sadly, I couldn't skip it or say that I did. The higher-ups would know. They always know. So I'm back again, late at night, in the creepy, empty basement, reminding myself that my car will be paid off a lot faster with this salary. I approached the corner from the first incident. Coincidentally, instinctively, I checked the wall mirror. I froze. There I saw a figure around the corner. Not a person but a human-shaped black mass, just standing there, just around the corner. I'm horrified at this point. My mind was already on high alert. Now it was on red alert. I tried to reason with myself. Is it a smudge on the mirror? No, they clean those things daily. I was scared, shaking, wishing I had a fellow guard with me. But what good would that really do, honestly? I'm praying to God, Odin, Ra, freaking Santa Claus at this point, praying that this thing does not decide to move towards me. I'm standing there for what seemed like forever, when it finally walks the opposite direction of me. Defying all sense of reason, I decided to poke my head around the corner, try to get a look at this thing. It was gone by then, disappeared. I even checked the mirror again, and it was clear as well. Just me in the basement. I scrambled upstairs on a sprint and spent the shift around the nurse's station, expecting very little sleep that night when I made it home. A couple of months later, short of the aforementioned cold spots, things had calmed down. I began working an earlier shift, and I was down in the basement with a co-worker doing the rounds, when I heard the sound of voices. 
Now, admittedly, this could be anyone that time of day, but I was still quite paranoid about the basement, so my mind instantly goes to the worst possible explanation. I stopped, then turned to my coworker. Then I asked, probably sounding freaked out, if they could hear the voices. To my immense relief, they said yes, and I calmed down. Then my coworker said, You get used to it. I instantly stopped and stared at them. What do you mean by that? I asked. Voices, weird noises, all that crap. Work here long enough and you just get used to it, especially down here. I assume you've seen or heard something, judging by how you looked like a deer in the headlights just now. I nod and explain my experiences. They say, Yeah, most of us have all had similar incidents when patrolling down here. Don't worry about it. You'll learn to shrug it off. I'll add quickly that this coworker is older than me and has been with the company for about 15 years, which to me explained how they were so casual and nonchalant about it. Well, I was losing my mind. But why this area? I asked. Never anywhere else. Do you really have to ask? They laughed, and then it hit me, and I almost kicked myself for not figuring it out sooner. The silhouette... The footsteps, the voices, the door, even the majority of cold spots. They all happened within a close proximity of the morgue. I'd been given a tour of the facility when I started, but seeing as I was assigned a specific post when I began, I kind of just forgot about the morgue and where it was located. Why wasn't I told? I asked them. Because if we had just told you outright... You probably wouldn't have believed us. Admit it, they responded. And I can admit they were probably right. If they had mentioned it on day one, I would have laughed it off as either messing with the new guy or just silly stories. So I can't blame them. I worked at that hospital for a year before being transferred to a different site. Still a hospital, but this one doesn't have an ER, ICU, or a morgue so I feel better about it. My coworkers are great, and the job still pays well, and I genuinely want to be here. But I still double-check those mirrors when I approach any corner, and I still jump at any sound when I'm alone, at night on the job. And I hope, against hope, that I'll eventually get used to it. Skinwalker, from M. Miller, 96. Yeah, I know it's a topic you've done a million times, but I wanted to share my story with you. First, I feel as though I need to give some background on myself. I was raised by my mother, who is 50% Cherokee and 50% French. Us kids have never met our biological grandpa. She believes in the paranormal, but tries to pretend it isn't there. My father, who is Scottish and English, German and Jewish by blood, on the other hand, is 100% atheist, and is rather skeptical about things he can't explain. He endeavors to be a logical and scientific person in all things. Well, due to the major differences in personalities, beliefs, and values, they ended up being divorced when I was eight. 
My mother soon married my stepfather, who was a devout Southern Baptist, from Mississippi, and basically gave up her identity as a native and became a God-fearing woman. Despite issues with my mother, my dad continued to let us visit with her mom and stepdad because he felt that they were good people. They taught us many things about native culture, spirituality, legends, and their people. My grandmother and I spent a lot of time together, so I was given an ample opportunity to learn Cherokee medicine. My grandma comes from a long line of medicine men slash women, and is one herself. Now, so many years later, at the ripe old age of 23, I am one myself. So now you have some insight. Now, this isn't a ghost story, but I do believe it qualifies as paranormal, as it is outside usual daily happenings. About two years ago, my father, brother, and I moved into a new home a little more in the country than our previous homes had been, something we thoroughly enjoyed because we grew up immersed in nature and a love for the land. Shortly after moving there, about three months in, I decided it was time to expand the family by getting myself a puppy. This would be the first dog that would actually be in my care. I've always had a very strong connection to dogs as my guiding spirit is a wolf. I learned this on a vision quest many years ago. After a while of searching, I came across a beautiful five-month-old male German Shepherd Pitbull mix. I went to meet him and instantly fell in love. He was the greatest, very sweet, kind to the cats, and protective of me. He became my best friend, everything you could want in a dog. Now, anyone who has owned a puppy or young dog will know potty training is a task. Even after being with us two months, he was still waking me up every two to four hours to go out. Hard on the circadian rhythm, but it had to be done. On one occasion in particular, we got a late-night visitor we were not expecting. Like I said, my dog woke me up in the night. This time it was around 2.45 a.m., and I wasn't ready, but I dragged myself out of bed and clicked on the leash. Opening the back door greeted me with a cold breeze. I rolled my eyes and went out into the yard with my pooch. He did the usual dog thing, sniffing around and jumping in the freshly cut grass, completely forgetting what we'd come outside to do in the first place. I whistled at him, recapturing his attention, so he got back to business. As he squatted, I turned my head to the sky, offering him some privacy. The moon was exceptionally large that night, almost full but not quite. During this observation, I began to realize there was no typical nighttime noise around me. As if that wasn't unusual enough, I had a shiver go down my spine, and my arm hair began to stand on end. That's when I heard my dog let out a low growl. He pinned himself against my legs. When I looked down at him, his tail was tucked, and hackles were raised. When I tried to move, he pressed himself against me more. Another shiver came over me, and then I took the opportunity to follow where his eyes were looking. When I did, I was looking at what appeared to be a coyote, not totally uncommon in the area. We'd heard them on many nights living here, but this was different, looked different, and felt different. The most frightening thing, however, was that it was looking right back at me. I didn't move, didn't take my eyes off of it. That's how I was able to see its features so clearly in the moonlight. 
Its fur looked thin, even bald in some spots. Its eyes were yellow, not reflective yellow, like you'd see on a dog in the dark, but yellow like the sun, powerful, almost blinding. Then, looking more closely, I noticed its back legs were longer than a normal coyote. Longer than any canine creature should be, actually. Starting at the hips and going down, they seemed to look almost bipedal in design. That's when it dawned on me just what I was seeing. I picked up my sixty-pounds dog, never taking my eyes off the creature. As I did, I said a Cherokee prayer in my head that I'd learned from my grandma. As if it was physically upset, it backed up slightly, and then I heard a voice that perfectly mimicked my grandma's say, Why would you do that, Mickers? That's M-I-K-K-E-R-S, by the way. No one aside from my grandparents ever called me that. It was their special name for me. With that, I darted for the door. Dog still in my arms, I entered, put him down, and locked the door behind me. The noise must have woke up my brother, because he came into the kitchen all bothered. He asked me what was going on and why the dog was all riled up. I held my finger to my mouth and shut off the light. We then made our way into the living room and shut that light off as well. And like something out of a horror movie, the outline of a tall humanoid thing was shown through the stained glass of the small window on the door, outlined by the bright moonlight. We both froze, and he made a grab for the doorknob when it began to turn. He caught it just in time to lock it. That's when it spoke to him, too, but this time in my grandpa's voice. Bubba, why don't you let grandpa in? They live on a reservation in Cherokee, North Carolina. His face turned ghost white, and he turned to me. That's when I mouthed the word, and he paled even more. The thing began to tap on the glass, and we both went into my room, ignoring the sound. The following night, around the same time, the tapping came again and grew louder. We sat in the living room, praying to Yune La Nui, the Cherokee sun goddess, also called the Great Spirit. We prayed that it would go away. The tapping turned into knocking, which turned into pounding the more we prayed. This must have woke up my father, because he ran downstairs in a huff. We told him about the night prior during the day, but he didn't believe us, and thought it was just one of my brother's friends being a jerk. So when he saw the silhouette in the window, he grew more angry. He made a beeline for the door to open it. We yelled at him not to open it, but he didn't listen. He threw that door wide open. The creature, instead of harming him, seemed to be afraid. It got down on all fours and disappeared down the road, but my dad had seen enough. His face went pale. He stumbled backward a few steps. He locked the door behind him, and we all went to bed. The next day, we talked about the situation. I explained to him the natives called the creature a skinwalker. They aren't very common in Cherokee legend. They're more of a western native legend, but my grandparents still taught us about them. Dad, being the skeptic, just summed it up to a weird thing he couldn't explain. Later that day, 
I went to our local craft store and bought juniper ash, as my grandma instructed, and I sprinkled it around the house. It never returned, but my dog was never the same after that night. It's as though the entire experience changed him. He went from a loving animal to a mean and unpredictable one. He began lashing out at anyone who wasn't female. We tried correcting it over the course of a year and a half, but nothing helped. When he finally harmed my brother, causing him to bleed, I was forced to find him a new home. Luckily, he's with a couple, who are both female, and he seems much happier. But even to this day, I guarantee he won't go out at night. I didn't mention the name of the creature many times, because it is considered a bad omen in native culture to give those things energy. I'm going to link this story in the description, as the author has ended their story with a guide on how to protect yourself if you're nervous about these entities. So if you're tuning in on YouTube, or on Patreon, I'll have the link in the description. But if you're on a different platform, I won't be linking it. Instead, you can go to my website, darkstories.org. Click the search button in the menu. Make sure Topics is selected for what you're searching. Then type in two words, Skin Walker. You're looking for the post by M. Miller 96. I have no idea what we saw that night. I've searched everywhere for sightings or even myths around the area we saw it, and have found nothing. But my husband and I think it could have been a Wendigo. My friends and I go camping a lot, and my favorite place is in Red River Gorge, Kentucky. We go there often, and I've been ever since I was an infant. I'm 28 now. Married with a kid and still go there. It is the closest place to where I live where you can see the Milky Way pretty much every night. It's perfect for stargazing, and I've seen a shooting star every clear night I've been there. When we go without our kid, we night hike to a good lookout point and stargaze for hours. Our first experiences night hiking, we would go to trails we knew well that were used frequently during the day. Ones with log fences and gazebo resting places. The most used trail is a trail in Natural Bridge State Park that leads up to the Natural Bridge. This trail is around two miles uphill, depending on your starting point. I've done this trail every summer of my life. I could do it blindfolded. It has wooden steps, carved rock steps, log handrails, multiple sitting points under a roof, trash cans, but after reaching the main trailhead, it had no lights at all. It's used often, and while it is uphill, the difficulty is low. As long as you have good grip on your shoes and water, you'll be fine. My friends have done it with me multiple times and are confident in it as well. Hiking this trail at night is not allowed, but it is the woods, and I've never really been one to care about closing times for the literal outside. When we used this main trail to hike to the top, we would park in a lot designated for the pool and Hoedown Island. You walk across the road that leads to the pool, and you're at the first trail marker, 
You go up gravel for a while and pass the Natural Bridge State Park Lodge. There's a waterfall and some lights, so it was best to go fast and watch out for rangers, who would tell us to leave. Then you walk across another road and there's a mini-shelter to sit in, or a small rock wall to rest your legs. Then it's the beginning of the trail to the top. That night was weird to begin with. As soon as we started the hike, the clouds took over, and it appeared we'd be walking for nothing to even stargaze at. But we went anyway, just in case it cleared out by the time we got up there. In the beginning, it was just normal paranoia that was keeping us stressed and quiet, it seemed. You know you've reached the bottom of the bridge when you see a giant wall of limestone. During this time, there was a gazebo that set to the right of this wall, and the trail continued and followed next to the wall. Where you come from is a fairly steep part of the trail, and the gazebo was welcomed. My husband, my best friend at the time, and I all sat on the gazebo steps. The bench is under a roof, and even darker than the rest of the outside. So we just stayed on the steps. We were looking down the trail that follows the limestone wall. We each have a bright LED headlamp and a handheld flashlight. We don't usually look at each other when we night hike, because the lights are so bright. We sat in a line like the Lord's Supper, and walked in a line, or staggered, so we don't blind ourselves. It's after hours at this point. No ski lift rides had gone up for hours, and the rangers had already done their sweep, and had left right before we got out of the car to head up. We left no time between them making sure the trail and top were clear, before starting our hike up. The ski lift takes you up to the top, but there are workers that stay and do counts and only leave after it's clear. I guess I have to make these points because that's what I was thinking when seemingly out of nowhere, this girl with a headlamp begins to walk down the trail we're looking out at. She's in a sundress and flip-flops. This hike is uphill, and while it is a fairly easy hike, it is not easy without water or real shoes. She'd have to have hiked up and down to this point with no food or water. Her light was bright, and when she reached where the trail turns from in front of the gazebo to down where we came from, she stopped. She just stood there straight on, like how a human is presented in an anatomical drawing. She was looking directly at all of us sitting there, and her light made me bring my hand up to shield my eyes. She didn't turn away from our lights at all, and she didn't even seem bothered that she had six LED lights aimed right at her face. I said, uh, Hello? She responded with a pause between every word, something like, Hello, how are you? I said something along the lines of, Uh, good, how are you? She took even longer pauses than before, and said, Oh, I'm fine. She then just stood there, still with her hands to her side, and facing and staring at us. 
Her light made it impossible to really see her face, and it was so bright I had my hand up the entire time, until she just turned and walked slowly down the trail where we had just come up. She got to a part where the trail turned, and we saw her light just stay in that one spot for a minute, until she turned and the light faded out of sight. We waited for a while before continuing up. I kept making comments about how weird that was, but everyone else just made it out to me always being afraid. But no one ever came after her. She had done this hike alone, at night, and somehow without being found by any ranger. We got up after a bit and started back up to the top, it felt like it took much longer than it ever had in the past, but we made it to the top. There are stone steps named Fat Man Squeeze that get you to the top of the bridge, and you can walk across it and whatever. Going up and being on the top, we could hear twigs snapping. We lay down and try to stargaze, but the clouds are even thicker now. It was miserably hot. We could hear voices at times, and my husband kept checking for people we heard. He never saw anyone. We saw a light flash, never saw anyone attached to it. But then we heard a bird call, but it wasn't like a real bird noise at all. It sounded like a person making bird calls, like rhythmic and not really natural. I was convinced we were not alone, and had not been alone, but I was also the most easily spooked. I asked if we could leave as soon as they were ready to. They were ready right then and there, and that scared me, that they were just as afraid as me at that point. We began going down the way we came. It felt like it was taking so long. We were going steady and quick. It was downhill but we were not making any ground, it seemed. It's hard to explain, but it was so weird that, at one point, I even said aloud, This feels much longer. And they agreed with me. I kept looking behind me with the flashlight, and my husband kept looking out to the sides. My friend kept hers mostly forward. I kept feeling watched. I could not figure out what footsteps were ours or if they were all hours that I heard. I would turn in the direction of any noise, but not see anything. When my husband was walking, he kept saying he was catching eyes in his flashlight. Usually, you can catch raccoon eyes spying on you, or some animal like that. He was afraid it was a bear, or a large dog, or something, and he never got his lights on whatever eyes they were, long enough to see an animal size or shape. Now we're hiking down semi-flattish area, at least compared to the downhill hike we'd been doing. The log fence or handrail or whatever it was called was on our right side. We're in a row walking within reaching distance of this barrier, and my husband just stops walking altogether and says, What's that? But the question is more of an alert. 
I move my lamp in that direction and don't see anything at first. Then both of his lights catch a shape, and then my headlamp catches it, and I move my hand lamp to center and catch it while my friend simultaneously finds it in her lights as well. All six lights now shining onto and kind of reflecting off of a light gray creature. It's bent in a crouching position, kneeling on its right leg, and starts turning towards us. It begins to slowly stand. My mind is racing still. It looks human, but it's too big. People mistake human shapes for what's actually bears in the woods often, but this thing was skinny. It was thin and big, and almost white it was so light gray and its skin resembled dolphin skin. There was a shine to it. Our lights reflected a little off of it. It gradually comes to a full standing position in front of us. Its head is long, and its eyes are in a human position on the face, in front, and not on the side. But I could not see any other facial features, just big, almost empty holes or pits that were its eyes. It looked directly at us and our lights. The way it stood was intimidating, almost like when a snake raises up and flexes its neck all crazy to show prey that they're stronger, smarter. It was like it was stepping up to a fight, from crouching, then turning, then standing front on in front of us, the arms hung down low, and the hands seemed long, too. Its hands had to be by its knees. I'd guess it stood nine feet or so, and not that far in front of us. No hair at all, and its head was large as well. I couldn't process what I saw, and I was frozen. Then I feel my husband hitting me on the back, yelling, Run! 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 I start to understand we have to get away from this thing, and it pivots and runs to the right. It was going backwards on the trail, so it could get around the barrier and onto the trail behind us. We take off running the rest of the way down the trail, knowing that this thing just took off much faster than us, and after it had crossed from behind the barrier, it would be gaining on us quick. We didn't talk at all, because when we tried... It felt almost like we would get caught. We kept running as fast as we could, but some areas are so steep, it never felt like we were out of sight from that creature. As we made it to the trail beginning with the gravel, we could hear something to the side crashing down through the trees. We ran until we got to the car, and then we drove as fast as we could. As soon as we got to the main road, the sky cleared up, and the stars were out. When that thing looked at us, I knew it was smarter and faster than us. I knew that if we hadn't seen it, then it could have easily taken one of us and gotten away. I think the only reason it hesitated was because so many of us saw it at once, and we stayed together. When we made it back to where we were staying... All of us took out our phones and wrote a note for what we saw happen. 
We hadn't spoken about it until after we looked at each other's phones, and the stories were the same. Without a doubt, we had all seen something real. Encounter with a Phantasm From Kim's A Pseudonym I'm a private investigator living in the South. When people learn that about myself, it's usually met with a certain amount of interest, given that TV has cast private investigators in a very intriguing light. In reality, our lives are usually mundane. More unremarkable vehicles and peeing in bottles than Ferraris and beaches. I haven't seen too many noteworthy or exciting things in my line of work. I've been rushed by a few dogs, harassed by mentally unstable people, and busted plenty of times by an intended subject. But all in all, it's steady, boring work. But I do have one story that, for fear of sounding sensational, changed my life. It was January, a month that falls into what myself and my partners know as the dregs of the slow season. When I got the call to work a fairly easy assignment, about an hour and a half away from my home, I was pleased to have it. The assignment was just that, scraps. It was for a gypped and angry car lot owner, who had spent way too much time and patience attempting to locate a woman who he believed had skipped town in a less-than-paid-off SUV. She's got to be in that area. That's where the GPS last hit before it died, I was told. It wasn't scandalous high-profile work, but I was happy to have it. Snow began to fall as I loaded up my equipment bag into the car, stocked with spare camera batteries, snacks, and the like. I kissed my husband goodbye, zipped up my jacket, then plugged in a random address that fell within the last known latitude-longitude coordinates the client had provided from the last ping on the car's GPS. After nearly two hours of sipping coffee and half-heartedly dialing my radio back and forth, the channels crackled weakly as I drove further and further away from modern civilization and into sprawling pastures of the rural back country. Finally, I found myself within the target area. Houses slowly became fewer and further apart as I approached a long stretch of road. The roadway looked gloomy in the haze of the afternoon winter. Its length dipped and craned painfully on for what seemed like miles through farmland. I knew as I proceeded down it, slowly, that it would be a difficult area to set up in. I observed the sides of the road, devoid of any shoulders, and yielding abruptly from pavement to mucky, snow-soaked ditches. I quickly dismissed the idea of just pulling off into the grass. I checked my phone and saw that I had no signal, too. This would be a terrible area to get stuck in with no reception, given that I'd seen no houses for miles and the snow only fell heavier by the hour. Turning around carefully, I drove back towards where I'd come from, until a single faint bar appeared in the corner of my cell phone screen. Using the weak signal, I consulted my map and deduced that the long, desolate road I'd come from connected two main highways, and I guessed that the SUV I was looking for was sure to be using it as a throughway. 
Satisfied, but not convinced, I said goodbye to the idea of mindlessly browsing Facebook all evening, and headed back to the area. The sleet sloshed beneath my tires as I slowed down outside of a small ranch-style home. It was a little ways off the road at the end of a gravel drive. The house was somber, but looked charming with fresh snow settling on its worn roof. I approached the house, the boards of the porch stoop moaning under my boots. I knocked carefully and smiled immediately, so as to appear non-threatening to whomever answered the door. The latch on the other side of the door fell, and shortly after, the door opened. To my surprise, instead of being hit with the contrasting warm air of a home, I was enveloped by a musty, cool draft that seemed to belch up from deep inside the house. Inside the doorway stood a man I gauged to be in his eighties. His eyes were brown and sad, his face weathered, his wrinkles sat deep into his face as if he'd been carved out of the red clay soil that rested just inches below the snow outside. Even though he did not stand taller than myself, he still seemed to look down on me, his broad frame occupying most of the doorway. I smiled wider now, as if to prompt his own sober countenance to do so, but it didn't. Awkwardly, I spoke. I hate to bother you, but I've come all this way to look for a car I believe is in the area. I was wondering if you'd be okay with me sitting at the end of your driveway for a little while, to keep a lookout. I had almost made an art out of playing up my innocent woman status, for my own advantage, and I'd be lying if I said that wasn't what I was doing in the moment. He didn't answer right away. He looked at me, studying me, his face never warming, and only serving to wear me down with silence. For a moment, I felt my damsel facade had finally fallen on unwilling ears. I prepared myself for swift denial, but he just stood there. That's when I took note of his clothing. A plaid shirt tucked into tan slacks ended in slick, black dress shoes. Hardly what I'd expect a gentleman of his age to be wearing in this weather, especially since his home didn't seem to be much warmer than the air outside. He clinched a blue wooden pipe between his teeth, chewing the tip thoughtfully. He looked terribly faint, almost jaundiced, as if my palm might pass right through him if I offered him my hand to shake. Just at that moment he seemed satisfied with how long he'd studied me, and perhaps deciding I wasn't a threat or trouble, he looked past me to my car, back down to me, then nodded his head in approval. I thanked him, and I was eager to retreat back to my warm car. Crunching snow and gravel beneath my tires, I caught one last look of his door shutting, before I found an unimposing spot near the end of the driveway, and began my surveillance. As a woman in this line of work, I've come to be aware of my own environment. It's not my nature, and only came out of habit. I often look into my rear and side-view mirrors to check my surroundings. Doing so, I took note of the man's house. It was dark. Even as the sun began to set and darkness creeped into the valley, 
I never noticed any interior lights in the home. I suspected he may be entirely frugal, keeping as few lights on as possible. That also explained why his home would be so cold. I smirked, remembering how my own father would keep a watchful eye on the thermostat, so as to prevent us kids who refused to put sweaters on from tinkering with the dial. Having seen only two sedans in the hours since I had arrived, I finally phoned it in and began my trek home. The next week passed by, and I once again loaded up my car for another assignment, about an hour north of the man's home. I couldn't shake how sad he looked, and wondered whether or not he had anyone to care for him. His absent demeanor and sad, faraway eyes still occupied my mind every now and then. I scratched out a thank-you note, bought a box of cookies, and decided I'd leave a little earlier so I could stop by and deliver them to him. I felt compelled to show my appreciation for him letting me, a complete stranger, take refuge on his property to do some scummy repo spotting work. By this time, the snow had melted, and the roads were far more formidable, albeit cold and damp. I made the familiar turn off the lonely stretch of road and slowly crunched down the driveway. To my surprise, I found a new car parked near the home, as well as two utility trucks. A woman stood outside, speaking with a man who donned a tool belt and boots, making it easy to surmise his occupation. The woman motioned toward the house, speaking with her hands, and a worker appeared to consider whatever it was she was saying. She looked on at me, trying to place who I was as I stepped out. Calling out a greeting, I approached, the letter and cookies tucked under my arm. I explained who I was and how I was just wanting to say thank you to the man that lived here for his generosity, explaining that I would not have been able to do my job if not for him. I felt a twinge of embarrassment when I realized that I'd never gotten the man's name. This woman studied me with the same eyes as the old man had, only hers were livelier and more skeptical. She told me in an almost accusatory tone that nobody should have been there, and that she had only just come up from the north to begin renovating the home to sell. She looked to the contractors with slight annoyance, to which they both denied being responsible without actually being asked any questions. She looked back to me and explained that her father built the home in 1942 and lived there up until his death four years ago, leaving the house unoccupied ever since. She felt completely violated that someone had been squatting in her childhood home. I apologized out of sympathy while stifling my own fear and bewilderment that I may have been speaking to a crazed man who was eyeing me possibly deciding whether or not to do God knows what. She seemed reluctant to go on, so I offered up some feigned interest in the home's history in an effort to help her regain some of the autonomy she seemed to lose in light of finding out about the break-in. She walked me around the perimeter, telling me about an old sand pit she played in as a child and how she planned on making it into a garden. She continued through the tour, explaining how she planned to repurpose and restore certain things. 
the memories seemed to warm her from the inside out, as if I began to disappear while she reminisced. I opened up the box of cookies and offered them to her. I got one out and bit into it. I laughed as I offered her one. Here, that old crazy doesn't deserve these. She forced a half-genuine laugh and took a cookie. She then reached into her back jean pocket and pulled out an iPhone. She switched over to the gallery, opening an album of photos she had taken of old Polaroid pictures of the home and its former glory. She swiped as she explained each and pointed out their original locations. A photo of her as a child sitting in her sand pit with an old family dog named Baba. A large knockout rosebush that had stood near the entrance years ago, which had been her mother's pride and joy, and she'd spend hours each week pampering it. She swiped through more photos. An old pickup truck, her mother holding her infant brother on the stoop that had previously moaned under my boots. A chicken coop surrounded by heritage chickens, and finally, a photo of her father. A broad, weathered man clutching a pipe in his teeth, grinning at the camera, wearing a plaid shirt, tucked into tan pants, ending in slick black dress shoes. Yellowstone Backcountry From Aquilo Northwind I was a young 18-year-old backcountry guide in Yellowstone, back in the late 1970s. As you might imagine, it was a rich front of fun and adventure. For example, there was a frosty September morning when I unzipped my tent to find a 3,000-pound bison grazing less than 10 feet away. Another morning, I played a nerve-wracking game of Ring Around the Rosie with a young bull moose dodging around willow clumps until I guess he got bored of the prospect of stomping me to death. I still fear moose more than any other wild animal. Another time in Beckler Canyon, I'd eaten my fill of thimbleberries and lounged back in the thick bushes to relax. I was startled awake sometime later to the snuffling and rustling of some massive woodland creature. I lay hidden in the bushes in frozen silence, until well after the sounds disappeared. A huge pile of berry-filled scat I found nearby confirmed my close encounter with a grizzly bear. Over the several years I worked in the park, I saw and experienced so many wonderful animals. Megafauna like wolves, bighorn sheep, elk, mule deer, and black bears, to the smaller creatures like marten, coyotes, skunks, porcupines, badgers, and my personal favorite, the pika. Some of these are dangerous. All of them are delightful. There really is nothing cuter than a bouncing baby buffalo. Google it, and you're welcome. This story is about an animal encounter, but not with any of the animals mentioned before. Every week of the short Wyoming summer, I would guide a group of eight to ten people on backpacking excursions through various trails of Yellowstone. Usually, our outings were five or six days, and we covered anywhere from forty-five to seventy miles in that time. In the wilderness of Yellowstone, this meant that at our midpoint, we might be as much as thirty-five miles and three river crossings from the nearest road or ranger station. 
Many of the clients were city folk or backpacking novices, so it was quite an ambitious adventure for them. Consequently, they always required a little hand-holding and quite a lot of instruction and encouragement. There were a handful of other guides in our organization, and it was standard practice for us to work in teams. I and my clients would start at one end of a trail while another guide and his group would start at the other. We would pass at some point in the middle, have a long group lunch, and share trail notes. It was always a welcome opportunity to connect with another guide friend. On this particular week, my group had started right at Old Faithful Geyser. Our destination was the Beckler Ranger Station, 60 miles away, on the southeast boundary of the park. Of course, this meant that the other group would be doing just the opposite, starting at Beckler Station and ending their hike at Old Faithful. In between, both groups would see dozens of astonishingly beautiful waterfalls, cross the Continental Divide a couple of times, enjoy world-class fishing, see some incredible and rarely seen thermal features, and of course, see plenty of animals. If the weather wasn't terrible and no one got lost or eaten, this trail was always a winner, one of my absolute favorites. My group was a cohesive group of fathers and sons who already knew each other. They were great people, but definitely out of their element. They were city dwellers, and they were bargain travelers. None of that is particularly an issue for me, just an observation. I was worried that a couple of boys were wearing vinyl shoes. You know the kind I'm talking about if you grew up in the 70s. Kmart specials, made out of some ballistic PVC. They aren't great for hiking, but they do make great blisters. Oh well. I'd rather have someone wear the shoes they're used to than wear a stiff new pair of boots. When we gathered round for a pack shakedown, it was less than ideal. One of the dads had about 15 pounds of camera gear, huge SLR 35mm and all the extras. Beyond that, there was lots of cotton clothing, some really crappy rain gear, some sketchy aluminum-framed packs, and way too many extras of everything. So basically, the usual. In the 70s, backpacking was different. In a way, it was simpler and purer. Not many people had ultra-light gear back then. Internal frame packs were a rarity. Compact liquid gas stoves were a novelty. In fact, it was almost more common to see army surplus than much specialized backpacking gear. I really wasn't concerned with the group. These guys seemed physically fit and they all had positive attitudes. The weather looked good and we had pared their pack weight down to respectable levels. It would be a great week. After Old Faithful erupted right on time, we hit the trail. Within minutes, we were surrounded by pines, and the traffic noises faded away. The hikers were chattering and horse-playing, but I knew a few miles in, the sun would settle everyone down. We stopped at Lone Star Geyser, and were lucky to catch another eruption— not a great one, but a real treat considering that about 99.9% .9 of park visitors will never even know this geyser exists. I prompted everyone to remember to drink. Then we hit the trail again. Our first camp wasn't really very far down the trail, so we arrived early and had plenty of time to cook a good meal, sort out our sleeping gear, and get to know each other. Everyone slept well, and morale was not a problem. The next morning, we climbed the Continental Divide and covered a lot of miles. 
There were the typical blisters, a few grouchy moments, and our first moose sighting. We lunched at Shoshone Geyser Basin, and I was gratified at the group's collective amazement at the place. A few of us swam in Shoshone Lake. Then we hiked on to Camp Number Two. The third day we hiked downhill into the head of Beckler Canyon. The next two days would be a highlight. Shady trails, scads of massive waterfalls and wild berries and great fishing. After setting up our camp that evening, we hiked a mile back up the canyon to one of the few spots in Yellowstone where it's legal, or even advisable, to soak in natural thermal springs. The boys hurried ahead and apparently surprised a skinny-dipping couple. As the poor woman scrambled to put on her swimsuit, the boys gallantly turned their backs, but not before getting an eyeful. Later in the week, I overheard one of the boys telling another in whispered awe of how beautiful the young lady was. Ah, puberty. Day four was the midpoint. On this day, we would meet the other group of hikers, headed the other way. If we timed it right, like we usually did, maybe we could meet by one of the major falls for a scenic lunch. Oddly, we passed both Iris and Colonnade Falls, with no sight of the other party, I began to dread that they might have met with some emergency and been delayed. In the backcountry, emergencies are amplified by distance and communications, especially in the 70s when, of course, there were no cell phones. On a previous trip, a client had a simple asthma attack, which would have been almost inconsequential in normal conditions. But at high altitude, with limited medication, the man had nearly died of hypoxia, so I was already on edge when we finally caught our first glimpse of the other group. It was already late in the day and they were still miles from their next scheduled camp. It only got weirder after that. As the group came near, I noticed the guide, my friend Mike, was hiking out in front. This is unusual, as the guide usually rides drag, or maybe somewhere in the middle. Clients love to be in front and instead of the group being spread out a bit on the trail, which naturally occurs, the entire group could have been contained inside the length of a school bus. It looked so wrong. As they got closer, it was obvious that everyone in the party was quiet and subdued. In fact, they looked positively grim. I ran a quick inventory of what the heck might be going on. Had they had some sort of argument or fight? Had the crew mutinied on the guide? Had their group lost someone? Had someone been injured? In any case, the guide, Mike, and his whole group were somehow stressed or mad or something. Consequently, I held back in approaching my friend. So, rather than stepping forward to meet him, like I would ordinarily do, I held back. I would let Mike come to me when he felt like it. In any case, I called pack break for my crew and they all shrugged off their packs, starting to rummage for lunch and organizing water refills. They were a great crew, and now they were practically running themselves. By now, Mike's crew had hiked past most of my guys, and he was drawing even with me, as I was sitting on a downed tree about two meters off the trail. Mike and his group were all still in that bizarre, tight formation, so much closer together than people naturally hike. It was confusing the heck out of me. It was about that point when I began to think that Mike was going to hike right past me, without even acknowledging me. 
What in the world was going on? My curiosity and alarm got the better of me, so I spoke up. I kept it short, because I could see he was really stressed about something. I just said something simple, like, Hey Mike, everything okay? Without skipping a beat, he turned and said quizzically, Uh, do I know you? I was stunned and confused by his weird response. I was about to stammer back some reply when he said, Oh, right. Uh, we met on this trail last year. Then he flashed a weird, fake smile, waved and turned quickly around, and kept walking. It happened so fast that he was twenty yards up the path by the time I gathered my wits. Obviously, he didn't want to talk to me, but why? I watched him to see if he gave any other clue. Nothing. I then scanned his small party to see what that could tell me. Nothing. At first. As they hiked around the bend and began to disappear into the trees, I noticed that one of the hikers had only a small day pack. What? And another hiker had no pack at all. I had almost missed it, as they were hiking so closely together. I was stumped. I was dumbfounded. Why didn't those guys have gear? Why wouldn't Mike acknowledge me? I thought for a moment to run after them, but what would I do? I didn't even know what was going on. It all seemed almost unreal as I watched my guys casually passing around food and filling canteens. They were subdued and quiet as well. I had told them we would have lunch together with Mike's crew when we found them. We had delayed lunch by nearly two hours. They wondered what was going on too. Eventually, one of the dads asked me if he could help. I told him about the weird exchange between me and Mike and then about the two hikers with no gear. As we talked about it, I guess a few theories started to crystallize. It struck me like a slap that Mike was somehow under duress. I felt a hollow sense of brief panic and almost took off running after him. But what would I do? I still didn't really know anything. If Mike truly was in trouble, the last thing I wanted to do was make it worse. As I and the other adult continued to desperately puzzle over the situation, we heard the thubbing of a helicopter in the distance. The copter flew overhead at fairly high altitude. I doubted it could even see us. I wondered if it was constrained by the high walls of the canyon or if it was just trying to be careful. By now, I felt fairly sure that it had something to do with Mike's crew. I didn't know if we should try to signal the helicopter, or if that would just cause confusion. In any case, I knew the helicopter would be unable to touch down anywhere around us, as the canyon is dense with old-growth trees and steep rocky walls for miles. In a moment, the helicopter was past us, and it was all a moot issue. Still at a loss for what to do and kind of out of a dumb sense of duty and normalcy. I just ended up calling the end of pack break, and we got back on the trail. In two miles, we were out of the canyon and on the edge of Beckler Meadows, a massive flat grassland that stretches for miles. We found our campsite and set up camp. Sick with worry and still miles away from Beckler Ranger Station, I was doing a lot of anxious mental hand-wringing, I was torn between hiking out overnight to get help at the ranger station, 
or hiking back up the canyon to help Mike myself. I was reticent to leave my crew, in any case. I was honestly scared and confused. Before I could belabor the issue much longer, we saw two riders on horseback on the far edge of the meadow. They were covering ground fast. In a matter of minutes, they were at our camp. When I saw them up close, I didn't know whether to feel relieved or more worried. They were two park rangers, armed, and both had rifles in their saddle scabbards. Before I could say anything, the rangers simply told us to pack up and head south. When I asked why, they told me they had fugitives in the area, and we were to abort our trip plans. Naturally, everything cleared up for me in an instant. I quickly told the rangers what had occurred with Mike's party when we had passed them in the canyon. I told them about the two men with no gear. I was able to give the rangers details about what the men were wearing, and I let them know what Mike looked like too. I was even able to tell them that Mike's group was scheduled for campsite 9D1 that night, Three Rivers Junction. At that point, the ranger canceled our evacuation order. With the solid information about where the fugitives were, and with positive IDs, the ranger felt we were no longer in immediate danger. Straight away, the rangers rode on into the canyon. It was a nervous evening and a long night. When morning came, we broke camp and started the hike across the long, grassy meadows. I was hopeful that Mike was already safe, but I had no way of knowing. I made the decision to cancel the last leg of our hike, in order to get to Beckler Ranger Station one day earlier. I wanted an update as soon as possible. It would mean we would forego seeing Union Falls, which is arguably the highlight of the trip. But there was no way I could have waited any longer to find out if Mike was safe. We got to the ranger station a bit past noon. I had dragged my poor clients past some of the best fishing in the world. We had blown past Cave Falls and Dunanda Falls, but graciously the clients were cool about it. By now they were all in the picture, and they were very understanding. The minute we got to Beckler Station, we were fortunate to find a talkative ranger, and we got all the details. The two rangers who had ridden past us the day before had already radioed in with the resolution. Mike? He was safe. All of his crew were safe. The fugitives were in custody, and had been taken out to the road at Shoshone Lake. The duty ranger was good enough to tell us how it had gone down. The fugitives were two young adults from the Idaho Juvenile Correction Academy over in St. Anthony, Idaho. In Idaho, individuals up to 21 may be retained in the juvenile system. These men had assaulted staff and escaped with a stolen vehicle. They had traveled the 30-mile-long dirt road between Idaho and Flag Ranch on the park's south boundary. They ditched their car after dragging the oil pan out and hiked into the park. They had overtaken Mike's group at their campsite in Beckler Meadows. Obviously, when they passed us, they were holding the group by threat. One fugitive had a large knife, which he had brandished, and the other claimed to have one too. They controlled the group by positioning one man right behind Mike and the other at the end of the column. They kept the group very tight together. With the information I provided... The two rangers had actually beaten Mike's group to their next camp. They had taken their horses on the far side of the river on the equestrian trail, 
and had been hidden and waiting by the time Mike and his crew arrived to set up camp. Prudently, the rangers had waited until the party had bedded down for the night, before moving in for a quick and easy arrest. One of the fugitives had been standing guard, while the other was curled up in a ground tarp, which they had taken from Mike. After the arrest, Mike was a pro. He and his crew finished the week-long hike. What else could they do? They were twenty-five miles from anything. He said it was probably the best thing for everybody, because they all had a couple of days of solitude to process the traumatic situation together. He said by the end they were joking about it, and it seemed like an integral part of their great adventure. By the time they got to Old Faithful, they were all friends for life. Mike did tell me that when the helicopter had flown over that day, the guy with the day pack had freaked out and ordered everyone to get under cover of the tree canopy. Mike said the man held him by the back of his belt with the knife resting against one of his kidneys until the helicopter had gone. As for me, I thanked Mike for his quick thinking and acting like we were strangers. I apologized for almost blowing his cover. Obviously, his sharp wits and selflessness prevented my whole group from getting tangled up with fugitives, too. Who knows what the men might have done if they found out we were together. My group ended up having a good week, too. We left the trail a day early, but they had certainly got their money's worth. If you're ever in Yellowstone, keep an eye peeled for dangerous animals, including the two-legged ones. Curse of the Desert Draggers From Burning Sands We called them draggers. It's a legend passed down from generation to generation on my reservation. And yet, almost all the people on our reservation today have never heard of the legend. Only a few remaining families still tell the story to their children and their children's children. To be honest with you, it's a story even I nearly forgot. Having been told by my grandmother as a small child, I hadn't heard the story told again until I went searching for it in my late thirties after experiencing the most horrific moment of my life. There exists a few miles of desert in one direction of our reservation. As the story goes, the people of my tribe roamed these parts far and wide for centuries. They knew to never wander the desert, as the dreadful heat of the day and the polar cold of the night would likely be your end. But there was another threat that often exited that desert, but always returned, dragging one of the tribe into the dunes. Coyotes. Modern coyotes are so docile that even though I was young and impressionable at the time when I first heard the story, I immediately refused to believe that coyotes, of all things, would be as aggressive as the story portrayed. And yet the legend goes that coyotes would stalk the village at night, looking for unattended children or infants to grab and drag away, whilst the coyotes' companions would growl or attack or distract the family members that attempted to stop the dragger coyote. That is why they called them the draggers. These starved and desperate coyotes dragged infants into the desert, where they were never seen again. And often, those who followed, in an impassioned attempt to rescue their loved ones, 
would also become lost to the extreme temperatures of the dunes. Believe the legend or don't, that's up to you. It is simply the tragic and terrifying story that my family continues to share to this day. As kids, my cousins and I thought the story nothing more than a cautionary tale, an attempt to keep us from wandering around at night and to keep us from exploring that desert. It's funny how a place so obviously dangerous and treacherous is somehow tempting to a child. There were times in my youth where we would ignore the warnings, and we would adventure into the dunes after nightfall. Usually we would hear the howls of coyotes and turn back, reminded of the story of the draggers. But on one brave occasion in which we went a bit too far, we stumbled upon coyote tracks and ran back laughing at our bravery or stupidity. Now, growing up usually brings with it wisdom and experience, but that is not always the case. After all, it was my sober decision to set out into the dunes myself for a camping trip to be alone with myself after a particularly rough year at work. I had a few days of vacation to use, and I used it to return to nature. The legend of the draggers was but a distant memory at that point. Even if the legend had been recalled randomly in my head, I wouldn't be able to recall much detail about it. Coyotes or something, I probably would have said. Memory is a fragile thing as the years go by, frustratingly so. I set out on a clear Thursday afternoon. I paid close attention to the weather forecast for the area. I wanted clear weather and moderate temperatures if I could help it. Any foul weather in a place of extreme temperatures would force my outing to an early end, I was afraid. Luckily, it was supposed to be clear. I settled in an area that wasn't too far from a frequented dirt road. That road wouldn't be more than a mile out, if I recall correctly. That particular spot would also make remembering the direction of the road simple, due to the shape of the dunes around me. The plan was not to sleep on the sand. Rather, I'd set up my jeep with a snug little covered sleeping area in the back. It was a 4x4 four four with nearly new tires, so traversing the dunes would not be a problem either. Well, I spent the remainder of the daylight reading from my Amazon Kindle, listening to the wind blow through the sandy mounds. When the sun began to dip, I built a fire from the logs I'd brought along. Dinner was deer steak that my mother always cooked so well. Fried squash and some beef franks that I roasted on a stick. Sounds like a lot of meat, but I would not go camping without having a camping snack. But maybe I should have brought marshmallows. As night approached, it was a far more refreshing trip than I even expected it to be. When the day got too hot, the night came along to cool it down. And when I got too cold, I'd just sit a little bit closer to the fire. That night, the desert seemed to be the least dangerous place I'd ever been. Crossing a street in town would be infinitely more risky than this, I thought to myself. Thinking back on all the warnings my family had given me as a child over the years. On the other hand, it still made sense. After all, I wouldn't allow my own child to explore the desert on their own, 
Perhaps growing up into a more understanding and skillful adult had allowed me to enjoy and respect the desert more. I lay back on the sand near the precarious fire pit. I closed my eyes for a while. I wasn't tired yet. I was just thinking about my childhood for a bit. Nostalgia had come flooding my heart and mind as I sat in a familiar yet wondrous setting. Even still, I found myself dozing off. Guess I was too comfortable. My eyes tore open at the sound as it echoed and bounded over the dunes and into my campsite. The jitter of my heart, my sudden rapid panting, it felt as if I had awakened from a nightmare. But as I recalled, I hadn't had a nightmare. No, I recognized the sound that woke me. Coyote howls, dog-like brethren calling out under the moonlight, signaling each other some unknown information. I placed my palms on the sand, gripping it in my fingers. Squeezing my eyes shut, I reminded myself that coyotes were no danger to people these days, that a case of someone being attacked by a coyote in my tribe had never happened as long as I'd been alive. My heart rested and my breathing slowed. Nothing to worry about. I shook some sand from my hair. I didn't mean to fall asleep on the ground. Then I picked myself up and carried myself into the back of the Jeep Wrangler. The rear of my Jeep had no glass windows, so I would be very much exposed to the cold night air. But that was fine. I was overheating from the fire anyway so I wanted to cool down some. Plus, I had a number of blankets, one of which was heated, and plugged right into my Jeep's power outlet thanks to a handy adapter. Fire still crackling near the Jeep on the ground, I lay my head down onto a pillow and closed my eyes. Despite my rest having been interrupted before, and feeling more tired than I'd been in weeks, I could not go back to sleep. I must have lain there, tossing and turning, eyes remaining closed for a few hours, before I just gave up and stared up at the stars. As I wondered if I should put my headphones in and play some music from my phone, I heard a new sound from the darkness of the desert. A crying child. A single eyebrow raised, I lifted myself up and looked around. It sounded fairly close. Was some family out there, camping as well? The crying didn't stop. Instead, it drew closer, ever so slowly, as the sounds of coyotes roared around it. As the minutes ticked past and I began to grow annoyed by the unwanted chorus of the night, I made a startling discovery. Though the crying came from the same direction and slowly seemed to approach, the coyote howls were steadily converging, fusing together behind the sound of the child's cry. I stared into the darkness toward the direction of the sounds until, maybe twenty minutes later, they all had combined into one harmonious sound of layered voices. Many coyote howls, one child's cry, all coming closer by the second. My mouth had fallen wide open, 
as I jumped from the jeep and nearly tripped when my foot caught in a blanket. I wasn't sure why, but I felt as if I desperately needed to put out the fire and drive away in my jeep. Something deep, something primal in me demanded that I stay no longer here. As I started to kick sand awkwardly onto the fire, to no avail, thanks to one of my feet being asleep, I found it was too late when a figure emerged from the dark at the side of one of the nearby dunes. I saw paws first, four paws leaving slow, deliberate tracks in the sand beneath it as it traversed down the steep mound. It seemed to be approaching the fire. I was happy that it didn't seem too interested in me. But I had never heard of wildlife approaching a person next to a fire without any caution. I thought to myself, shouldn't it be scared of the flames, scared of a human? Taking a step back, I kept a distance from the coyote as it approached my campsite at a frustratingly slow speed. It took another minute or two just to reveal the rest of itself into the light of the campfire. And when it did, I screamed and fell to the ground. My hands flew behind me searching as I grasped at more solid ground to pull myself backward, yet all I found was a sea of loose, soft sand. The coyote's furry body ended, or rather began, at a disturbing point. Its face was not coyote at all, but human. Specifically, its face was that of a newborn baby, yet the bottom half was still the lower jaw of the coyote. The human face seemed to replace the top half of the head and snout where the nose and eyes would be. I could see its mouth open in a pant as the human face looked into the fire, the flame dancing across its tormented newborn eyes. With each step, the lower canine jaw opened and a baby's cry came dribbling out of it. Behind it, as if somehow miles back in the desert still, dozens of coyote howls accompanied the cry. The creature approached the fire at a snail's pace. Over the course of what must have been five minutes, it made it close enough to the flames to where it seemed satisfied. Then it sat as a dog would on its haunches, its panting slowing as the heat apparently pleased it. It had wandered a freezing desert to find solace and comfort in the heat of my fire. I soon remembered that I was still struggling to make sense of the situation from my position on the ground. I swallowed hard, forcing bile back into my stomach that desperately wanted to rise up out of fear as I stood, causing the sands beneath me to falter. The coyote thing took notice of me. The baby's eyes looked right into mine for the very first time. I'll never forget that moment. Its lower jaw slacked open and became motionless as a childlike voice whispered from it. It said, Mama. I left the fire ablaze, scrambling like a madman into my jeep. I wanted to scream. I wanted to call someone from my cell phone, but I could not pull my mind away from its focus. To escape. And so I did, 
I drove as fast as I could in the direction of the road, coming disturbingly close to flipping the jeep on a few occasions. When sand turned to dirt under tire, I began to cry and smile. Though I no longer lived there, I floored it back to the reservation and stayed the night with my mother, who still called the place her home. She asked what brought me to her house so late in the night. She queried me why I looked so tired and scared and why I was covered in sand. I sat down on her couch. I spilled everything to the elderly loving woman. After bombarding her with the most unbelievable ghost story that was my night camping, she nodded and seemed almost unfazed. Your grandmother spoke to me of such things when she was still with us. You remember the legend of the draggers, don't you? Covered in a cold sweat and mouth agape, I nodded repeatedly. Well, then you should understand this encounter entirely. Here, let me get you some tea. She sat up and walked into the kitchen. What did that mean, I wondered. How could I understand something so out of this world? After a few seconds, she returned with a hot cup of tea and sat down again. I drank as she smirked at my still-confused expression. Ah, you still don't get it. I shook my head. Our people have always believed in the spirits of the land. Spirits of water, wind, fire, even of the earth and desert. When someone was taken from this world too soon. When a person passed away suddenly and in pain or torment. Sometimes a part of them would stay behind. It only makes sense that you would see what you saw out there. After all, it was likely the remains of a child stolen from its mother, devoured alive by the draggers, abandoned on this earth, and forced to wander the colds of the desert night alone. <laughs> and there you were, with a source of heat in the desert hell.